Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff. Fotella is your host. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on December 23rd, 2022. The time right now is 9.38 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And I thought we probably were not going to have this show, at least not tonight, because I got sick about a week ago. I, I still don't know what it is. The whole thing is very weird. I'll explain a bit later. But I thought I was mostly better yesterday, so it seemed like today it would be even more better and I could do the show. And then today I woke up and it was worse. And I said, well, crap, I guess I can't do it. But then looking ahead at uh, what's going on for me the next few days, it was going to be hard for me to do the show. So it would be like at least three more days delay. And I said, you know what? It's been long enough. I actually wanted to do this show several days ago. And then I got this illness and I couldn't do it. This is actually the first time I've gotten sick since I had COVID, which is more than six months ago. So it's not like I've been sick a lot this year, at least not in the second half of the year. But I finally got something, and I didn't want to have to wait another few days. So this is the final show for 2022. I can tell you that for sure. We won't be back until January. And I know we've slowed down the number of shows we've been doing recently. It's been about once every 10 to 14 days rather than once every seven days. And I will try to improve upon that in 2023. This one I'm probably going to need a break from for a while because it's going to be a long one because there's a lot to talk about tonight. So you will have a lot of content. When the next one is, I'm not sure. I can just tell you it'll be after the new year. I opened with what is a tradition of this show, and that is Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year by Tiny Tim. And I run this every year around Christmas time. This was a song he released in 1985. And this was before it was as well understood how serious AIDS really was. So he thought this is like a funny little song to do. He didn't realize AIDS was like a super deadly disease. There's even a line in the song where Santa says, don't cry for me. A doctor can cure me. I'll be back next year, next year. Yeah. Good luck with that, Santa, if you really have AIDS. But I guess he doesn't. I guess he's still delivering presents here 37 years later. Tiny Tim was embarrassed about that song and, in fact, came up with an excuse after the fact and claimed that he was singing about the candy AIDS, A-Y-D-S, which he wasn't. It would make no sense if you listened to the lyrics. But he came up with that in order to kind of get out of the controversy that sprung from this song. And it actually was brought back into the public conscience. In fact, it was brought more into the public conscience. It wasn't that well-known, that song in the mid-'80s, but it was brought more into the public conscience when Howard Stern found it and kept playing it on his show because Tiny was a frequent guest there. And that's where I first heard it back in the 1990s. So I play it on this show here every December and being two days before Christmas, perfect timing. So there you go. Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. It's not clear how he got the AIDS. They don't explain that in the song. It's not clear if he got it from Mrs. Claus or from one of the reindeer, one of the elves, or if he was having sex with other men in the North Pole. Can't imagine who. But somehow he got the AIDS. All right. There's a free roll tonight. Not like last week's. Or I guess now two weeks ago, but it's not like last show's free roll, which is $200. This is $58, which was the planned free roll last week until Eric Benzamokin dropped a bunch of money on us. So we had a bigger free roll, which I appreciate, but we're back to the $58 free roll. Some of that money's from Eric Benzamokin, too, from some old money he gave. So here's how it goes. It's $58. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. 
it is $30 for first, 18 for second, 10 for third. 30 for first, 18 for second, 10 for third. It started at 9.40 p.m. I know it says 9.15 on the official thread, but you can ignore that. It started at 9.40, which is good news because that means you have time to get in. You have all the way till 10.05, which is 23 minutes from now on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you can find near the top of the screen. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash freeroll, all lowercase, PokerFraudAlert.com slash freeroll to learn about the qualifications to win this free money, which I will pay you by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by cryptocurrency. I can send you several cryptos or other methods you could think of to get paid online. Just let me know. PM me on the forum, Dan Druff with a space in between, Dan space Druff on the forum. You can also email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com or text me at the number I will give out shortly. But I prefer it on the forum because that's the easiest place to keep track of it. And I do pay these out in batches. So sometimes there'll be a few months that will pass after you win. But don't worry, you are not forgotten about. Everybody gets paid. And I have it all up on the forum. Who won, who got paid, who hasn't gotten paid. And it's all right there, transparent for everyone to see. And if anyone doesn't claim their prize, I don't mean actually getting paid, but actually claiming it. If you don't claim it within six months, then I may take it away and use it for future free rolls. I will never never pocket the money myself, but I may reuse it for free rolls. In fact, we did that this week. So we took $10 that Earls 22 never claimed and $10 that Train 2 never claimed. And then in addition, we have money from D Lucky, who we're going to talk about tonight. May or may not be the real D Lucky who donated, but someone calling themselves D Lucky did donate $25 to tonight's free roll, which will not affect the coverage tonight. I'm going to talk about him the same way. Donation or no donation. And then Eric Benzamokin had $13 left over from a previous donation he gave. So thanks to him again for that. So that's $58 total for tonight's free roll. That's how we have that funny number. If you want to chat during the live show, just go into the chat room. You need a validated form account in good standing to get into the chat room. It does work on any device. If you want to listen to the show in the archives, if you're not listening live then you can easily find it on one of many platforms. We're on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, the TuneIn app, which also has a live show on it. You have two entries there. You can listen to the live show or you can listen to the archives on TuneIn. The Spotify app, which has clickable timestamps, very useful app to listen in the archives. iHeartMedia. The Bullhorn app, which is actually similar to the Spotify app with the clickable timestamps, but it also has its own call to listen line if you want to listen to over the over the telephone without having to stream on the internet. So that's a useful app, the Bullhorn app. Not very well known, but we're on there. You can also download or play an MP3 file, an old school MP3 file of the show. We're also on Amazon Alexa to say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. Say that slowly. And we are on Audible, which is owned by Amazon. So we're on a lot of different platforms. And there's also the call to listen line. The call to listen line is a number you just call up and listen to the show. Very simple. You can't interact with me, but you can listen to the show. It does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require a computer or the internet. No, 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 no. It's just very simple. You just call up and you listen. Very, very, very simple. 
That phone number is 518-931-1189, 518-931-1189, the call to listen line. Over 2 million minutes have been listened to on the call to listen line, getting close to 3 million. It's been running for over seven years. I started it in November of 2015. And use it to your heart's content. It is free as long as you can call the U.S. for free. Unless you have T-Mobile, then it will cost you one cent a minute because they consider it a bulk number with a lot of phone calls. So it's a compliment from them, but it's also kind of frustrating, and I get none of the money, as I've told you guys many times. The phone number to call the show is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is how that breaks out. You can text that number as well, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I will answer you, 775-372-8355. We also have the Mount Charleston line. Now, you can't text the Mount Charleston line because it's an old 70s rotary phone sitting on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin I have there and forwards to me wherever I go. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. And if you forget any of these numbers... Just go to the radio tab on Poker Fraud Alert, and you can see them all listed right there. And if you scroll down to the bottom, you will see all the little icons for different ways you can listen. You just click on one, it'll take you to the right page, so you can get the right app or whatever you want to use. But you don't need an app to listen to the archives. You can also just click on the MP3 file, and that will play the show as well. And there's a little MP3 icon as well. Just go to the radio tab and scroll to the bottom. It's very simple. If you have trouble understanding, you can always text me, 775-372-8355. But I try to make it simple, even for novice computer users to figure out. I want to make it easy to listen to the show. I want to give you a lot of options. And if there's another way you want me to add that you would like to use to listen to the show, let me know. Anything but YouTube. Because YouTube, there's not an easy way to get it on there. Maybe it'll be coming soon in the future. Maybe not. Don't suggest YouTube. I'd already like to have it there. It's just not easy. Everything else, if you want something that we don't carry, please let me know and I'll see if we can be carried on that service as well. We have a chat room. If you're listening live, you can go in there. It works on any device. You need a Poker Fraud Alert account on the forum in good standing to get in there. Here's the agenda and then we will get going. First, I'll tell you about what happened to me about a week ago, which prevented me from doing the radio for some time and it included a very weird ear pressure issue that I've never had before. That was very frustrating. And I'll tell you where I stand with that. And I'll also let you know right now, in fact, I don't know if I can get through the whole show because I'm not all better. I just decided to do it anyway. I may sound better, but I'm not all better. So if, if I can't get through this long show, I may have to end it early and just cover the other stuff later. But hopefully we'll get through it. I may have to take more than one break this time. Then I have a death to announce of a poker fraud alert listener. For sure, a listener to this show has passed away because I found the obituary of this person. The weird thing is that I'm not exactly sure if they were the person on the forum I think they were. This is definitely someone who listened. I'll tell you who it is. It's I Am Greek. So I Am Greek, who was known to be the Oldest forum poster and oldest radio listener to my knowledge on Poker Fraud Alert. He was born in uh, 1943, I believe. He disappeared. So I looked into it and I found that a radio listener had passed away. But the person I thought was I Am Greek is still alive. So if you're confused, 
So am I, but I'll try to explain what's going on here. Very odd story. And that'll be our first topic. Then we will talk about the Hustler Casino Live investigative report. They finally dropped the report on what happened on that fateful night, September 29th, 2022, when Robbie Jade Lou made that bizarre call with Jack Four offsuit, no draw on the turn, and won the hand against Garrett Adelstein. The biggest poker topic of the year for sure. And now there's an update to it as they released their investigative report. I'll give you my opinion about this investigation and whether it really tells us anything and whether we can trust it. I have an update to the BetMGM Viejas global payments bank account theft story. BetMGM has acknowledged that in May of 2022, a data breach occurred, which allowed players' personal info to be stolen, including their social security number. So it would seem very, very likely that this is related to these recent bank account thefts, including mine, right? Well, maybe. I will tell you why I think that it's not so simple to jump to that conclusion. So we'll discuss what this means related to the recent scandal. Even though we don't have time for it, I'm going to do it anyway. We have Druffy Time Theater, and we have to do it this week because it's a Christmas story. It is a Christmas direct TV story from the 2000s involving me. I could tell it on the next show in January, but it just wouldn't have the right feel. So because this is a Christmas episode, even though I'm a Jew, it kind of is a Christmas episode because it's December 23rd, I'm going to tell this story tonight, even though, believe me, I would prefer we didn't have that topic this week because we have so much else to talk about. Another big story that we need to cover involves Ethan Rampage Yao winning the Win 25K High Roller event at the WPT. And normally this would be something I don't even talk about. Why would I? Because who cares? You know, people win tournaments every day. That's not what we do on this show. We don't talk about who won the tournaments. But this one had some controversy with it because he won the tournament on his second bullet, but he only sold pieces of himself with the first bullet, which he busted. So he refunded the people who bought the first bullet pieces of his, and all kinds of controversy broke out. So we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about whether he did the right thing. Then we will talk about D. Lucky. D. Lucky is a slot player. He has a YouTube channel that is pretty popular. He's one of these YouTube slot players. You may remember we talked about another YouTube slot player this year, or maybe the end of last year, but sometime, I'd say nearly a year ago, we talked about Slot Lady, but this is someone different. This is completely different from Slot Lady. It's just kind of the same genre. Anyway, he is charging people $1,700 to spend 10 minutes with him. And that's all they get out of it. They spend 10 minutes with him and they play a slot machine with him briefly and that's it. They have to spend uh, 1700 bucks. So why would anyone do this? And is it a scam? Some people really, really hate D-Lucky, calling him a scammer and all kinds of other bad things. I will tell you all about D-Lucky and I will tell you what I think of him, whether I think he's a scammer whether I think he could get any trouble or what he's doing, and why people are paying this kind of money to play slots with him. Andy Stacks, who is a high-stakes 
live stream player. You see him a lot on Hustler Casino Live, sometimes on Live at the Bike. He's been around for a long time. We talked about a controversy he had fairly recently with another live stream player, a female, who owed him money. And then she sued him for defamation, and uh, the whole thing ended up being settled, and it was a big mess. And Poker Fraud Alert was kind of in the middle of it. We had nothing to do with the whole incident, but because I reported it, and I was reporting it probably more aggressively and in more detail than anyone else, which is what we do here, we kind of became the center of where everything was happening. And in fact, the female that he had accused of... uh, ripping him off was posting on poker fraud alert as it was a friend of hers and uh, he was reading it all and i got some contacts from his attorney about it so we were never in any kind of issue like we were never going to get sued over here and we, we there was never any hostility from either side towards me or towards poker fraud alert we were just kind of the neutral ground where it was all happening and then that all got solved i guess behind the scenes without my involvement which is good because i really didn't want to be involved anyway he's back in the news He was, by the way, at the table when the whole Robbie Jade Lou thing happened, but nothing to do with that. But this does have to do with Hustler Casino Live because it was found on the stream that he grabbed another player's 10K that was much closer to the other player's stack. Two 5K chips, he just swiped. So it was either an accident or on purpose. There's no other ways. It's either something he did with no malice and didn't realize he was doing it and thought these were his, his chips, or he was trying to sneakily take 10K from this guy. So I'm going to discuss it with you, and I'll play you the clip. Of course, you can't see it, but I'll tell you where to find it on YouTube. And I'll discuss how I feel about it and what my opinion is as to Andy Stack's intentions there. Speaking of live stream poker players, there's one who used to play on these streams named Ramsey Dumani. Fairly young guy, and he passed away at the age of 34. So we'll discuss that a bit. And we'll also discuss why we have a number of these in poker. People who are quite young that are passing away in the community. I was given a request for a Prahlad Friedman update. A lot of people love the Prahlad Friedman updates. And I was told there's some good material for one this week. And indeed there is. Former UB shill Prahlad Friedman. Remember, he signed to promote UB after the cheating scandal. (laughs) When it was run by the same people. And he was still promoting it. He was one of the people who was cheated the most, in fact. And yet he was promoting it. So that guy, Perlot Friedman, is popping off on Twitter about what other topic but poker cheating. (laughs) Of all people who shouldn't be talking about poker cheating. He didn't cheat himself, but he led all the lambs to the slaughter. Anyway, I will read some of his tweets and comment on them in my usual fashion. Then we have lots of updates on the FTX scandal. I'm sure you've heard because it's very big in the news. SBF has been arrested. He has been shipped to the United States. Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang, who were accomplices to this whole scam, have gone to New York to plead guilty. And they will cooperate against SBF in the prosecution against him. SBF is not currently sitting in jail, however. I'll tell you why that is. And what about Daniel Friedberg? Is he going to get charged? 
Well, I don't know, but I will give you my opinion on that. Then we'll finish off with a lighter story. For the second time in 2022, a Rolex was stolen from a Vegas Strip hotel room and shoved inside a vagina. (laughs) Not the same woman. A different woman has stolen a Rolex from a Vegas Strip hotel room and shoved it inside her vagina in order to get away and still conceal it if caught. I guess it's a common MO there in Vegas. So I tell you about that one. And then another story about a woman in Vegas, but not about Rolexes or vaginas. An old lady won a $1.6 million jackpot. Actually, this was in uh, Atlantic City, Harris Atlantic City. And she tipped $77,000. So I'll tell you about that, and I'll give you my opinion of that tip. That is our long agenda tonight. Let me start off by telling you about what I've been going through for the past week. I went to the bike on Friday night, very late Friday night, so I technically got there Saturday morning. And I played a long poker session, probably like 16 hours or something. And I won a little bit there. It wasn't a very exciting session. Anyway, obviously I ate while I was there. And the bike... In some ways, it is superior food-wise to Commerce now, because Commerce, they've basically ruined everything that was good about their food situation. The food at Commerce is no longer free. It is no longer even cheap. The selection, which was once large, is now pretty small. So the whole thing kind of sucks, and I I just don't even eat when I go to Commerce. But the bike still has the old-school format of where you order from a menu and pay with your player's points, so it doesn't cost you anything out of pocket other than any tip you give to the server. So that's what I did. The problem is at the bike, they have a horrendous record with getting things wrong. Like, not just for me. Like, I watch everybody who orders at the table, like, it comes wrong. It's amazing how bad they are at preparing the food as ordered. So that happened to me, and I sent it back. And when I got the burger, it was a burger I ordered. When I got it back, I noticed that it was a little bit red. And I almost sent it back again, but I'm like, you know what? They're going to be so pissed off. Who knows what they're going to do? I'll just eat the kind of pinkish burger. Yeah, I know that can be dangerous, but I threw caution into the wind and did anyway. Well, that may or may not have been the beginning of a lot of trouble. So the next day, I had the worst case of diarrhea I ever had in my life. And just in case you're eating or something, I'm not going to go into details, but one of the worst. I wouldn't say my life. I'd say the the worst I've had in several years, I shall say. And it just came out out of nowhere. So I thought, okay, it was either because that burger was reddish or because they did something to the food because I sent it back, or maybe that just there was something wrong with it. Maybe just there was some kind of bacteria in the food or whatever, and uh, it wasn't prepared well. Who, who knows? Whatever it was, I probably got some kind of food poison there, I thought. The timing was what you would think. It was the next day. I wondered how long this is going to last. Well, fortunately, the next day after that, it got better. I took like an Imodium pill, but that doesn't usually fix the whole thing that fast. But it did. So I said, okay, good. Unfortunately, right after that, I developed this really, really weird problem with my ear that I've never had before. Now, I've had clogged feelings in my ear in the past, and I've had ear infections. In fact, 
I had a tremendous number of ear infections as a kid. Not sure why, but I had 30 ear infections as a kid by age 12, which is a lot. That's way more than kids usually get. Now, kids get them way more than adults because their ears are different. And once they get past around age 12, their ear canals change and they're no longer exposed as much. So they don't get infected as easily. So kids get way more ear infections than teenagers and adults do. But for me, it was extreme because I had my 30th ear infection at age 12. We were actually on a family trip in Colorado, and we actually went to a urgent care over there to get antibiotics. And that was the worst ear infection I ever had in my life. Well, it was also the last ear infection I ever had in my life. In the 38 and a half years since, I have not had a single ear infection. Well, that streak is still continuing because what I had here while it was an ear problem was not an ear infection. And in fact, it didn't really feel like one because my ear didn't hurt. But my left ear had tremendous pressure in it. It felt like I couldn't pop my ears. It felt like I was just had this major pressure that there was no way to get away, to get rid of. And it was only on one side, which was worse. If it was on both sides, it would have been more tolerable. But here I had it on one side, so the whole thing just felt really, really uneven and uncomfortable. Just picture this. Picture times when you've had pressure in your ear from a change in altitude or whatever it might be. And picture there's like a whole lot of pressure, but it's all on one side, and it won't clear no matter what you do. Like, think of how frustrating this would be. In fact, it was driving me so crazy, I had to take Xanax to calm myself down. Like I felt my anxiety go way up, not because I was worried about anything. I didn't think something bad was going to happen to me, but it was just so uncomfortable. My anxiety was going way up. I actually took a Xanax. I quickly the next day wanted to get into an ENT. Now, before that, I tried the hydrogen peroxide in my ears because I do get wax in my ears occasionally and the hydrogen peroxide takes care of that. But this time it didn't help. So I thought maybe wax got deeply embedded in my ear and the hydrogen peroxide was not doing the job. And I figured I probably had to go to an ear, nose, and throat doctor to get this taken care of. For all the criticism that the U.S. medical system gets, sometimes from me, I will say that one huge strength of it is that you can see specialists very quickly in most areas Whereas with socialized systems, you're often waiting four to six months to see a specialist, and sometimes you can't even get into one at all. That is a huge plus to the American system, and that is why I'm dreading for the day we end up on a socialized system, which I think will eventually happen, but I'm not looking forward to it, because if I wanted to see an ENT in this case, good luck, I'd be waiting four to six months. So fortunately, I was able to get into one same day. And I went down there, and it seemed like we had the answer, because he said, in my left ear only, because remember, this is only on one side, my left ear only, there was a tremendous amount of wax. And it was actually hard to get out, because he said it had a consistency that was right in the middle of the two ways where you can get it out. He said you can scoop it out if it's hard, and you can suck it out with a vacuum easily if it's soft, and if it's like medium, then it's hard to do either one. So he took a while, but he got, he said 99% of it out. And then he said on the other side, there was very little. So I said, okay, well, it all makes sense. I had wax that was so embedded in my ear, it was all the way down to the eardrum. And in fact, he couldn't even see the eardrum at first when he looked into my ear because of all the wax. And he took a lot out. There wasn't 
butch wax on the other side, the side that had the pressure was the one that had all the wax. So, okay. Seemed like we had our answer, except I didn't get the relief I thought I would. It felt somewhat better, and I could hear again out of that ear, because with all the pressure in it before, I could barely hear out of the left ear. I could hear out of the right one fine, but the left ear I couldn't hear. Like a tiny bit I could hear. So my hearing was back, and it didn't feel as pressurized as before, but it didn't feel like relief, like, ah, it's all better. It wasn't like that. It was like still some moderate pressure, and I even tested to see how good my hearing was on each side. And I actually did it with a call to listen line. I thought, wow, how could I test this? Well, I could make a phone call, but I need like a recording of something that doesn't hang up. What, what could I call for that? I go, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I know what's a constant recording that's not going to hang up on me. So I called the call to listen line, put it in my left ear, put it in my right ear, and the right ear it was louder. So I'm like, okay, well, this isn't all better. Now, he had told me there was a little bit of wax left over that he just couldn't get to and told me that I could try some hydrogen peroxide again and maybe get the rest. So I was a little worried that I was walking out of there without this completely being better. Well, I really regretted that because a few hours later, the pressure was coming back and I had the same thing all over again. Wasn't quite as bad as the peak, but it was getting there. And I thought, crap, well, what do I do now? So I called up just before they closed and said, can I come in tomorrow? And they didn't have anything for the next day. They were going to try to get me in for Friday. So I thought I may be on my own for this. Well, the next day I got a bit more of a clue of what was happening. Because the next day I noticed that while my left ear still had that same pressure, now my right ear was having the same condition. Now, while that might have upset most people, to me this made me happy. Because it was at that moment when I realized it probably was not an ear problem. It was probably a congestion problem. In fact, before the left ear started to get highly pressurized like that, I had noticed I had a minor sore throat, which then went away. So I said, oh, okay, this is probably some virus. Oh, okay. I don't know why it was so disproportionately in the left ear, but okay. Now it's coming to the right ear also. So, okay, I've had this before. And once it was on both sides, it felt much better. It's funny because I discovered that the problem wasn't so much that I had a lot of pressure, but it was that I had a lot of pressure only on one side. And once I had it on both sides, then it was much more tolerable. Then it felt much more typical of when I've had past colds and my ears had some pressure in them. So it didn't feel great, but it was much better than it was just one side. It also wasn't quite the same amount of pressure. Now, maybe the wax had something to do with that too. Maybe all that wax plus the congestion was making it especially bad on that side. I don't know. But... I no longer felt that I needed the doctor's help anymore. It seemed like it was something that a virus was causing and it would pass. So I actually canceled the doctor's appointment. And then I started to wonder, what virus is this, though? Because I'm not having really traditional cold symptoms, though I notice I'm having fatigue and I've noticed that uh, I'm having some joint pain. Like, I'm having some elements of when I get a cold, but the main elements of a cold, that is a cough and a runny nose they didn't really have. And I thought, uh-oh, well, there is one other virus that I could have. 
that from Googling I saw did sometimes affect people's ears, and that was COVID. If you remember, I last had COVID in early June. I had a very, very mild case of it, milder than anyone I know who had symptoms. But I did have verified COVID. I took multiple PCR tests, and I did have COVID, even though it was very mild. I don't know what variant I had. At the time, the two dominant variants were BA2 and 4. BA5 was there, but wasn't as common yet. BA4 and BA5 are very similar, but BA2 and BA5 are not that similar. And the reason that's relevant is because the two dominant COVID variants right now, the ones that are getting a lot of people sick, are BQ.1 and BQ.1.1. So BQ.1 and 1.1, those directly descended from BA5. And the belief is if you had BA5 before, you're probably protected from BA from BQ1 and BQ1.1. And maybe if you had BA4, you're protected, but BA2, you're probably not. So since it's been six and a half months, and since I may have had BA2, it was about 50-50 whether I had BA2 or BA4, then I might be vulnerable again. And I was spending time in card rooms a lot, including last week. So my problems all began the day after I had been to the bike, which if this was all related, including the stomach problems, if it wasn't related to the food, then it probably wasn't from the bike because it wouldn't have shown symptoms that fast. But whatever, it, it doesn't really matter where I caught it. Question was, did I have COVID? So I took a COVID test and what result did I get? Was it positive? Was it negative? It was kind of neither. The blue control line appeared very dark as it was supposed to, but then I got a very, 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 very faint pink line. The test instructions said that a faint pink line still counts as being COVID positive. But I mean, it was so faint that I couldn't tell if it just appeared because of a testing error. I mean, it was super, super faint. So maybe just from the thing getting wet with the solution, it makes that super faint line. I wasn't sure. I mean, it's the faintest line you could imagine. I tried to take a picture of it. People, people couldn't even see in the picture. But it definitely was there. Like I, I had Benjamin's mom look at it. Ben looked at it. It was, it was definitely a line, but it was, it was super, super, super faint. So that didn't tell me either way. And at the time, I thought, okay, it's probably greater than 50%. I do have COVID, but probably not much greater than 50%. It's probably close to 50-50. But then yesterday, as I said, I felt substantially better. So I thought, okay, it probably isn't COVID. I let my guard down. Well, then today, I woke up and I had the diarrhea all over again. Not quite as bad, but I had it, and then the ear thing started to return, but not as bad. And so it's kind of like a lighter version of everything I had before. That's where I stand right now. I haven't gotten the results back. I took a PCR drive through COVID test at a drugstore yesterday. I'll probably get the results early tomorrow. So right now, I don't know. Maybe I'm sitting here with COVID and don't realize it. If it is COVID, then it's very mild again as far as COVID goes, but it's, it's been frustrating. It's been annoying. And that ear thing was the worst part. The ear thing, when I had that one side pressure, it was just driving me nuts. I'm like, if I have to be stuck with this for a long time, I'm going to go crazy. Anyway, right now it's about equal on both sides, so I'm not going crazy and I can do this show. However, I am kind of low energy and I don't know if I have it in me to do this the whole long thing. So we'll get going with the other topics in a second and hopefully I'll be able to get through them all. May have to take more than one break. 
Just bear with me. We'll move on to talk about our first topic. Poker Fraud Alert is not a forum or a radio show that has a young audience. I don't seem to appeal that much to most young people. I don't seem to attract a young audience. I don't attract young followers. And it kind of makes sense because I'm not a young guy, close to 51 years old. I'm not someone who acts young for my age. In fact, I talk about a lot of stuff from a long time ago that you'd have to be older to relate to. So I understand why this show and even the forum has kind of an older middle-aged crowd. The demographics for this show is overwhelmingly 35 to 65-year-old men. And I'm right in the middle of that, if you think about it. Well, we do have some listeners that are over 65. In fact, we have some who are a good deal over 65. And and an unfortunate reality of that, when we have a long-running show, we're getting close to 11 years. We've been going for almost 11 years. These listeners get older. And because we have thousands of them, and because a certain subset is old, some of them are going to pass away. Then we've had some pass away also who aren't that old. The oldest listener I knew of was a guy who went by I Am Greek, and his name was Bob. I know his full name because he sent me things before, and I've sent him free roll winnings before. So I know his name, but he wasn't public about it. But I'll tell you his first name was Bob. And he was born in 1943, I believe, making him the oldest active listener to this show. If you are older than 79, please let me know. If you're in your 80s and you're listening to Poker Fraud Alert, let me know. I don't think we have anyone that age, but we might. But as far as I knew, he was the oldest one. Of course, knowing that, I was aware that at some point there might be the day where I would find out that I Am Grieve was no longer with us and we'd have a little memorial for him and all that. Well, I noticed this month that I Am Greek had not been in the chat room. He hadn't been on the forum. He'd just been kind of missing. So I went and looked it up and saw he hadn't logged in since July 13th. And of course, you know where my mind went, that a guy who's 79 years old, very frequent listener to the show. He listened every single week. He was frequently in the chat room. What he used to do in the chat, he would type, OPA, O-P-A, exclamation mark, which is like a, a Greek exclamation that was kind of his trademark. That's what he was been known for the whole time. And he made friends on Poker Fraud Alert over the years. But as far as I know, nobody met him in person. And nobody even spoke to him on the phone. But he is a real person. His name really is Bob. As I said, I've sent things to him before that are under his real name. So I know exactly who he is and where he lives. He gave this to me voluntarily. But I've never met him nor has anyone that I know of. I knew he had a wife whose name was Angie, and I knew she listened at least sometimes. In fact, she contributed a prize that we gave away at one point, which were some free nights at Paris, Las Vegas that she had won, and they actually were transferable, so she gave them away as a prize, which was nice. I also sometimes sent her the free roll money. Like one time his account was having a problem, and he had me send it to her. At the very least, she was aware of the show, and he had said she listened sometimes, so I didn't think she was the avid listener like I Am Greek was, Bob, but I figured that she probably listened sometimes too, 
being the other half of this very long time married couple. They'd been together for well over 50 years. Well, with I Am Creek missing since July, I thought there was a fairly good chance he had passed away. So immediately I started Googling for his name and the location and the word obituary. Well, I didn't find one. There was no obituary for Bob and that last name. And from everything I could see, he was still alive. However, I did notice that someone did pass away in July. And that was his wife, Angie. His wife, Angie, passed away four days after I Am Greek's last login. So I felt really bad for the guy. I said, oh, I see what happened here. He's been with this woman his almost a whole adult life, I think since they were both in their early 20s. And I know they were very, very close. They weren't just you know, two married people who grew apart or anything. They were, they were very close. And I figured that it was probably so traumatizing to lose Angie that Bob probably lost the interest in Poker Fraud Alert, that he logged in last time in mid-July, and then four days later, his wife passed away, and he just lost any desire to come back here, not because of anything we did here, but because he probably was too depressed and didn't really have the motivation to participate in anything frivolous like Poker Fraud Alert. Understandable. I felt very bad for him. I knew he's been listening every week, and I said, okay, well, for him to just completely disappear on us, he must really, really, really be depressed, and it must be lasting very long because here we are in December, five months later, and he's not back. So that seemed like the obvious explanation. It wasn't a coincidence that his last login was four days before Angie died. So I contacted a Poker Fraud Alert member who I knew was friends with him, and I asked them if they had heard anything, and they said, well, I haven't heard from I Am Greek in several months either. So I gave this person my theory, and they agreed. So they said, well, I have I Am Greek's phone number. I'll text him and see what I get back. Hopefully he's still alive and will respond to us. Now, I thought it was likely he was still alive because there was an obituary that was uh, pretty detailed about Angie, yet there was no obituary about him. So I figured if they were going to have one for her, they were probably going to have one for him if he passed as well. So I figured he was still alive, just very depressed. So this person who's been kind of like online friends with I Am Greek texted him, and this person got back a very unexpected response. The response was from a family member, and the family member said, I'm sorry, but the person that you were texting died back in July. And they gave the date, and the date exactly matched the date that Angie passed away. Isn't that weird? Isn't that strange? So this person is texting the number that they had talked to I Am Greek before. And it turned out it was the phone number of Angie. So much that the relative who had control of the phone let this person know that the owner of this phone number passed away in July and gave the exact date in July, which matched the date that Angie passed away. So this person came back to me and told me and said, you know what? This is going to seem weird, but I think maybe I Am Greek was really Angie all this time. It wasn't Bob. I think I Am Greek was actually a woman. I knew Bob existed. Bob really was Angie's husband. 
But what if the person on the account all this time was Angie? What if the listener every single week was Angie? What if the person who had befriended people from the site was really Angie and had just, for whatever reason, decided to claim she was her husband? And maybe her husband was the casual listener who occasionally would hear it or receive money won in the free roll. I thought that would be really strange if true. I told the guy to get more clarification to make sure that this was only Angie's phone number. So he texted this person back at I am Greek's number, whoever's talking to him. And this person confirmed, yes, this was only Angie's number. And Bob is still alive. And then they said, we'll have Bob text you. And Bob texted this person and said, hi, this is Bob. How can I help you? And didn't seem to know who this person was. It seems pretty likely to me at this point that I am Greek was actually a woman. I don't know why I am Greek chose to claim to be the male half of the couple when it was really the female half. One other detail that supports that theory is that I saw Angie's maiden name in the obituary, and it was Greek. And yet her married name, which of course is Bob's name, was Irish. And that was always weird to me that someone named I am Greek had an Irish last name. But then I see her maiden name was Greek. So it kind of seems to me that the Greek one was Angie and that Bob was not Greek. Now, maybe he was Greek on his mother's side, but definitely the last name is Irish. So I'm not sure why Angie did this, if this really is the case, which I think is pretty likely given all the evidence here. And keep in mind, no one has gone on the I Am Greek account or communicated with anyone as I Am Greek since four days before Angie's death. So I don't know why she would have said she was her husband, but I thought about it and I thought, you know what? Maybe she just thought that people in poker would show her less respect as an older woman. Maybe she thought that... uh, She'd be treated differently if she wasn't one of the boys. It mentioned in her obituary that she loved playing poker. And I looked her up on Hendon Mob, and I did find she had a cash at an event during the World Series of Poker in 2017. It wasn't a World Series event, but it was an event that took place at the time of the World Series of Poker. And I was there. I did also take note of the fact that I Am Greek never told me that he was going to be there, even though I was there, which, of course, he doesn't have to meet me, but I would have thought he would have wanted to after all the years listening to me, but he showed no desire to do that, so it would also strengthen that it really wasn't uh, who we thought it was, and, of course, you know, she's, if she's trying to keep that secret, she's, <laughs> she's not going to have, send a, her husband to meet me who barely listens. It's, it's very possible she did this because she felt that she did not want to be looked at differently because of being a woman, especially maybe because she's an elderly woman and thought maybe people wouldn't show her respect, which, which isn't true. It's the opposite. You know, I would have thought it was cool that we had a older female listener who loved to play poker and who was dedicated to listening to this show. And she got along with a lot of people here. So that would not have upset anyone if she just came forward one day and said, hey, you know what? I'm actually female. And yes, my husband knows about the show, but I'm the main listener. You know, that, I would have said, oh, cool. That's, that's, it was unexpected, but uh, yeah, that, that's, that's cool. Like, I, I wouldn't have had a problem. Don't, none of, 
the people would have had a problem with this. So I can't be sure, but I think it's likely that I Am Greek has passed away. The person who was supposed to be is still alive, this person Bob. His wife Angie, who I believe was the one on that account and listening to this show every week, passed away in July. It's one of these things where I wish that I got to talk to her about that, if that's what the case was. That's the sad part here. It's kind of an interesting story. It's got this interesting twist to it. If I just said, oh, we have a very elderly listener who passed away at the age of 79, then it would be something I would mention for sure, because this is a long-time listener that a lot of people liked, and I liked. Beyond that, it wouldn't have been a story. But here, the listener we thought was a 79-year-old guy was really a 77-year-old woman, it appears. And that the 79-year-old guy was her husband. So that's too bad. Wish she just told me the truth. Didn't really matter. Like, she didn't hurt anyone by telling this uh, little white lie about her identity. Just one of these things, like, I would have liked to say, hey, you know, no big deal. Just be yourself. We're all happy to accept you here. Anyway, rest in peace, Angie, and what was probably I Am Greek, and we will miss you. And if somehow you can hear this, somehow you can listen to me, just know that I wish you could have come forward while you're still here with us. All right, so let's get to a less depressing topic. Huster Casino Live released their report on the investigation they were doing. This whole investigation was something that always bothered me. And keep in mind, as you've probably heard from my extensive coverage of that whole Robbie Jade Lou situation and my coverage of other Hustler Casino Live issues, that I'm not anti-Hustler Casino Live. I'm not anti-Ryan Feldman. I'm not anti-Nick Fertucci. We had Ryan Feldman on this show last year. I've never fought or argued with either of them. I have no problem with Hustler Casino Live. I do think that they've done some very innovative things and... In many ways, the show is run very well from an entertainment perspective. So I respect a lot of what they're doing. Because Hustler Casino Live has a lot of haters now. There's a lot of people who will try to find a reason to bash them. Some of them hate Nick Vertucci and, by extension, hate Hustler Casino Live. Some just think it's full of cheating and they're bashing them for that reason. There's a lot of different reasons that people hate them. And then there's many people who still love them. So it's a mixed bag right now about the public opinion of Hustler Casino Live. It still gets good ratings. I'm talking about just the perception of it. But I'm not one of these haters. But I'm also not one of these blinded fanboys. So I've been telling it like it is, at least the way I see it, about Hustler Casino Live ever since it started. And it's one of these things when I believe that they're in the right, when I believe that they're being unfairly vilified, I'll say so. And that's what I just did on the last show, when people were giving them such a hard time over the whole thing with sashimi showing that fake breast, and some people are going, oh, that's so awful, oh, this is driving women out of poker, blah, 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 and I'm like, no, come on, guys, that's, that's not true. It was a stupid prank, and that's it. Stop making a big deal out of this, and stop blaming Hustler Casino Live for this. So I was on their side about that, as you heard in the last episode. However, I've been critical of them 
when I felt they deserved criticism, including in the entire Jack 4 offsuit debacle. I'm still in the middle regarding whether I believe there was cheating in that hand or not. I'm also still in the middle regarding cheating at Hustler Casino Live in general in hands other than that and by players other than Robbie Jade Lou or that guy Rip. I'm still kind of iffy on the whole thing of how secure that stream really was. And there's more people who have a polarized view of it than people like me. There's a lot of people who think that Hustler Casino Live is no good and there's rampant cheating and the whole thing's shady, blah, blah, blah. And then there's others who think the whole thing is just paranoia and everything's great. And I'm in the middle. But being in the middle for the purposes of doing this show is actually good because it makes it easier for me to be objective. I try to be objective with everything, even people and things I hate, but I don't hate them. I don't hate them, I don't love them. So it puts me in the perfect position to really, really be objective. But as far as this investigation is concerned, I felt that there was a major, major flaw to the investigation from the start. And amazingly, a lot of people don't agree with me on this. And a lot of people are not required to agree with me, but I think it is stupid in this case not to agree with me. And that is... You cannot have an investigation of something that happened on your stream when you are the head of that investigation. You can do your own investigating, and you should, but if you're going to have an investigation that is meant to be presented to the public, that is meant to assure the public that everything's okay, you can't be the one at the head of it because you, who would be the owner or one of the owners of Hustler Casino Live, would be considered very biased. It would be like, let's say I was accused of cheating. And I said, okay, no problem. You know what I'll do, guys? I'll have my mother head up an investigation of whether or not I was cheating. And they'll go, what? Your mother? Your mother can't be unbiased in an investigation of you. And I'll say, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. My mom will hire some of the best firms to help her investigate me. Would that make you feel good? Or would you still say, why the hell is your mother investigating you? Or what if I was investigating me? What if I was at the head of investigating whether I was cheating, but I was hiring very respectable firms to help me with it? Would you trust that investigation, even if the firms are very respectable? If you would trust that investigation, you would be a fool. Because the head of an investigation should never be someone who is being investigated. It's a huge, huge conflict of interest. So the only way you can have an investigation that will stand up to public scrutiny and that is of any value to the public, if the whole point of investigating is to present it to the public, then it has to be completely 100% independent. That means that either somebody else is paying the bills for it and running it, or if you're paying the bills, that it is being run by somebody who is completely neutral and has the full authorization to present whatever they find good or bad. For example, someone like me. It wouldn't have to be me, but someone like me. Let's say I was put in charge. Let's say that Hustler Casino Live was paying the bills as far as hiring the law firm and the uh, data uh, and tech firm that was going to be investigating that side of it. And uh, they also hired a PI involved with this. So let's say all of that was still hired and 
Hustler Casino Live was paying the bills. However, none of them were answering to Hustler Casino Live. They were simply paying for it. All of them were answering to me. And then I would decide what to tell the public. I would decide from what they find in their investigations how I feel about it. And I would direct the investigation in which ways it would be done, what I wanted to see done. And of course, they could have their input as well, these companies, but I would be at the head of the whole thing. I would be a perfect person for this because I would have the credibility for both my investigative work in the past in uh, poker and gambling matters and the fact that I've been in the community in good standing for more than two decades. The fact that I am not known to be someone who is close to the Hustler Casino Live people nor against them. So I'd be a perfect person to head this up. And I think you know if I headed this up that I would present the full and complete facts to you guys of what was found or not found and then give you a full unbiased conclusion. But of course, I was not in charge, nor was someone else in charge similar to me. The people in charge were those who own Hustler Casino Live, Nick Vertucci and Ryan Feldman. And you cannot have an unbiased and fair investigation if that's who's in charge of it. It doesn't matter how reputable the firms that they hire are to assist them. If they're at the top of the whole thing, then it's not going to be an unbiased investigation, and therefore it is useless for public consumption. It may be useful for their own purposes. Maybe they will learn how to keep it more secure in the future. Maybe they will learn other things that are valuable to them. I'm not saying they shouldn't run their own investigation. I'm saying that if they want an investigation that is going to have any kind of credibility with the public, then they need to have somebody else in charge of the whole thing. And they did not. And I've known this for a long time. This is not a shock. I didn't just learn this. I knew this from the start. And I was urging them to do otherwise. I had a conversation with Nick in DM. I'm not going to read it to you because it's private, but I had a conversation with him back in early October where I told him exactly this. So I'm not just spouting on this show and I'm afraid to say it to Nick directly or to Ryan directly. I said it to Nick directly. I told him that if he wants this investigation to be taken seriously, that no offense to him, it needs to be run by somebody else. And he said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. And then he didn't choose to heed that advice, which is his right. It's his show along with Ryan, I don't have any kind of ownership in it, so I have no say. But I don't think that was a very smart decision. Kills the credibility of the investigation, except with people who are not very good critical thinkers. And the trap people fall into is the belief that if experts are involved, that it must be something legitimate. This has been a big problem, by the way in the last several years, is, is the deference to experts. Experts are useful, of course. You, you'd much rather have an expert analyzing something than someone who doesn't know what they're doing or someone with no experience in what is being examined. I'm talking about in general, not just this uh, Hustler Casino Live thing. But also you have to look at the experts and if they have any kind of pre-existing biases and who they might be pissing off if they say something that is not favorable. How independent are they really? These are important questions as well. It's not just, is this person qualified? It's, are they qualified and are they independent? And are they unbiased? And if you can't say yes to both of those other two questions, then the expert is someone you can't trust, unfortunately. 
And I've been saying this about COVID, and I've said this about a lot of other things along these lines for the last few years. And you guys know I'm not one of these uh, COVID deniers or anti-vax people. I got four shots of the vaccine, so that would prove that I'm not anti-vax or I wouldn't put it in my own body. I'm not going to get into that whole discussion. But at the same time, I did understand the right skepticism of so-called experts who are very clearly on one side of the aisle. And I've said that about a lot of things to that extent. So this is not political at all, of course, the Hustler Casino Live matter. But just because they hired experts doesn't mean anything if these experts are all answering to the Hustler Casino Live owners. So what did this report end up saying? If you remember, I predicted that the report was going to say that there was no evidence of cheating found, that there was no real gotcha security hole there, that their setup was basically secure, but they did have some flaws which they can improve upon in the future. So what did the report say? Pretty much exactly that. (laughs) And that's not surprising at all. In fact, I would have been shocked if it was the other way. I would have been shocked if the report was damning about Hustler Casino Live that was full of terrible security holes and that how could they have run a stream like this, that this is just a a scandal waiting to happen. Like, There's no way that was going to come out. There's no way it was going to be written that way. Nor did I expect it was going to be written completely exonerating Hustler Casino Live security because that would be an insult to everyone's intelligence. For example, $15,000 was stolen off of Robbie J's Lewis ship stack by that guy, Brian Sagbixall, on the same night this happened. So obviously the security wasn't very good since he was a, an employee there and he stole it there like right on camera and they probably wouldn't have caught it had they not gone back and reviewed everything from that hand that night. So obviously the security there left a lot to be desired. So they couldn't just say, okay, everything's wonderful. We'll, we're going to change nothing. So, of course, there had to be recommendations that were going to show how they're going to do better in the future, while at the same time saying, hey, look, there wasn't any cheating, but we're going to make this even stronger so it really can't happen next time. I knew that's the way it was going to go, and that's basically the way it went. You can find this report at hustlercasinolive.com slash J4, you know, like Jack 4, J4 report. HustlerCasinoLive.com slash J4Report, and the four is a number four. So it starts off saying, Report of the Independent Investigation of the Alleged Wrongdoing in Lou Adelstein Hand and Audit of Security of Hustler Casino Livestream, commissioned by High Stakes Poker Productions, LLC, which is the ownership of Hustler Casino Live. Basically, that's the LLC of Feldman and Vertucci. So right there it says it's commissioned by the owners of the stream which, as I said, is a horrible idea. And then here are the three firms involved. Bulletproof, a GLI company. They're the main ones who put this together. I'll explain them shortly. The Solution Group, Legal and Private Investigation. So it's basically a PI firm. And Shepard, Mullen, Richter, and Hampton LLP. So that's a law firm. So that's the three entities that got together to put this report together. And mostly it was Bulletproof. I'm not going to read you this whole thing because it's fairly long, but I'm going to go over some highlights. You can go read the whole thing if you want. But here's the highlights of the whole thing, and I will give you my take on it. 
Here's their conclusions, and I'm going to read you their words because they actually had conclusions laid out. Number one, the Deckmate shuffling machine, that is the shuffling machine that's used in the table to shuffle the cards, is secure and cannot be compromised. Because they do have an automatic shuffler embedded in the table. And some had a theory that maybe someone hacked it, which isn't a wild conspiracy theory because... Some deckmate machines can be modified to shuffle the cards the way the casino wants. So you can, they can actually rig the shuffle through the deckmate machine. And in fact, there are some allegations that some Indian casinos do exactly that. You can't buy a deckmate with that feature, but you can buy one and then modify it to do that if you have the technical know-how. So there's been long suspicion of these deck bait machines and cheating that is done through them by shady casinos. They can't really be hacked by outsiders, but they can be hacked by insiders. So is that possible what happened here? No. Why? Because this is a deckmate one, and the deckmate one had no ability to see the cards. All they could do is shuffle cards. The deckmate two was substantially more advanced and could actually see every card it's shuffling and then arrange them. And in fact, the deckmate two comes with a feature to where it can arrange it in new deck order of like ace two three four five six seven eight nine ten jack queen king ace or like uh, that they would it could arrange the cards like that no matter how they're put into it. So that shows obviously it could see the cards. So they could be hacked to then arrange them any way that the casino owner wants, but only if the hardware has the capability. And Bulletproof found by looking at the Deckmate shuffling machine that it was a Deckmate 1 model, and therefore it cannot read the cards. So provided that they didn't quickly swap out the Deckmate 2 with Deckmate 1, which I don't think they did, then it is true. I agree with this conclusion that the Deckmate 1 model simply cannot read the cards and therefore cannot have been compromised. Also, the compromising would have had to happen on the inside with someone with uh, access to it. But that's moot anyway because Deckmate 1 can't do that. Conclusion number two. It's extremely unlikely that any card reading device could have been stored in a water bottle or other object on the table. The reason the water bottle is mentioned is because Robbie had a water bottle sitting there the entire time, and some people theorized that maybe this was some kind of receiver or some kind of signaling device to her that was disguised as a water bottle. They had concluded that such a device that could have read the cards in any way, because these are RFID cards that send out uh, signals, that any device that could have done this could not have been hidden in a water bottle or other object on the table. So... They went through some technical discussion of that. I won't bother to read it to you, but I'll just tell you I agree it's probably true. Number three, RFID technology used by Hustler Casino Live is safe. Any device that interpreted a signal would receive a serial number and not the actual card. So I mostly agree with that as well. What they're talking about here is that the RFID signals are not sending out like three of clubs. It's sending out just some long serial number, which even if you could hack the signal and receive it, you couldn't do anything with that number because you wouldn't know what it represents. So you would actually have to have a list of the numbers and what cards they represent in order to do anything with it. So this would either 
require a massive insider here with access to that, or it just couldn't be useful because of the serial numbers, they uh, wouldn't give you enough information. That's also probably true. Number four, radio communication to the on-floor camera operator is not an issue. So they're talking about the person who's operating the camera and that from their findings, it, it doesn't appear that he was getting any kind of communication. And I won't get into the whole discussion, but I think that's probably true as well. Number five, the poker GFX system, which was the one that put the graphics on the screen, like what cards everyone has, was free and clear of malware or any other installed programs or systems that could intercept hands. And that's also probably true. Now, yes, this could have been cleared off by the perpetrator by the time Bulletproof got to it, which is a big problem for all of this, by the way. Even if an independent person did direct this investigation, someone like me, unless it was done immediately after it occurred and nothing was touched or modified, you could not fully trust anything that was concluded because things could have been switched around. So, for example, a Deckmate 2 could have been swapped out as a Deckmate 1 or any kind of Trojan program that was to intercept the stuff that was being received over on the system that put the graphics up. If that was compromised in some way, that that could have been uninstalled and it could have been written over to where there'd be no trace of it. So these are all things that could have been done in the interim before Bulletproof even got there to take a look at it. So that's another reason this investigation was no good. But anyway, as stated, I do believe that they found that to be clean. Bulletproof seems to believe that if cheating did occur, that it was probably not a sophisticated, technically-based attack. And you know what? I think I agree with that. I don't think there was some person that was sitting there with some kind of RFID scanner and that they were able to decode the serial numbers and then they were able to signal some other player at the table like Robbie or anyone else and that the whole time all the staff is doing their best and they're all very honest but they're all in the dark. I don't think that's what happened. If there was any cheating, I don't think that's what happened. I don't think there was a stranger there who had breached the system that was using it to cheat. However, I do believe there's a possibility there was cheating there that was facilitated by an insider. And we'll get to that. But here's what they wrote. While no direct evidence of cheating was found, Bulletproof found that cheating with the September 29th setup was possible. Most methods of cheating the system can be avoided by tightening security in the broadcast booth, which High Stakes Poker Productions has done. They're talking about since then. With the production booth secured, then all the other methods such as electronic signaling become less relevant. This is securing at the most important level first, which is the source. Afterwards, additional security can be applied all the way down to the player level. Okay, I agree with that. I agree with that statement for sure. That the way their setup was on September 29th, there were some very basic flaws that even with the best technology in the world for everything else it still wasn't that hard to cheat. And therein lies the problem. Cheating was possible because they hired at least one shitty person with access to the booth, and he was able to see the whole cards. And I'm not guessing here. We know who it is. I don't know if he cheated, but we know he stole. And that is Brian Sagbixall, who was an employee there from the start. 
He had access to the control booth. He had access to see the whole cards in the control booth. And he was even said to have moved a file cabinet, which would have given him a better view of the screen with the whole cards. He was caught on camera stealing $15,000 from Robbie Jade Lou's stack on the night of all this pandemonium, September 29th. He also admitted it when they questioned him. And there is presently a warrant out for his arrest, which I'm going to read you a little bit later, from the Gardena Police Department over this matter. So 100% the guy stole. 100% the guy stole $15,000 off of Robbie J. Lou's stack. And he was a Hustler Casino Live employee with access to the control room to see the whole cards. That's it. Game over. All the other stuff doesn't matter. All the other security they had going on does not matter when you have a guy like Brian Sagbixall who is working there, who has access to the whole cards, who was willing to steal. And it wasn't hard to predict that that would happen. Why? Because Brian Sagbixall had a criminal history. He had a felony on his record. And not that long ago. He's a young guy. It's not like a guy with felony 30 years ago. This is a guy with a felony from 2017. So Hustler Casino Live did not do background checks or even Google checks on its employees with access to the sensitive information, meaning whole cards, which is crazy. It's crazy. Forget a detailed background check. How about just Googling their name? How about that? Because when the whole story about Brian stealing the chips came out, all it took was someone going to Google and entering Brian Sagbicasal's name, and you see all the information about the crimes that he had committed. It wasn't hard to find, so they didn't even Google him. He was caught stealing $15,000 on that same night, September 29th. He had access to the whole cards, and all he had to do if he wanted to cheat was find a willing accomplice at the table to cheat with him, and then find a way to signal them during big hands. Not every hand, but during big hands. That's it. At that point, everything else high-tech becomes mostly moot. Let's say I buy the best security system in the world for my home. Let's say I even go one step further than that, and I hire an armed guard to sit outside my house 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and make sure that nobody gets in who doesn't have permission to come into my house. Sounds pretty secure, right? I have the world's best security system, and I have an armed guard sitting outside 24-7, watching like a hawk to make sure that nobody sneaks into my house. Sounds pretty secure, right? Well, what if then I bring a prostitute to my house, who of course has permission to come in with me, so the guard's not going to stop her, and I fall asleep with my valuables, maybe cash, maybe other things of value, just sitting right out. And then she swipes it all, puts it in her purse, and strolls out. And, of course, the guard doesn't think anything of it because he just thinks she's leaving. Well, that would mean that despite all that security and that guard, that I was stolen from anyway. Why? Because I left the door wide open, basically. I walked someone into the house who had the intention to steal from me and went to sleep with my valuables right out there in the open, and all that person had to do was collect them and walk out. So all the other security measures would be moot. That's what happened here. They had someone who could see the whole cards that was a felon from 2017, a felon. And we even see he hasn't changed because he stole that same night. 
He stole $15,000 on that same night. That's it. Game over. The rest of the discussion is pretty moot as far as the security of that stream because they had no security in their people. They didn't bother to research who they gave this access to. And that was a tremendous hole, and I still don't understand how this happened. The question is not, would Brian cheat? If he's willing to steal, he's willing to cheat. I've never known a thief who says, oh, no, I'm drawing the line at cheating. That I won't do. I will steal. I just won't cheat. Never. You will never know a thief like that. So for sure, he would cheat, and it's very lucrative to do so on that high-stakes stream. So of course he would cheat if he can get away with it. And it only requires two things, as I said. A person to do it with, who's in the game, and a way to communicate with that person when they're in a big spot. That's all he needs. And it's not that hard to do. Once you have a person who's willing to do it, which shouldn't be that hard, because it's not like they have the same eight people playing there every week. And these people are kind of hard to even approach about this. They, they have a revolving door of people coming into that game many of whom aren't known to the poker world, just people who are willing to show up and be interesting and put a lot of money on the table. That's how Robbie and Rip got in, essentially, through a recommendation from Darren Atterbury, who we had on this show. So it didn't have to be Robbie and Rip. It could be anybody over the year's time that he worked there. I'm talking about Brian. Anybody that he got into that game and communicated with, he could have helped them cheat. And it didn't have to be every hand. It could just be one or two big hands, which would make all the difference. So no company hired can determine whether Brian Sagbixall did this. The investigation was mostly an attempt to reassure the public and to promise that they're going to do better and move on. There's no way they can tell if Brian was cheating with someone there. Because he definitely would have. And he had the access to. And we know he had the motivation to because he stole money. It's only a question of whether he did get an accomplice into the game and whether he found an effective way to communicate with them. And then, of course, you can ask, well, is it possible that Robbie Jade Lou was that person? Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't, we'll never know. But even if she wasn't, he was working there 13 months, it could have been one of many, many, many people. Even if Robbie was completely clean here, which he might have been, it's very possible that others who played on the stream maybe not even regular players, were not clean. And we're getting signals from Brian. So that's why this whole investigation is not very exciting. That's why it doesn't tell us much, because there's no way to investigate whether Brian did this, short of Brian stating something about it, or short of some evidence being left behind that this was done, which usually there won't be. There is also a hole in the whole report and this is pointed out by Positive Variance, who is a forum poster. Positive Variance pointed out that they didn't mention anything about Nick playing in the game himself, Nick Vertucci, which is a whole additional level of both bad optics and a conflict of interest, if you think about it. I find it baffling that this supposed independent firm, Bulletproof, was looking into this entire thing, and they, I'm sure, would have seen that Nick was one of the biggest winners in the game. I'm talking about overall, not that night. And somehow that was not even in the recommendations for improvement. They mentioned nothing. Like, hey, it probably isn't a good idea to have one of the owners play in the game. And I'm not saying Nick cheated. I'm just saying it's a very bad look. 
you should never have the owner in a streamed game with whole cards in the game. I don't even have to explain why. I'm sure you know. Whether the person cheats or not, you should not have him in there. I wouldn't cheat, but if I owned something like this, I would not play in the game. It's just not a good look. Then there was the conclusion paragraph. And this one stuck out to a lot of people like a sore thumb, especially those that were already critical or skeptical of Hustler Casino Live. The conclusion paragraph was pretty obnoxious. And it shows you that this was not really an independent report. Here's the conclusion paragraph. The very, very final paragraph in the whole thing. When the integrity and security of its live stream poker game was called into question on September 29th, high stakes poker productions went to great lengths to determine if any evidence of wrongdoing could be found. High stakes poker productions has spent more than $100,000 and significant hours of its time to conduct a thorough investigation. Based on the findings of cybersecurity experts, interviews with players, employees, and third parties, a review of video of hands played on the show, and surveillance video inside the casino and parking lot, no conclusive evidence of wrongdoing related to the September 29th hand was found. That does not mean that no wrongdoing occurred. It means that the investigation failed to find credible evidence of wrongdoing. The extensive review of high-stakes poker productions technology, equipment, and protocols did not uncover or did this again the extensive review of Hustler Casino Live's technology equipment and protocols did uncover improvements that could be implemented to improve the security of the Hustler Casino Live stream in conclusion in consultation with its experts and legal counsel, High Stakes Poker Productions has made numerous improvements that will increase the safety and security of its stream, and here comes the best part, and ensure that Hustler Casino Live can continue to provide safe, secure, and entertaining poker free of charge for the world to enjoy. Yeah. Does that sound like an unbiased conclusion? That final sentence? Does that sound like something unbiased? Hustler Casino Live can continue to provide safe, secure, and entertaining poker free of charge for the world to enjoy? That sounds like an advertisement. How is a neutral firm putting out language like that? Why would they talk about poker free of charge for the world to enjoy and call it entertaining? Entertaining? Were they hired to judge whether or not the stream is entertaining? I'll grant that it's entertaining sometimes, but that's not their job. That's not what this report was supposed to be about. And they're not supposed to conclude with something that seems like it's directly out of a marketing pitch. If this were a completely independent investigation, it would simply say at the end, Hustler Casino Live has been made aware of the improvements suggested regarding securing the stream further and they have taken all of these recommendations and implemented them, and it is our opinion that Hustler Casino Live is substantially safer to play poker on than it was on September 29th, and we do not foresee other incidents in the future. That would be fine to write. Not saying that they can continue to provide safe, secure, and entertaining poker free of charge for the world to enjoy. (laughs) But why would they have written this? Why would this bulletproof company have written such a thing? Are they not a reputable firm? Well, from everything I can see, they are. 
So why would they have written this? Why would they have written a line that seems like a marketing pitch? Well, again, you have to go to who was in charge of this, which was Hustler Casino Live, and you have to go to what Bulletproof is normally hired for. So what is Bulletproof? What do they normally do? We know what they did here, but what do they normally do? That's important because you can look at their credentials and say they're good, but what are they usually hired for? What is their business model? You can find this on their website and you will see that they are not an investigations firm. They're actually an IT services and cybersecurity firm. They're called Bulletproof GLI. They are designed to make the customer happy. And in this case, the customer was Hustler Casino Live slash High Stakes Poker Productions. Same thing. So I don't feel that they lied, but it's obvious that they were careful not to make anyone look too bad, such as, for example, the omission of the concern of Nick playing on stream. They don't want to make Nick potentially look bad, so they just didn't mention it. Because again, these are not independent investigators that were hired. This is a IT services and cybersecurity firm that are supposed to leave the customer walking away happy. You hire them when you need your setup analyzed and you want recommendations to make it more secure. And they do different things, but it's all along those lines. They are not a firm that is going to come and say, oh yeah, uh, we investigated and yeah, you were probably cheating on your own stream. Or yeah, your setup was complete garbage and we're going to let the world know it. They're not going to do that because they're being hired by Hustler Casino Live to look at everything and then come back with recommendations, not to come back with evidence to incriminate them, make them look bad or ruin their business. So nothing against Bulletproof GLI. And from what I've seen looking into them, they seem like they're reputable. But Hustler Casino Live was the customer. We, the public, were not the customer. And that's where it's very, very important. And that last sentence there says it all. Because that last sentence showed that what happened was Hustler Casino Live must have gone to them and said, hey, can you look at this? Can you give us an honest assessment of what's going on? And if you don't find any direct proof that there was cheating, which they probably knew that would not be found, then can you put something in there that makes people feel better about playing here in the future, or at least watching the show in the future. Don't lie, but if you don't find anything that proves there was cheating going on, can you kind of put out the message that it's safe here? So what does Bulletproof do? They went through the whole thing. They came up with no conclusive proof that cheating happened because it's pretty much impossible to find such proof. And they say, okay, yeah, we'll put out a ringing endorsement. And that's what you get. So that's why this investigation is worthless. But that still leaves us with a question. Let's say that Brian did have someone that he had at the table that was willing to cheat with him. Maybe it was Robbie. Maybe it was somebody else. Maybe it even occurred on a different day. Maybe there was no cheating on that day and there was cheating on a different day. We know Brian would have loved to do it. We just don't know if he found a partner. But if he did find a partner, whoever it might have been, how could he have communicated with them? Because that's not trivial. Because remember, everybody is forced to give up their cell phone when they enter the area. 
So no one can have their phone at the table. So there goes the communicating via cell phone. So then how was this accomplice, if one existed, how were they communicating with Brian Sagbixall if there was cheating happening? Well, Bulletproof actually looked into this. They said that it was possible that someone from the control booth, or at least nearby, could have communicated with someone at the table. And they came up with a theory or just an idea. I wouldn't say so much a theory, but more of an idea of a type of device that could have been used. There is a device that's known as a TENS unit, T-E-N-S in all capital letters. And this is a device that you wear on your body. And it's not really a signaling device. It's more of a therapeutic device. But of course, it can be used as a signaling device because it vibrates and you can control it remotely. So if there is some sort of remote control, which there is with these devices, and if the devices will vibrate, then of course, it could be used as a signaling device where the person receiving the signal wouldn't need to look at anything. So that's very valuable because provided the vibration is not too loud, then you could signal someone without any kind of light coming on or without any kind of noise coming in and they don't have to wear wear any kind of earpiece. So this would be a perfect device to use for such a cheating scheme. So they thought of this. They didn't find any evidence that one was used, but they thought of this as a possibility of a device that might have been used in such a scheme. So they actually tested this bulletproof. So what they did is they got one of these TENS units, which was advertised to work up to nine meters away. That is the remote and the unit itself could be nine meters apart and still work according to the advertisement. In their testing of the device, they found it actually reached 10 meters. It did better than the ad. However, if there were obstructions, as there are in the Hustler Casino setup, such as walls or doors or whatever, that it would only go about five to seven meters before losing signal. Now, remember, I'm talking about meters here, not feet. Seven meters is 23 feet, and it would give the signaler a lot of room. Now, I'm not sure how far the control booth is from the Hustler Casino live table, but it doesn't even matter because it admitted in the report that there were poor controls as to who could enter and leave the booth, that people could walk in and out of the booth basically at will. So Brian or another cheater could have easily walked out of the room if they wanted to signal someone during a big hand. And remember, big pot, no limit hands don't play quickly. It's not like limit hold'em where it's a quick bet, call, raise, call, bet, call, bet, call. Okay, showdown. It's not like that. No limit hold'em can be very slow when a big hand is developing. No limit hold'em only plays quickly when the pot is small. When the pot is big, unless there are two hands that are obviously going to call all the way through, a lot of times there's a lot of tanking because there's a lot of money at stake. So that gives a cheater a lot of time to go signal one of the two people in the hand, whoever their partner is, of what is going on. So let's say a big pot is developing. And of course, Brian can see the whole thing looking at the monitor. So he sees on the monitor this pot developing and his accomplice is in the pot for a lot of money. And he obviously knows that this person's way ahead, way behind, if they're being bluffed or if they're up against the nuts, whatever it might be. So while that person is thinking what to do, and of course this person knows that they have assistance from Brian, then all they have to do is wait for Brian to step out of the booth 
and then get close enough to signal him, the person at the table, that is, through this TENS device. So even if the booth is not within 23 feet of the table, all Brian would have to do is walk within 23 feet of the table and press the button to signal the person, whatever it might be, fold, whatever, whatever the agreed-upon signals are from the vibration, and then the person knows what to do. If there was no camera directly on the room, which I don't think there was, I'm talking about the control room, there wouldn't even be record of Brian stepping out and stepping a few feet closer to the table to get close enough to signal. So it's very possible this could have been going on at any point. Also, it didn't have to be one of these TENS units. That's just what uh, Bulletproof came up with as an idea if they they were to cheat the way they would think of doing it. But it's possible some other device could have been either bought or even built to receive such a signal. And there is a lot of scenarios where such a device could be bought or constructed to do the job even better than these TENS devices and would uh, have a longer range. So that's where this whole thing basically, basically becomes an exercise in futility. Because, again, it's not all that hard to find an accomplice willing to cheat with you for hundreds of thousands of dollars of potential gain. And it's not all that hard to signal them. Over a period of 13 months, this is not a hard thing to accomplish. Given all the broke degenerates and scumbags in poker, all you have to do is find one. And that person doesn't have to be there every week. They just have to be there occasionally to scoop the big pot that they otherwise did not deserve. We saw how Postle kicked ass. And that was at a small games for the most part. Imagine if these Hustler Casino live games, someone who has a lot of access to uh, this information, even just through vibrations occasionally, how much they could win. So we had Brian who had access to the whole cards. It was proven by Bulletproof's own investigation that a device could be used with a 23-foot range with someone at the table. That's pretty much game over. We don't know from there whether he did it or not, and we'll never know. Furthermore, they did not seem very curious about the cameras, or if they were, we didn't read about it. In this whole long report, there's very little discussion of what they found on camera. And you would think this would be more detailed. They they said, oh, we didn't find anything. But how about telling us a bit more? How about saying what you did see and why that didn't mean anything? Why not devote a few paragraphs to what was seen on camera that day, or what was seen on camera other days? How much of the booth can be seen on camera? Was there any evidence that anyone ever stepped out of the booth? And when did they step out? Like, these are big questions that we did not get answered by the report. Because again, this was directed by Nick Fertucci and Ryan Feldman. And these companies that were doing it, like Bulletproof, were just doing it for them. If you want these questions answered, you need to ask them. And the person who's going to ask them is a neutral person, not the person who may not really want the answer publicized. That's why you need a neutral person in charge, because Bulletproof did not seem very curious about anything related to the cameras. They didn't seem very curious about Nick playing in the game. And while maybe all of this is a nothing burger, at least it should have been explored. And it appears that it really was not. This is all it said regarding the security camera reviews. Quote, Hustler Casino Management also assisted in the investigation, reviewing surveillance video and sharing its findings with the investigative team. That's it. They're talking about Hustler Casino itself, not Hustler Casino Live, because they're the ones who have the camera access. Then it says, 
The Hustler Casino surveillance team reviewed video from the day of September 29th and found no events of interest in or around the production room. Surveillance video showed no suspicious interactions among the players and or employees away from the table. A review of video of hands played on the show and surveillance video inside the casino and parking lot. That's it. That's far too general for my taste. Any cheating likely would have been through some form of signaling. Not high-tech hacking or system breaches, probably. And I agree with their conclusion on that part. But just a person who had access to the hall cards, meaning Brian, signaling a player at the table in some way. Probably through some kind of vibrating device. That's what there should have been the focus on. And it does not discuss that. They don't discuss Brian's movements at any point that night or other nights. Like, I'd love to know about his movements during other nights when big hands would develop. Did he ever leave the booth? So there's a lot lot of angles not explored here, and I have to wonder why. And I'm not saying that Hustler Casino Live knows there was cheating. They just may not want some things uncovered. There may be some things that just aren't known, and they just prefer that they remain unknown. Whatever it is, this is useless if not directed by someone who's neutral, and it was not. So just take this entire report and disregard it. It doesn't really tell us anything useful. Useful. In fact, the only thing useful it tells us is how lax the security really was there. For example, the fact that anyone could access that booth. The door wasn't locked. People could just stroll in. Apparently, that was common practice. I'm not saying players in the game were able to get up and <laughs> walk into the booth and say, hey, you know, what uh, card do I have right now? Oh, okay. The, that's what my opponent has. Okay, let me go back to the table. Like, you, you couldn't do that, but uh, apparently there was no restricted access to the booth, and Brian Sagbixall could just look right over and see the whole cards if he wanted. So there were all kinds of flaws there. The security holes were big enough to drive a truck through. Now they've made improvements. Now they're wanding people when they walk in. I'm talking about with a wand to detect electronic devices. And they've restricted access to the booth. And they're making sure that only one person can see the whole cards. It's not just uh, open to anybody in there. So, okay, great. But it kind of seems like they're closing the barn door after the horse has escaped. So that is not very impressive to me. Now, I want to bridge off to discuss the arrest warrant for Brian Sagbixall and something that was very interesting I found there. So Brian Sagbixall currently has a warrant for his arrest, and this was reported by the LA Times reporter Andrea Chang, who's been following this whole thing. But they actually made available on the Hustler Casino Live site the PDF of the arrest warrant. So it's a real arrest warrant. There really is a warrant out for Brian Sagbixall's arrest. It says uh, the people of the state of California versus Brian Sagbixall, date of birth 10-25-97, which makes him 25 years old now. It says on or about September 29th in the county of Los Angeles, the crime of grand theft in violation of penal code section 487A, a felony, was committed by Brian Sagbixall, who did unlawfully steal, take, carry, lead, and drive away the personal property of Rabia Lu, specifically poker chips, which had a value exceeding $950. 
Now, of course, it was way more than 950. It was 15,000. But okay, we knew about that. We knew he did that. And that totally makes sense as count number one. Okay, but what about count number two? Count number two. On or about September 29th, 2022, same day, the crime of grand theft in violation of Penal Code 487A, a felony was committed by Brian Sagbixall, who did unlawfully steal, take, carry, lead, and drive away the personal property of Hustler Casino? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hustler Casino? Specifically, $5,000, which had a value exceeding $950. Not 5000 in chips, just 5000 Not $5,000 worth of equipment. Just 5000 Specifically, it's saying right here in this warrant for Brian Sagbixall's arrest that count two is that he stole $5,000 cash from Hustler Casino. What? I never heard about this. Nobody heard about this. We heard all about how he was caught on camera stealing the chips from Robbie Jade Lou, three $5,000 chips which totaled 15000 in value, we did not hear about a $5,000 cash theft from Hustler Casino. Not Hustler Casino Live, so he didn't steal like equipment from the show. He stole $5,000 cash in some way from Hustler Casino. It doesn't explain how, it doesn't explain details, but that's count number two. Now, why this is important, aside from being interesting, is remember the story, remember the story that they did not arrest Brian at the time because Robbie didn't want to press charges and she confirmed she didn't want to press charges which is very weird to people and she also claimed that the Gardena police said that he didn't have a record yet this is his first offense which also totally wasn't true and it doesn't make any sense why Gardena police would have told her that but okay maybe some dummy there made a mistake and maybe she felt bad for him or whatever but what about this second thing he supposedly stole $5,000 from Hustler Casino. It's right here in the arrest warrant and that this theft supposedly took place the same day. So, number one, why are they not explaining this? And I even tweeted at Nick and Ryan going, can you explain this? And nobody answered me. But what's really important here is that Hustler could have pressed charges that night, or at least once they discovered this within a few days. Because Brian has not been arrested yet. Brian disappeared. And my guess is that Brian is in another state because Brian knew that he was caught on camera stealing $15,000. He knew this case wasn't going away. He knew that there's tremendous public interest in it. And he knew it was a matter of time, especially because Robbie said she's going to press charges before the cops come a knocking to bring him to jail and that they have him on camera doing it and his confession of doing it. So that's pretty strong, right? For sure, he's going to be guilty. And he already has a felony on his record. I'll get to that shortly, but that's also mentioned in the arrest warrant. So with a felony on his record from just five years ago, he is caught stealing right on camera $15,000 plus this other 5000 here, whatever that is. So he knew for sure that he's going to the slammer for quite some time. Second felony here in, in five years. But they gave him a chance to bounce. They gave him a chance to run away. It took a long time to get this arrest warrant. This was filed November 22nd, getting close to two months later from when the crimes were discovered. The last known residence of Brian Sagbixall was with his girlfriend and her family. And 
he was located there by Andrea Chang of the LA Times. Then he made that weird threat to her that you better leave or I'm going to follow you everywhere. So she left. And then that was the last anyone saw of him. Ever Since then, he was just missing. So he knew the writing was on the wall. He knew the arrest was coming. And he probably left. And why not? That's what most people would do. Because let's look at it. Does Brian Sagbixall have any kids? Well, not to my knowledge. And if he does, I don't think he lives with them or takes care of them. Does Brian Sagbixall have any real assets? No. He claimed he was stealing this 15000 out of desperation. And I think it's true. I think he's a gambling degenerate who had nothing. Does Brian Sagbixall have a career that he doesn't want to walk away from? No. <laughs> the only career he had, if you can call it that, was Hustler Casino Live, and he got fired. So he's got no job, to my knowledge, and if he does, it couldn't be a very good one. He has no family he has to take care of. He has no assets. So what is keeping him here to wait and have the cops come get him? When the alternative is to just stand up, get in his car, and drive across the state line, where they probably will not extradite him over something like this. So of course he left. Of course he's hiding. I'd be surprised if he didn't leave the state. That's exactly why you arrest people like this quickly before they have a chance to run off. Like, let's say I was caught stealing $15,000. Well, it would be a much tougher decision for me to get up and leave. In fact, I wouldn't. Because uh, look at everything I'd be leaving behind. I'd be leaving my son. I'd be leaving my girlfriend. I'd be leaving my home. I'd be leaving a lot I have established in my life already. I'd be leaving all my assets. Like, I, it just... It wouldn't be trivial for me to get up and run off. But a young guy who has nothing, it's very easy to run off. So that's probably what he did. He probably left the state. So why the hell did they not arrest him in early October when they knew that he stole? And so what if Robbie doesn't want to press charges? If he stole from Hustler Casino, why didn't they want to press charges? Hustler Casino is a business. It should not feel bad for him. It should not feel bad for the guy who stole chips in the casino. That should be an automatic arrest at any casino. In fact, everybody was wondering, like, why is this the only casino where you can steal chips and not get arrested? Can you think of any casino in Nevada like this where you can steal someone's chips and be caught on camera and they don't arrest you if the victim says, no, I don't want to press charges? It's not like the victim said, oh, no, no, I, I gave this person permission to take my chips. They weren't stolen. Robbie acknowledged they were stolen and she had no idea he took them. So how was it he wasn't arrested, even if she wouldn't want to press charges? She doesn't have to agree to press charges for them to arrest him. But here we had a second victim, a business, Hustler Casino, who for whatever reason chose not to press charges, and that's weird. Now, some people said, well, maybe he didn't steal an additional 5000 Maybe the 5000 is related to him cashing out one of the chips for $5,000. Maybe he gave the two chips to somebody else he owed money. I, th I think there's a story that he gave two of those chips to one of the other players he owed money to and then cashed the other five. I, I don't know if that's true, but let's say that's what is hap what happened. And let's say technically that's considered him stealing from Hustler because these weren't his chips, which still wouldn't make sense because they were Robbie's chips. But whatever. Let's say technically that was considered him stealing from Hustler because they ultimately handed him that cash. Okay, but still, they're the victim, right? Why shouldn't they press charges at that point? That's what I don't understand. 
And why won't Hustler Casino Live explain this? Why won't they explain this $5,000 that is said that Brian stole from them and why they wouldn't press charges? Whether it was a different 5000 or whether it was the process of cashing out the 5000 he stole, why was it that they didn't press charges at the time? Why did it take so long? Why were they counting on Robbie to do it? Very weird. Regarding his 2017 offense, it says this. It is further alleged that prior to the commission of that offense, alleged in counts one and two, the defendant Brian Sagbixall had been convicted of the following serious and or violent felony as defined in Penal Code Section 667D and Penal Code 1170.12b and is thus subject to sentencing pursuant to the provisions of Penal Code Section 667b through J and Penal Code Section 1170.12. Case number NA106320, charge PC211, conviction date 6617, County of Los Angeles in Superior Court. So what is that? What is that PC211? What did he do? Well, if you Google California PC-211, you will see that it is robbery. Not burglary, but robbery. There's a very big difference between the two. Burglary is where you steal something while the person who owns it isn't aware you're taking it. And that includes breaking into a house while someone's home and sleeping and stealing while they're unaware you're stealing. That's still burglary. Robbery is when you are taking something by force. When someone is aware you're taking it, and you're either intimidating them, threatening them, or committing an act of violence against them to take the object. That is robbery. So he was not convicted of burglary. He was convicted of robbery. 211 PC is robbery. 459 PC is burglary. He was convicted of felony robbery, 211 PC. I don't have the details, but he was convicted of felony robbery in 2017. That's right there. So as a convicted robber that was working at Hustler Casino Live for 13 months with access to the whole cards. You don't need to hire a law firm and a PI firm and data experts to tell you that you had a gaping, gaping hole in security if you hired someone like that without even Googling them. Sorry. I mean, that's the truth. How do you not Google your employees? Doesn't everybody do that? Like I, I assumed everybody does that now. When I last applied for a job, it was in the year 1998. And I was at that job for about five years. And then I quit that job to play professional poker, and I haven't had a job since. In 1998, they were not looking people up on search engines because not much would come up back then. There were search engines in 98. It wasn't Google, but there were search engines in 98. But you weren't going to find much on the typical person, so that just typically wasn't done. But in 2021... You're telling me they didn't Google someone who has access to super sensitive and valuable information that can be used to cheat? You don't Google the person when you hire them? And come on, that's crazy. In order to be convicted of robbery, they have to show that you had to use force 
or intimidation or threats to take the property. They have to show that. So again, this wasn't Brian sneaking into somebody's house and stealing their stuff or grabbing a girlfriend's things and running off with it. This was him forcefully taking something from someone and getting convicted for it. That's who they hired. What a great guy. (laughs) So where do I stand with all this? Well, I'll get to that at the very end of this. I want to give you Garrett's reaction. This is what Garrett tweeted on December 14th. I was heartened reading the details regarding several security measures Hustler Casino Live has implemented. Security vulnerabilities are the existential threat facing the poker live streams we all love. And thus, these updates are a win for everyone in our industry. I've surprised myself with the peace I've felt being away from all things poker in recent months. But if and when I decide to play again, I'm open to playing on Hustler Casino Live. Interesting. So after all this, even though he's not giving the money back to Robbie, he still hasn't given her the money back. Hustler Casino Live is giving Robbie back the 15K. They either have or they will give the 15K back. That was stolen by Brian, but they're not getting involved in giving her back the money that Garrett took. So really, Garrett is still holding her money. I don't care if he gave the same amount to charity. That's inconsequential. Really, he's still holding her money. He shouldn't be. And I haven't changed my mind on that. But it's interesting that he says he's opening to play Hustler Casino Live, yet he's keeping the money he took from someone that he believed was stolen from him via cheating. It's a very weird position. But I think the reason he is considering this is because he's probably getting irritated thinking about how soft these lineups are, how much better of a player he is than the typical person on these streams, because these are not great players at these high stakes. You have to have a deep bankroll to play, but these are not great players. There's some good players, there's some great players, but there's a lot of donkeys and semi-donks in that game that you're not going to find in a normal game of that stakes, and he's out of them now. Ever since this happened, he's never come back. So he might, for financial purposes, want to come back. And keep in mind, this is the same guy who, when he was cheated some years ago in a private game and discovered he was cheated out of 100K, he was eventually told by the person who's running the game that if they give him back the 100K, will he agree not to publicize there was cheating there? And he said yes. And this, these were his own words to the LA Times. I'm not just uh, speculating on this. I'm not repeating rumors. This is what he said to the LA Times. So a guy who will take back the 100K that got cheated out of, uh, from him in exchange for staying quiet is the same guy who probably come back to Hustler Casino Live, even if, even if he thinks he's being cheated, if he th- believes there's money-making opportunities in the future because the games are soft. So I think that's why he's saying that. By the way, the reason he has taken time away from all things poker is because of the hate he has gotten from a lot of people regarding the way he handled this which is rightful hate because he should not have taken the money. It's fine that he was suspicious. It's fine that he voiced suspicion. But to take the money was wrong. To have not given the money back is wrong. To donate the money to charity that you took, to a charity that you choose, not just donating it, but actually uh, charity his choice, that does not mean that he doesn't owe her back the money. That just means... Separate from all this, he made a donation equivalent to the money he received from her. That's all it means. He can't donate her money. If you think he can, then I'd like to take money from you and donate it to charities I like. Just 
hand me 137k, and then I'll donate it to a charity I like. Would you like that? Probably not. So you can't do that. You can't take money that is not yours and then donate it to charity and say, okay, we're even. That's not how it works. How did Robbie feel about this whole thing? Well, rather than tell you, I'll let you listen. This is an interview at the Win. She was playing at the Win WPT series. And she's doing an interview with Sarah Herring, who now works for Poker.org. Remember, she was at Poker News for many years. Now she's at Poker.org. And this is an interview with Robbie by Poker.org, conducted by Sarah. So much rampant speculation, so much going on in your world in the last few months. And you've really been an, an open book to everyone, which, you know, from the standpoint of the media, I just want to thank you for that. And so the HCL just released, Husser Casino Live just released the uh, findings of their investigation. For those who missed it, they found no cheating, no evidence of cheating. So I first of all just wanted to, you know, get your response to that. Yeah, I mean, I... I it's, I mean, needless to say, I'm totally relieved. Um, it was one of those things, it's like, how long is it going to take? And how, you know, how much longer do we have to go? But there's a lot involved. And I really did admire the fact that they put a lot of work into the thoroughness of the investigation and um, really did do what they said they were going to do. So uh, it was nice to get that final result. But I already knew that was coming. Um, and I just think that it just feels like a different time in my life now where I can kind of mentally move forward. I was already physically doing it. I had the support of many uh, you know, people worldwide, which I have said to multiple, I was even just like writing statements to a bunch of news um, paper sources that were reaching out that without them, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So I feel like, uh, you know, I'm here and I'm out and I'm doing my own thing. But like mentally, there's like once that investigation to close and people that are still uh, speculating. So it does feel like um, a massive like chip on my shoulders. It's been released. So it's nice to just be in a different phase to see where it goes from now on. People come for, with, with the pitchforks. I think we've seen this happen a lot of times. But it was interesting because I actually thought that even the momentum from the general public and the perspective of the media really sort of took a shift there at some point. It was one of the most disheartening things when I feel like it was shifting in my direction. And then the Brian thing happened. Um, I can never say his last name. Neither. He like took his chips, uh, took my chips. And then that still was like, it took people back. And I just felt like, I, I, I just felt like, Hold on. Did you hear that little gaff there? Now, it's possible this was just a slip of the tongue and not anything. It's a big deal. Well, let's listen to this once again, last uh, 10 seconds or so, about Brian. Thing happened. Um, I can never say his last name. Neither. Where he, like, took his chips, uh, took my chips. Uh, whoa. Where Brian took his chips, uh, uh, took my chips. Now, that is really getting the conspiracy theorists talking, and rightfully so. A theory that was presented early on was that Brian took these chips because they were cheating together, and this was his cut, and that he felt he was not going to get his cut unless he took the chips off her stack, that he was afraid that the jig was up and he wasn't going to get it, and he was mad that she had given the winnings back to Garrett. So basically, he took what he felt was his. That was one of the theories. We've discussed it before. So here she says that he took his chips, uh, uh, took my chips, <laughs> which, again, that could have been a just slip of the tongue mistake, could have not been, just add to the intrigue of this whole thing. 
and then that still was like it took people back and I just felt like I, I, I just felt like defeated at that point like I just couldn't win and all these weird coincidences were happening and they were really just coincidences and they were just working against me and I'm like when am I going to get some kind of relief but I think just um, me being out there and, and kind of just I you know I mean I had nothing to hide and for me I just needed just that one like crack in the door to get in back into the world of playing poker and then I realized that like this is what I'm going to do and there was life before the hand and life after the hand and life after the hand can look a lot like life before the hand except now everybody maybe just knows me as somebody so I can't really hide from me okay let's talk about what you just said there she didn't need a crack in the door to get back into poker nobody was stopping her from playing and she was not someone who was hiding from this unlike Garrett who's been kind of hiding away for the most part he pops up every so often to put out a tweet about the situation or sometimes about some other thing but Garrett is someone who definitely was harmed by this at least reputationally she didn't have a reputation before this nobody knew her but she's been leaning into this big time she appeared on Joey's show so many times and as she did it more and more she started to get herself prepared to be on there she would get dressed up in nice clothes and do her makeup and just try to look really really cute for the camera and it's fine to not want to look like crap on the camera especially if you're female but uh, you could tell she was really enjoying all the attention this was someone who wasn't a victim and i discussed this when we had our whole uh, norman chad versus joey ingram segment and norman chad was saying that she was uh, a victim in a way of uh, joey's coverage and i said i didn't agree because she never saw herself a victim of anything other than maybe garrett taking the money where i would agree by the way she was a victim there but she's enjoyed every minute of being a star here especially because there's never been any kind of proof that she cheated so it's just converted her from a nobody in poker to someone everybody knows in fact people now know her outside of poker this made the la times this made other major publications this is one of the biggest poker stories ever and it involved someone who was not a known poker player at all i'm talking about her not garrett garrett got the negative out of this because of the money he took back garrett already had a good reputation he didn't want or need this she did need this she enjoyed it now not every personality type would enjoy this there are people male and female who just want to go in play poker keep their head down even if they're on a live stream they don't want all the focus on them but she is not one of those people she loves 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 the attention more than anyone i've ever seen on these streams she loves the fact that people recognize her now she loves the fact that people wanted to hear from her on joey's show and people have said oh well she wouldn't have appeared on all these things if she were guilty well i understand that line of thinking but she loved the attention so much that i don't think it really means anything either way that she appeared on these streams because she just absolutely enjoyed the attention she's wanted for ever since the day that she started playing poker to become a famous poker player and guess what she has she is a fam- famous poker player now not for winning a lot of money or being a great player but for just being a famous player for being part of one of the biggest poker stories ever so she loves this so she wasn't looking for a opening to get back in in fact she kept playing she kept showing up at tournaments and kept on playing there's no opening here 
rainy place, but I don't mind that either because at the end of the day, I think that um, that incident probably sends a message to at least um, the world that, you know, at first I thought it might be a negative one, but I think it's more so like it's kind of inviting more recreational players to come out and just maybe to say hi and and do that. And we do want to expand the world of poker. So in, in that essence, I'm trying to see the positive in all of this. It's something I wanted to ask you about also, which you really just touched on, which is I think a lot of people's natural reaction would have been to sort of step back. Maybe it's it's a lot to come back into the world. And especially now, everyone knows who you are. I'm sure everyone's playing against you slightly different, talking to you. So, you know, I, I commend you. I think it took a lot of, of courage and it's great to see you here. But how has it been to have to just be talking about this and, and doing yeah, all the time? I feel like a, a broken record sometimes. And um but, you know, it's like one of those things. It's a little corny and cheesy when somebody wants to take a photo and stuff. But I let them do it. It is what it is. Um, you know, they I, I, there's some avid pe- watchers of live stream. So to them, it feels like they're seeing somebody huge. Yeah. See, I, well, it, it's uh, yeah, it's kind of a nuisance, but I do it. You know, I do it. It's not a big deal. No, she loves every minute of this. She, she loves when people come up and say, oh, my God, you're Robbie Jade Luke. Can I take a picture with you? This is what she's been hoping for. This is what she always wanted. Or at least always since she started playing poker. She just instantly got there. She didn't have to win a bunch of big tournaments or win a bracelet or be on TV a bunch of times. No, she just had to be on Huster Casino Live a few times and have that jack four hand go down. And now she's a star in poker for weird reasons, but nevertheless, a star in poker. And now people do want to take pictures with her and people do recognize her. So she loves it. It's it's so funny how she's acting like that's kind of a nuisance and kind of weird to have to pose for pictures with people. No, no. To her, it's great. You can tell. Um, regardless of whether that hand went down or not. So I, I kind of, I'm just embracing it because there's nothing else I can do except do that. Um, and then furthermore, just sitting at the table and talking about it, I just kind of got used to it. I I, I just sit down and I'm like, okay, guys, let it out. Yeah, let's just do what it. What do you guys want to do? Okay, Jack Boy, let's talk. I'm let's talk it. Girl. And then it's just one of those things where you already stand out as a woman in this in this um, industry. And so then, you know, now you, you have like a face that might be a little unique. So yes, it's, it's just, I just kind of gotten used to it. But eyes are always on like, the only few women in the room anyways. Yeah. So I guess I had a little practice. Yeah, no, I right. have so. no doubt that you've had plenty of practice <laughs> with eyes. And by the way, she is wearing something that definitely would put eyes on her. She's wearing this top that's exposing her belly. She definitely wants you looking at her in a sexual way anyway, even aside from all of this. This is someone who loves attention. And that's not everybody. There are some people who'd be hating life if they were being accused of being a cheater and even with the poker world kind of being split on it, like with this much attention and with half the poker world thinking they cheated, some people would be extremely upset, extremely anxious, extremely depressed. Some would absolutely despise being in that position. But there's others who would love the attention. And she is exhibit A in that. I am very convinced. On you, I finally just wanted to ask you, and this may just be like you know dead to you at this point. Maybe it's just over. But you, very famously in the beginning, just offered to give all the money back to Garrett. I think just wanted to to like move on. And now at this point, with this sort of vindication, do is there any? Do you feel like you want it back, or is it just kind of like all right, I'm it's over? I feel like there's a very obvious right thing for him to do. Um, so I'm waiting to see if that actually comes through and if it doesn't I, I know there's some, some actions my legal team would want to do so i have to kind of have that conversation now with- oh boy yeah don't forget about that that's still possible she said that she's giving him a chance now that the report is done to do the right thing and if he doesn't then there's something her legal team 
would like to do. Uh-oh. Remember, her husband was saying that they're going to sue Garrett and that he's made a lot of statements which make it very easy to sue him. Which, I don't know. Like As far as the defamation aspect, and I've discussed this before, I don't think the defamation aspect is very easy to sue him successfully because at the very least she can be declared a limited purpose public figure here in poker and right then that kills really any ability to beat him in a defamation lawsuit but as far as the money itself there may be plenty of cause to get that back so I guess he could give the defense that she gave it back because she knew she was cheating or she gave it back just voluntarily, regardless of the reason. She voluntarily gave it, and he didn't force it out of her, so tough luck. So he will have some defense to it, but I could easily see her winning a lawsuit to get that money back. And it is possible that the legal strategy here was to wait for Hustler to drop the report, and as soon as the report shows that there was no cheating, or at least no conclusive cheating, then she will make a demand, give the money back, and when he says no then she will sue him. I think it's very possible that this is coming. Them. Um, this obviously just happened in the middle of the game. Uh, I was walking down when it was released. So it's one of those things where I'm like, we do have to discuss that. I always like the amicable route. Um, as you can tell, I just want everyone to be at peace. Uh, but I do feel that um, there were certain actions that took place that day that need to be amended um, from certain individuals. And we'll see what, what their response will be before I decide what to do next. I think what she's talking about is that she needs the money back from Hustler for that 15K that was stolen, which I believe they're going to give. I think they said they're going to give it. She may already have that. And then the 137K she gave to Garrett. She basically gave back Garrett what she won from him in that pot. So if he does not return that, it sounds like she's going to sue him. She's saying she wants to do it amicably. Otherwise, then she has to go another route. I don't blame her for that one. If I were her position, I would sue him as well. What Garrett just really needs to do is give the money back. Even if he's not convinced she didn't cheat, he's got to say at this point, okay, we don't know for sure if she cheated. We don't even have evidence she cheated. You can have suspicions. You don't have, you don't, there's no actual evidence that she cheated. So short of that, you can't just take people's money because you suspected they cheated you. That's not how poker works. So he should just give it back. He should let everybody know that it was an emotional time, that he really thought he was being cheated, that he thought he was being paid back money that had been stolen from him via cheating, and that as time has passed, he's realized that even though he still is of the opinion he was cheated, since there is no proof, he shouldn't have taken the money, and therefore he's returning it. And this would really, really elevate his reputation. Not quite back to where it was before, but it would help. A lot of his critics would say, okay, great, Garrett, that's very noble of you to give it back at this point. And then I think at that point, a lot of his haters would drop it. But as long as he doesn't give the money back, this is always going to dog him. He's always going to be seen as the asshole who intimidated a woman to give back the money that she had won from him. And it's a very bad look. So he should give back the money. I'm on her side on that for sure. If you remember... Stones did a similar investigation over the Possel matter, and I laughed at it. 
And again, they directed their own investigation. Again, it was a long time after the incident occurred. And there was no chain of custody that would have protected any of the evidence. So the whole thing was a joke and nobody took it seriously. I'm surprised Stone's even wasted the money on it because it basically did nothing for them PR-wise. Maybe they thought they could use it in the future if they were sued, but uh, no lawsuit against them got off the ground, so they didn't even need it. But maybe they just did it as kind of like an insurance policy. Anyway, as far as the public was concerned, nobody bought it. So I don't understand why people were so skeptical of the Stones, but some of these same people were not skeptical of the Hustler evaluation. Oh, these are reputable companies. Oh, all you have to do is hire experts and the experts will come back. You you think that uh, Bulletproof's going to risk their entire business to protect Hustler? Uh, no, no. Come on, guys. You don't understand. Bulletproof is working for Hustler as a contractor here. They don't have to lie. They just have to look in the directions that they're asked to look because that's what they're hired to do. These are not professional investigators. Some people just don't get it, though. Some people just don't get it. Taking a look at some of the text messages I got here. From the 507, it's so awkward whenever Garrett tweets now. Yeah, I kind of agree. From the 702, Brian was disappeared, never to surface again, as he would have given up others in a poker cheating scam. He was the weakest link. Now, disappeared could have meant that he was killed and buried in the desert somewhere. It could have just meant that he was uh, sent off somewhere and told to keep his head down. But that's this person's uh, theory from the 702. That's what I have for right now. From the text messages, you can text me anytime, 775-372-8355. You can also call into the show in between segments. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, how are you, Dan? This is Tyrone. Hi, Tyrone. Uh, good to hear from you. And uh, what's going on? Uh, how are you? Well, um, I'm, number one, I, I'm I'm very sorry you got sick again. Uh, you, by the fact you're still on the radio show, I'm sure you you have recovered, right? No, I, I really haven't completely. Uh, so I, I'm just doing this because this is the night I can do it, and I'm just kind of dealing with the discomfort I have. So I'm not all better, and I'll, I'll find out the oh. results of this COVID test uh, that I took yesterday. I'll find this out probably tomorrow what the results are. I'm guessing probably it's going to be negative, but I won't be shocked if it's positive, and I'm, I'm not all better yet. But uh, anyway, what's what's going on with you? Oh, not, not much, but, but I, I, I need to... Just say a very minor thing about Garrett. The Garrett thinks it is he asks for the money and Robbie personally give it to her. She says that's her own free will doing things. If somebody will give me give me the money from the table, I think it's fine. That's my basic thing is I don't think other than you, that lots of poker players is not a thing. That's one of the things I, when I younger used to admire all the poker for, I found out their life is, uh, their life is not a thing. They, they are not, they are no hero or anything else. Basically, they just try to take a bank 
managed to make some money. Yeah, I know what you're saying that they're not they're not uh, role models necessarily. These are just people who happen to win at poker and and get on TV, and you can't look up to all these people. I will say that Garrett is one who always presented himself as someone who was supposed to be a role model. He always tried to make himself seem like he was a a very ethical guy, a sensitive guy, and he he took it a lot above just a decent person in poker who isn't ripping anyone off. He he was supposed to be this model guy you look up to. And that's why a lot of people took pleasure in watching him kind of fall like this. Uh, regarding what you said with her voluntarily giving the money, that is the point I'm sure he will use to defend himself in court. That's his strongest defense is that she voluntarily gave it to him and that he didn't forcefully take it from her or make any physical threats of violence, that just she gave it because he was angry. And I think the truth is she gave it because she wanted to continue coming on the show and felt that he had the power to keep her off, which he probably did. So she kind of felt it was worth it to give that to continue being on the show. And she did. And she she was doing well on the show. So I think she was delusional enough to believe that she could just keep effortlessly winning there, which of course wasn't true. But uh, she thought she was so much better than everybody that she could just basically print money on the show so this is just a small expense she has to go through to continue being on there that's why i think she gave it back uh i i think what she could claim though in court was that you know he's this uh big muscular guy that she was uh, intimidated by him that she's brought into the hallway away from the table that she was just uh afraid of what he was going to do so she gave it out of fear and then uh later on came to her senses and wanted it back that he really had no rights to this money and that he doesn't want to give it back, that he really can't establish rights to the money and that this wasn't a, a gift she gave. She wasn't like, oh, Garrett, I think you're uh, such a great guy. Let me give you this donation because I think you're a good person. It was She can claim she gave it under duress, and that's the only reason she would have given it back. She can say this wasn't a gift to him. So that, that that's something the court would have to decide. And me not not being an attorney, I can't tell you the legalities no, of, of whether might, this... She might not go to the court. She might not go to the court. She just write the thing. Yeah. Uh, she write the thing. She get a lot of marriage out out there being a victim. <laughs> oh, she did. She did. And I was saying that she she got a lot of mileage out of this, and that's why people anyone who says oh she was a victim of this oh her reputation was trashed no she she loved all this 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 was a great thing for her, and I think it was worth every penny of what she gave back with all the publicity she got, and and will continue to get from now on. So. I, I think uh, looking back on this, she doesn't see that as a bad day. She doesn't say, oh, man, I, I wish I didn't have that horrible day in my life. She she was probably like a little alarmed of the whole thing when it all happened. But uh, when she converted it into poker fame, it seemed like she was quite happy. So I agree with you there. And I think anyone who's casting her as a victim in the narrative that's come since uh, is not watching it closely enough. But uh, I, I don't, with all that said, I don't think he should be keeping her money. I just, from a moral standpoint, uh, you give back the money. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example where you don't give back the money. This actually just happened to me at Commerce uh, a few weeks ago. I was playing in a limit hold'em game, and someone missed what I flashed. Not flashed, but what I tabled. I tabled a hand that to them looked like I had a one-card flush, but in reality, I just had a pair of tens. Basically, I just I just kept firing the whole way, and uh, I was hoping the person was going to fold. They didn't fold. They called me with a better pair. I had a pair of tens with, with no diamond. It was a ten of hearts, and there were four diamonds on the board. 
this guy didn't have a diamond, so in his brain, like he sees me fire, 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 and then I flip over uh, ten of hearts and some black card for a pair of tens, and he sees the di- he sees it as a diamond because he was expecting a diamond. So he tosses his hand away, it goes into the muck, and then he says, "Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, that wasn't a diamond." I said, "No, it was a heart." Oh crap! I could beat that. Well, I didn't give him his money back. Why? Because that's part of the game. You have to read the board correctly. So if you misread the board and then you throw away your hand and the other person wins the pot, that's the way poker goes. And uh, it can happen the other way. In fact, it almost happened to me the other way. I was playing Omaha uh, a few months ago and I misread what I had and I threw my hand away except it didn't hit the muck and just about as the dealer was going to grab it, I reached my hand over and swiped the hand back and everybody at the table, including the dealer and even the opposing player, agreed that uh, the hand wasn't dead. So then I tabled the hand, and I explained I misread it, and I wasn't trying to slow roll. And the guy looked a little annoyed because he thought he had it, but uh, there wasn't anything he could say. But had it gone into the muck, I would not have demanded the guy give my money back because, again, that's part of the game. You have to read the hands properly. And uh, it's not like I said flush and t- tabled a diamond uh, or, or tabled a heart instead of a diamond. I just, I just put it out on the board. I just turned it over, and he saw a diamond in his own head when he shouldn't have. So that's part of the game. It's, it was a mental mistake, and he didn't ask for the money back, nor did I offer it, because I, I didn't see that as, as stealing. So that's where like, someone could say, oh, obviously the guy won the hand. He misread what you had. Come on. The right thing to do is give it back. And my answer would be no. Uh, just like nobody would give it back to me in this spot if I misread my hand and muck it. And, and also, he had mucked it. I couldn't see for sure if he really did have it beat. Now, he probably did because, you know, calling me down, I had like a 10 and there were two overcards on the board. Like, it was it was pretty likely at that point once he called the river that I was losing. I was like, it was one of these hands where like you're embarrassed to turn your hand over. So, um, I, I believe fully he had, and I could tell by his reaction he really had it. But uh, that's part of the game. That's, so, that's different than you giving the money back because you're scared of someone in some way. I have the similar situation just like you anyway. So... Uh so I didn't give the money back because the their car already hit the muck, you know. Yeah, that's the way it works. Yeah. <laughs> that's the way it is. Anyway, I have a quick question. Just very, very curious. You don't have to answer that. From a conservative guy like you, how come you're not married? Oh, well, <laughs> okay, um... You don't have to answer that. Well, no, I, I'll give an answer here. I'll, I'll, I'll give an answer. To me, it doesn't really matter because I have a lot of elements of marriage there already, and getting married uh, kind of seems pointless here. And I'm not saying I never will. It's just that we've been together for over 13 years. We have a son who is 12, who a lot of people assume was an accident but was not. And if he was, I admit it, but he, he was actually not an accident. It was a planned pregnancy. Remember, I knew her before. I knew her for many years ago prior to us dating, so this wasn't a stranger to me. But we've been together for 13 and a half years. We have a son who's 12. We've lived together for the vast, vast majority of this time, obviously. And everything really functions very similar to a marriage in all ways. The only thing that's missing uh-huh. is, is the actual legal marriage and also, we're not young. So if you look at 
when people get married and have a big wedding and all that, this dates back to the whole concept of basically being the sign that people have grown up and gone on their own. And that's why the parents pay for the uh, ceremony. And it's usually young people in their early 20s. This is like them moving into a grown-up life together and uh, no longer being taken care of by their parents. Even if they're not living with their parents anymore and have their own job, this is really like the full move into adulthood. But when you are older, then it's it's a different situation. I, I'm not transitioning into that here, being uh, over 50 years old. And, and furthermore, here we already have a, a child at this point, and we've been living together all this time. So that's really the reason we haven't done it is it's just we haven't had the motivation to do it. And I have people asking me all the time, doesn't this bother her? And the answer is no. She kind of feels the same way. So it's not like she's pressuring okay. me. She, she hasn't been pressuring, let's get married, and I say no. It's not like that. It's, it's, uh, it's one of these things we're not opposed to. We're not saying, oh, we're just never going to do this. But we're also not feeling all that much motivation to make it happen. It just hasn't happened. That's, that's really been what the situation is and, and the reason it hasn't occurred. As far as Benjamin sees it, by the way, and he knows he's aware of the fact that we're not technically married. And I asked him, I said, do you care? And he'd tell me if he cared because he'll, he'll tell me honestly if he's unhappy about something or something bothers him. But he said, no, he doesn't care. Because he's known this, his whole life he's, he's seen both parents together and with him. That's the important thing, is he's got both parents who are together, and he doesn't have to split time or split houses or any of that stuff like divorced parents do. So, okay, great. I mean, that's that's all he needs. It, it looks just like a marriage to him, and he doesn't care about the technicality of it. So that that's really why. It's just there hasn't been that much of a push to make it happen. That's, I have a second question. This, this is also a little bit personal. As a poker poke, do you find it's easier to making making money or it's getting tougher and tougher? It's tougher definitely than it was like in the 2000s. There's no question there. Uh, as time has passed over the last 10 years, it has been fluctuating. Uh, online got harder and harder. As far as live poker goes, live poker is very, very dependent on who's in the game. And... Mm-hmm. There's various ways that the games that you're playing can change. Uh, sometimes it can be because a lot more fish are playing. Sometimes it can be that the best players are going elsewhere, either moving out of poker or moving to even bigger games. So like, there's players that used to be in games that I currently play that are now playing the nosebleed stakes and have no desire to come and play the games I'm in. And that's great because I don't have to deal with them. So in that way... Uh, some things have gotten easier in some other ways have gotten harder in that there's fewer outright fish in the game and there's fewer games going Uh, for a little time in the LA poker scene. Omaha got going This is Omaha high only limit that got going again after not being around for a very long time as a game that was spread. And a lot of Hold'em players were playing it not knowing what they were doing. And those games were great because uh, for a few months, there were these Hold'em players who were learning Omaha and, and screwing up big time and, and playing basically every hand and chasing and, and, and overvaluing hands that are good in Hold'em that aren't that great in Omaha. So things like that. And those were big money-making opportunities. Uh, however, since then, 
the players either learned and got better or the ones that were the worst at it just stopped playing Omaha. So uh, you have little cycles like that as well. So, you know, you, you've got to adjust with the game, and I, I try to do that. And that's uh, – so I just you, always you look at – is your income better than before? Well, it, it depends uh, compared to when, you know. And I, I want to get into all that, but it, it depends. It, you know, it goes up and down as far as... Uh, compared to uh, five, six years ago? Well, as I said, I, I don't want to get into all that, but I'll, I'll, I'll say that... Okay, that's okay, that's okay. Yeah, that's no, okay. but I'll, I'll, say, I'll say that it fluctuates usually based upon the opportunity. And, of course, luck is a matter, too. You, know, you can have these streaks where you're just doing a lot better than you should and streaks where you're doing a lot worse than you should. And, uh, uh, but there's also a lot of that is connected to how good the game is. Like, there, there, was, a game, okay. there was a game I had at the bike where I was down uh, over $10,000 in a 100-200 wow. game. And that's, you're usually not going to uh-huh. come back with that. But I came back. I, I came back and, and won in that game because it was that good of a game. And, in fact, even when I was down the 10000 while I thought I probably wasn't coming back, I actually thought it was possible because of how good the game was. And I did. Whereas oh, in, okay. in, in other games, I, I'll sometimes look and go, there's no way I'd get out of this hole. So... It it okay. uh, yeah. some some of these games can be so good you can look at it and say you know what no matter how far I am down I think I can get back from this if I just run decently and, and other times you can be there and say you know what unless I run spectacularly well I'm I'm screwed here and might as well just quit and go home so it depends. Oh, so far, uh, thank you for answering all that. I think you're doing a great job, and I always amazing how knowledgeable you have on it, not just poker on everything. I just I enjoy the show, so I hope you you're getting well and continue doing a great job. All right, well, thank you okay. very much, Tyrone. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Next topic is a BetMGM topic. I got an update on the BetMGM situation. Now, before I get going, I want to let you know that I have not forgotten what has happened to me. I still feel the sting of ten thousand dollars having been stolen out of my bank account by these thieves who had access to my personal information somehow and were able to use it so easily through BetMGM and Global Payments, their processor, to steal ten grand from me. And I had no control over this. I had no way to stop it. And I'm reminded of this every time I use that bank account because I've had to close that bank account and open up a different account. So every time... I use my new account, I go, oh, that sucks that I'm not using my old account anymore, that I've had to switch accounts, basically, over this bullshit that wasn't my fault and that I couldn't have prevented. So believe me, this is on my mind quite frequently, even though I don't actively talk about it as much anymore. And I'm still very interested in finding out who did it and what accomplices they had and any companies they might have worked for which might have been relevant to this. So believe me, I still have a tremendous interest in this entire matter. And I don't feel any of these companies really fully made it right. They may have paid some people back, but they haven't fully made it right. In fact, Global Payments is still shipping collections letters to people who got cheated here. They're being told they have to go through all these hoops to get out of collections when they were the victims. It's crazy. We talked about that on the last show. So this is not over as far as I'm concerned, even though I have my money back. And I will tell you that I know some things now 
related to the criminal investigation. And that's all I can say at this moment. I know some things related to the criminal investigation, and these things have not been made public. I will make these public eventually. And my guess is sometime in January, I will be making some things public regarding the criminal investigation. Maybe these things will come out before I can make them public, but there's a good chance they won't. There's a good chance I will be the one bringing them public. But I do know some things already, and that's all I can say at the moment. Anyway, the reason we're doing the update this week primarily is because of some recent news about BetMGM. There's some news involving BetMGM, which many people are attributing to being related to the story that we had from October and November, the bank thefts. And I have been looking at this carefully, and I'm not sure. It's very easy to jump to conclusions with things like this. And being someone who is good at investigating these things, I've learned never to jump to conclusions that are convenient or too obvious. You have to look at all angles and not just say, oh, it has to be this. So some news came out regarding BetMGM, and I want to discuss it with you guys. On December 21st, BetMGM sent this notice to a number of people. Not me, but to a number of people. Dear patron, we are writing to notify you of an issue that involves certain of your personal information. That's kind of awkwardly worded, but it was really from BetMGM. This was not a phishing email. We have learned that certain BetMGM patron records were obtained in an unauthorized manner. We believe that your information was contained in these records, which may have included details such as name, contact information such as postal address, email address, and telephone number, date of birth, hashed social security number, account identifiers such as player ID and screen name, and information related to your transactions with us. The affected information varied by patron. Uh Uh-oh. We promptly launched an investigation after learning of the matter and have been working with leading security experts to determine the nature and scope of the issue. We learned of this issue on November 28th, 2022, and believe the issue occurred in May 2022. We currently have no evidence that patron passwords or account funds were accessed in connection with this issue. Our online operators were not compromised. We are coordinating with law enforcement and taking steps to further enhance our security. Okay, so everybody jumped to the conclusion, okay, this is where the info came from. Remember, to do these thefts, these thefts that were committed against me and many other poker pros, fake BetMGM accounts were created in markets where the person was unlikely to have an account, like for me, West Virginia, that's where they did it to me. And they needed the victim's full name, address, date of birth, last four of their social, And that was it. They didn't have to match the email. They didn't have to match the phone number because they used fake ones for that. But with that information, they were able to just instantly get access to bank accounts I had previously used to deposit using global payments, the payment processor. And since I'd used them before with WSB.com, they had instant access to that bank account without even knowing that bank account number and were able to deposit $10,000 from my bank account. And then the same day, withdraw 7,500 of it to a different account, a fake account they made in my name 
with Venmo, and they withdrew it to a Venmo debit MasterCard. That's what they did. That was, that's what the scam was, if you remember. So they're writing right here to their patrons that they emailed individually, whoever was thought to be a victim of this, not me, was that in this May 2022 hack, they got the name, the address, the date of birth, the, quote, hashed social security number, which means the social security number was uh, encrypted, but uh, it's possible that it could have been uh, decrypted. That's why they're saying hashed social security number. It wasn't just the social out there that was easy to see, but it was uh, hashed. So if they could uh, crack that, then they would be able to get everyone social. And also possible uh, player ID names or account numbers and also all the person's transactions. So you'd think, okay, now we know the source, right? Bet MGM, it all matches. And the issue occurred in May and they discovered it November 28th, probably because they were investigating their system after what had happened in October and early November. Hey, it all makes sense, right? Well, not so fast. Why? Well, let's look at me. I never had a BetMGM account. So if this personal information was harvested from BetMGM, then how did they hit me? Because I didn't have an account there. They couldn't have stolen this information on me because my information wasn't there. So at least in my case, they got the information from somewhere else. Now, is it possible that these same people did this? Yes. Is it possible this is done and they got some of their info this way and that they got some of the info elsewhere? Yes. But this isn't super likely. What still seems most likely to me is that the entity that was connected to all of this, which was global payments, because remember, it wasn't just done with BetMGM. It was also done with Viejas. And Viejas has nothing to do with BetMGM. Viejas is an Indian casino in California. So the common factor with all of this was global payments. So it would make sense that someone had access to the global payments database in some way. Maybe a rogue employee, maybe someone who had breached them. I don't know. But that is my guess still at the moment. And I told you I knew some things, but I don't know yet how this was done. So I am still guessing at that part. My info was obtained from somewhere. And it's not just so simple to go get someone's info on the dark web like this. That's not how it works. You can't just go onto the dark web and search for someone to sell you Todd Wittellis' info. It doesn't work that way. Uh, usually what you'd have to do is buy a gigantic dump of some data and then hope that the person you're looking for is in there. But that's very hit and miss. So to me, it looks more likely since this was hitting so many different players. And since global payments was the common denominator in all of it, I still think that there was some kind of breach in some way in global payments records and that that's where the information was harvested. I don't know that for sure. That's just my guess at the moment. But this whole thing with BetMGM, while indicative that their security just sucks even more than we thought, because they, they really screwed up the previous one, as I told you about. Forget this hack here. The fact that they would let someone create an account, deposit 10K without any ID checks, and withdraw to a different bank account on the same day without ever playing, that is a 
Tremendous lack of security. Tremendous. It's unbelievable they let this happen. So yes, you can blame global payments for a lot of this, but not only global payments. And as I said, when I spoke to one of their managers there, and the guy said, I just wanted to be clear that I, meaning him, was was not, I'm not saying anything that other companies were at fault here. I'm not blaming them. And I said, oh, you don't have to say it. I'm saying it. I'm saying that I blame them and your company. It's not just global payments who screwed up here. So BetMGM also royally screwed up here. And apparently they screwed up a second time. <laughs> In fact, I guess it was the first time because it happened back in May. It just wasn't discovered till November 28th. So it's possible that none of this was used in this hack or in the uh, the DraftKings stuff that occurred. But also maybe it was. Remember on DraftKings, they were getting in with people's passwords and uh, withdrawing funds and doing that same thing with the bank account thefts through global payments. I still think that's connected. This, not so much. The DraftKings thing I thought was connected because there were a lot of similarities in the MO. There are a few differences, but a lot of similarities, and one began just as the other was winding down. This was something that occurred back in May, and it doesn't match with how they would have gotten my info. So this could just be more indications that BetMGM has absolute shit security, or at least had absolute shit security. And that's very disappointing because regulated gambling is supposed to prevent things like this. And this wasn't that some kind of master hacker broke into a system that was thought to be secure. These were gaping security holes. And I don't know about this particular data breach because they're not explaining how it happened. But the thing that happened to me was just a tremendous procedural fail regarding security. It was mind-bogglingly stupid that they allowed this. It's shocking that even from the federal requirements to prevent money laundering that they would allow something like this, even if no fraud was involved. People just shouldn't be allowed to deposit 10K and withdraw 7,500 to a different bank account. That just shouldn't be allowed, period, on the same day at all. They just say, we can't do, you can't do this. If you're going to put 10K in and you have second thoughts and want to take it out, you've got to ship it right back to the same bank account. The fact that they let that happen at all is insane. I just got a message from somebody. I don't think they're listening right now. I think it's a coincidence they messaged me right now. Someone has been having some contacts with a uh, detective involving this whole bank theft matter. So yeah, I may have some news for you on the next show. If not then, pretty soon. This isn't something that's being swept under the rug or forgotten about. Let me just say that. And I'm not talking about myself here. Even if I completely divorced myself from this entire matter and said I will never speak of it again or deal with it again, there's already the uh, wheels turning here. Let's just say that. That's all I've got for the moment here. But yeah, stay tuned. We've got some updates for sure. Maybe soon enough I'll have a name for you or several names as to who did this and we'll get more information. I have a feeling there's going to be a serious criminal case over this. I have a feeling some people are going to be facing the music for this. And we'll be following very, very closely. In fact, I will be very happy to 
testify in this matter. Very happy to do so. Oh, look at the time. Look at the time. You guys know what time it is already? I can tell you what time it is. It is time for Druffy Time Theater. Ah, It's been a while since you had this, but um, yes, it's coming back. Dandruff said, you know, with all the things we have to talk about tonight, the show may end up 10 hours, but let's make it 11 by telling a frivolous story from quite more than a decade ago. Nothing anyone really cares about or has any impact on the world, but uh, he's going to waste my time and yours and his speaking of this frivolous matter. On with it. Yes, it is Druffy Time Theater, introduced once again by Colonel Fabersham. This is a segment which we do every so often where I tell you stories from my past and I try to entertain you all with my follies in life or with customer service or with companies acting stupidly. This segment is not a serious segment. It is one just here to break up the seriousness and the monotony and just to entertain you, just to give you a few laughs and to give you some examples of how stupidly some companies behave sometimes and what I have to go through. Like many stories in Druffy Time Theater, this is something that goes back a ways. By the way, not all Druffy Time Theater is about me versus companies. Sometimes it's just personal stories, but this one is me versus a company. And this goes back to the 2000s. And it's a Christmas story. It really is. And here we are. It's actually Christmas Eve now. It's December 24th as I'm broadcasting this now. So here we are on Christmas Eve. And I want to tell you an actual dandruff Christmas story. It's very heartwarming. And it wouldn't belong on any other episode besides this one. So what I'm going to do is... I'm going to throw a Yule log on the fireplace. There we go. Because we can't have a story without uh, a fire. So we've got the fireplace going. Let me uh, take some logs out of there so it's not as loud. Okay, that's a little bit better. Let me tell you the Dandruff Christmas story. It involves DirecTV. DirecTV, of course, is a television provider. It's an alternative to having cable. You receive your television transmissions via satellite, and you have a satellite dish somewhere on your property, and you receive the same channels, basically, as you would from the cable company. There's some variance, there's some differences, but they're kind of along the same lines as far as the service you receive. This was my first time with DirecTV, and I was reminded of this story because I read about how DirecTV is losing their NFL Sunday ticket, which they've had since 1994. It was actually a big selling point to NFL fans who wanted to be able to watch a lot of different games. And... This is especially appealing to sports bettors who wanted to be able to easily watch NFL games they were betting on. 
So NFL Sunday Ticket is now going to be on YouTube. And it's not going to be a DirecTV product anymore. Hold on, I'm going to blow out this fire here. It's annoying me. <sighs> anyway, I had DirecTV. And this was in the 2000s. And I was getting DirecTV installed. So they uh, scheduled me for a Christmas Eve installation. So today is the anniversary of this. It's a Christmas Eve installation. And I said, oh, really? So your people work on Christmas Eve? And they said, yes. And I said, okay, that's good. Because some places don't want to do things like this on Christmas Eve. Some places just would not make a DirecTV-type install available on Christmas Eve. Because if you think about uh, Christmas Eve, a lot of people want to be with family that day. It's not just Christmas Day when people wake up in the morning and open presents and then have the rest of the day to themselves. It actually makes more sense to be working on Christmas Day after the morning festivities are over than Christmas Eve where a lot of people like to get together. So I was surprised they were going to do it on Christmas Eve, but I was happy. Now, this wasn't all that close to Christmas Eve. I think I scheduled this on like uh, December 8th or something, so... It's not like I scheduled this on the 22nd or 23rd. So when they told me Christmas Eve, I said, are you sure this is going to work out? Because if it isn't, then go ahead and put it on the 26th. It'll be fine. But they said, no, uh, we will be there on Christmas Eve. It's a third-party installer. All of our installers are third-party companies. So it's not going to be DirecTV employees coming down to install this, but it's going to be a company in my local area that contracted to install DirecTV. So I said, okay, that's fine. And you're really sure they're going to be here. It's not going to be any issue with Christmas Eve, right? Look, they wouldn't make it available unless they could be there, I was told. But I just had a funny feeling something was going to go wrong. I just had a funny feeling this Christmas Eve thing was not going to work out. But they were assuring me they're not going to schedule it on Christmas Eve if Christmas Eve is not a possibility. I wasn't asking for Christmas Eve, but they gave me Christmas Eve. So I said, okay, fine. So we get to Christmas Eve. My appointment was scheduled for like 12.30 p.m. I think 12.30 to 4 or something was the window I had to be there. And when they schedule that, that is when you have to be there. You don't have to be there a moment before or a moment after. Now, once in a while, they'll fall behind and, uh, you know, they'll get there a little after the scheduled window and you have a right to say no will reschedule, but if you don't want the pain in the ass of rescheduling, let's say I have the window of uh, 12.30 to 4.30 and they can't get there till 4.45, I'm not going to kick them out. I'll uh, let them in because I don't want to reschedule. But you definitely don't have to be there before the time it begins. Well, I played poker that night before until very late. So I was very tired. In fact, I had... uh, gone to sleep, I think it's something like 7 a.m. And I'm woken up with a phone call at like 9.15 a.m. And it's a phone number of uh, something I didn't recognize in the caller ID. And I answered it and they said that they were the installers. And so I thought maybe they're just checking that I'm going to really be there at 12.30 and they were just verifying this is all still on. So they said, we're ready to come now. Can you let us in? And I said, whoa, 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 hold on. Um, 
isn't the time 12.30? They said, well, it is, but um, we need to do it now, they told me. So I'm half asleep, and I'm thinking, do I want to do this? I was so exhausted. I had slept for about two hours. I said, well, when do you want to come? Well, we were gonna, we're, well, we're 15 minutes away. We'll be there at 9.30. And I'm just thinking, no, I, I don't want this. My time was 12.30 to 4.30, and I left the poker session at a time to where I would be able to get some sleep to where I wasn't going to be like super exhausted to have to wake up to let them in. But I'm not going to wake up after two hours of sleep for this shit. That's The reason I stayed up so late is because they were not supposed to be here till 12.30. And this isn't my problem. In fact, I didn't have to even answer the phone. My commitment was only 12.30. Before 12.30, I didn't have to be anywhere. I could, I could be hiding out. I could be not answering the phone. I could be anywhere in the world. I do not have to be there to let them in until 12.30 sharp. That's the way all these appointments go. Now, if they called up and said, hey, uh, we're in your area a little bit early. Can you let us in at 12.15? I'm not going to say no. But they wanted to come at 9.30 instead of 12.30, and I was exhausted. If I wasn't exhausted, it would be no big deal that I let them in. But I had slept for two hours. I just didn't want to. And I was so tired. And I just thought, no, like, I'm not getting anything out of this. This is not my problem. I don't know why they want to come three hours early, but no, this is not something I need to do for them because it's, it's going to put me out. I got to stand there exhausted while they're doing all this shit when I shouldn't. So F them. So I politely told them, I'm sorry, I just can't make it. You're going to have to wait till 1230. So the guy is really unhappy. And he says, we can't make it at 1230. I said, well, that's my time scheduled. He says, I know that, but we can't make it. I said, well, what about some time between 1230 and 430? No, we can't make that either. We're either coming at 930 or we're not coming at all. And I said, how can you do that? My appointment was 1230 to 430. So much like I couldn't demand you come at 930, you can't demand that I'm there for you at 930. And he said, well, it's Christmas Eve, and we had a lot of people cancel who work here. So therefore, we have limited availability today, and we can only do it here at 930. Now, that might be true. What might have happened is that the afternoon crew may have canceled because they wanted to be with their family. So they only could do morning jobs. So they wanted to squeeze in the afternoon jobs into the morning as well as they could. And they just didn't have much staff in the afternoon. However, this still wasn't my problem. I had the agreement with them, DirecTV, and they're the subcontractor of DirecTV, to come between 1230 and 430. And I made my sleep schedule according to that. I'm just not getting up after two hours of sleep when I was up a very long time. So it wasn't even like a normal day of two hours of sleep. I was up a really long time playing poker all night. I hadn't gotten sleep in a long time, just starting to sleep for two hours. And now I've got to get up and let them in three hours early because uh, they were having staffing issues. I just, no, I, I don't want to. So I said, I'm sorry, but I can't do it. I didn't explain the whole thing about sleeping and all that. I just said, I can't make it. I'm sorry. They said, well, okay, well, you're going to have to call to reschedule. We're going to cancel you. I go, whoa, 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 hold on. You can't cancel me. They said, oh, we can. You're refusing. I said, I'm not refusing. I'm going to be here for that entire window from 1230 to 430 as you promised to be here. Just because you want to come three hours early when I'm not available, I don't have to let you in. I can't do it at 930, so I told him. I said, I was never told I have to do it at 930. I can't make it at 930. I'm not available for it. So come at your scheduled time, please. 
And he said, nope, we're going to cancel this. And it will be probably about three weeks till we'll be able to come back because we're very, very busy. A lot of people are getting direct TV for the holidays. We're very, very busy. Our next opening is about three weeks away. So if you want to wait with three weeks with no TV, fine. Otherwise, you can let us come. I was furious about this. I didn't know what to do. So I could sit there with no TV for three weeks. This is a new place I'm moving into. And like, it didn't matter between like when I called and when uh, the 24th came because I was still living somewhere else. But, but now I was living in this place and uh, I was going to just have no TV for the next three weeks if I did not let them in at 930. And they just said, they're going to cancel me. They're just going to outright cancel me. And then I can deal with DirecTV about this. And they're telling me it's going to be three weeks or more. So I figured, okay, fine. I, I, I guess I'm going to have to back down on this one for now. Let them install it. And then call up and yell at DirecTV over this whole matter. So I did. They came in. I could tell they had a chip on their shoulder because there was a lot of arguing prior to this. So even though I ultimately let them come at 930, they were pissed at me for not just saying yes. Nobody was outright rude to me, but I could tell they kind of were already pissed at me. And they seemed to be doing the work. And, you know, they went up on the roof and put the dish there and uh, ran the wires and all that. And they showed me how to use it. And everything seemed standard as far as that went, as far as uh, the work that was done. But as I said, they seemed a little bit resentful. And then they were done with the job and uh, everything seemed to work. And they went on their way. I called DirecTV. I complained about this. They gave me some kind of small credit for the inconvenience. And that seemed to be that. So it was a frustrating thing to have happen. And I shouldn't have had to deal with this shit. I should have like not answered the phone. That, that was my mistake was answering the phone. Because if I didn't answer, they probably would have come at 1230. But the fact that they got me on the phone and got me to have to uh, either refuse and have them cancel me or agree to let them come. Like if they just couldn't reach me, they'd have a harder time canceling me. I guess they could have anyway, but uh, I think if I didn't answer, then they would have come. I think they were trying to browbeat anyone they could to let them come early. So I thought that was done, but as I was using DirecTV, while I mostly liked it and I didn't have that many issues with it going out because of the weather, because this isn't really a, Western U.S. thing. It's more of a Eastern U.S. thing and Central U.S. thing, which has a lot of bad weather, like snow. So I'm thinking, all right, the service itself is fine, but there's one thing about DirecTV that really sucks, I thought to myself. I cannot record something on the DVR and watch something else at the same time, whereas with cable, I could. I remember with cable that... uh, I could record something and then go to another channel and watch something else. So if there were two things I wanted to watch at the same time, I was screwed. There was no way to do it. And that was very frustrating. But I just kind of learned to deal with it. I thought that was just a limitation of DirecTV. I thought there's just one-way cable was better. So I lived with this for like three years. And then just one day, I just thought to myself, you know, this just doesn't make any sense. This is a tremendous flaw. This makes DirecTV way inferior to the cable company if you can't watch TV on a different channel than what you're recording. If you can't do that, then cable's just much better. 
<laughs> if you're going to have a DVR. So how can nobody be complaining about this? Why, why don't I hear this as a common complaint? So I Googled it, and I was shocked to see that you actually can watch a different channel than what you're recording. So I thought, oh my God, I've been living this way for three years, and I didn't realize that I should have been able to do this all along. But why? Why can't I? Because I've tried it. It just uh, it won't work. It will demand that I have to stop recording if I'm going to change the channel. So how, how can everybody else do this? And I can't. So I called up DirecTV Tech Support. And the first thing the guy told me to do is go take a look at the box and make sure that both wires are connected to the back. So I took a look on the back and I said, uh, sir, there's not two wires. There's one wire. There's one coaxial cable connected to the back. He said, oh, the other one fell off? I said, no, the other one didn't fall off. The other one is missing. He said, oh, well, that's exactly why. You need both of these coaxial cables connected to the box in order to watch one thing and record another, which makes sense if you think about it. I mean, that's not the way cable works, but I guess that's the way they work, that they had to have two different feeds in there. And he said, with only one, then that limits you to only accessing one channel at a time in any way. So that's why if you're recording one thing, if you try to switch to something else, it'll make you stop recording because you only have that one wire connected. So I said, okay, but that doesn't make any sense why there is no second wire here. He said, I don't know. Are you sure it didn't fall off somewhere? So I was looking and there just simply was never a wire that came out of the wall into that box. There's never a second wire at all. And I said, wait a minute. Is it possible the installer just screwed up and never did that second wire? And the guy said, well, that's what it sounds like. If you don't see one at all, it sounds like they just never hooked up that second wire at all. And I said, how could that possibly happen? How could a DirecTV installer who does this for a living several times every day, how could they not know this? And he said, that's a very good question. I don't know how they wouldn't know this. Uh, to me, it kind of seems like you got a lousy installer who just wanted to cut corners and leave early. And I thought, oh, crap. That's what happened. These assholes, either out of resentment of me refusing them at first with coming at 930 and having a big argument about it, or just because they had a whole lot to do that day because they had a lot of uh, workers who didn't want to come in because it was Christmas Eve. They decided to only do half a job. They decided they did not want to run a second wire. In fact, uh, maybe there wasn't an existing wire coming through the wall from the cable. I'm assuming there wasn't a second wire, so it probably was a lot of additional work to run an entire second wire. So it probably was a lot easier to just uh, slap the dish on the roof and use the existing coaxial cable coming through the wall and hook it up to the box and they're done than to have to run an entire second wire from the satellite down to the the connection to the box. They probably just decided to skip this. One, to save time. Two, because they thought I was an asshole anyway. They said, screw this guy who was a dick about not letting us come at the time we wanted to. Now, maybe they would have done it anyway, even if I wasn't a dick about this. But And I wasn't being a dick, to be honest. I'm saying from their perspective. I mean, I, I had every right to refuse this. But I ultimately let them, and they did this anyway. 
So I thought, oh my God, okay, so well, I got to get this fixed. So I said, okay, so when can you send somebody to fix this? And he said, well, uh, let's see, uh, we can get someone down there next week and uh, it'll be $150. (laughs) I said, what? Well, yeah, it's $150 for any kind of technical service call, he told me. I said, no, this is completing a job that wasn't done right three years ago. And he said back to me, oh, I know that, but you should have noticed it three years ago. (laughs) I said, it's not like the service just didn't work. And three years later, I'm calling up to complain about it. I thought I just couldn't do it. I had no idea that this was something that needed the second wire. Because the cable company, you don't need two wires connected to the box. So why was I supposed to think this? I just assumed this is the way it worked. And it took a while for me to Google this and find out that this was actually a flaw. So obviously, I can prove I have the smoking gun that this wasn't done right in the first place because the wire just isn't in the wall. So you can't claim that uh, I did anything wrong. Obviously, they never put it in the first place. The wire can't just disappear. It's not like the wire went bad or something. The wire's just not there. So if the wire's not there, they didn't put it there, and the installation itself was faulty. He says, yeah, I understand that, but again, it's $150 for a service call. (laughs) And even though the guy up till this point was nice enough and logical enough, he just couldn't understand why I shouldn't have to be charged for this. I was thinking it was going to be the opposite. I was thinking they'd send a person for free to fix this, and then I was going to negotiate some kind of credit for my substandard service all this time. But no, they actually wanted to charge me for having this fixed. And they said, well, look, we've got to pay the installer every time they come down, so we can't lose money from this. We can't pay them and have you not pay us. I said, once again, the installer screwed me. Take it out of them. (laughs) Whoever installed it three years ago, take it out of their budget. Take it out of what you pay them. If it's a different company or if it's the same company, whatever, you know, go after them for the money, however you have to. Don't go after me. They couldn't get it. So I asked for a supervisor. They put a supervisor on. I told the supervisor the whole story. And she says to me, Well, I'm very sorry for all this inconvenience you had with this, sir, and I'm sure you are very frustrated. Unfortunately, it is our policy to charge you $150 for every service call visit. (laughs) I felt like I was in the twilight zone. I felt like I was the only logical person on Earth and that everybody else is acting like they're logical, but they're completely spewing nonsense. I said, do you understand? I want you to come back and fix something that your installers probably maliciously didn't hook up, and I can prove they didn't hook it up. I can't prove why, but I can prove they didn't hook it up, and you know I can because the wire's just not there. They did a substandard job with installing it, and I've had substandard service for the last three years for this reason, and I just want you to fix this for me, and you won't without charging me. How does it make sense that I should have to pay when this was done to me? I was the victim here. Why should I have to pay to fix it? I'm sorry for the inconvenience, sir, but our policy is we can never allow a service call for free. (laughs) 
So I didn't know what I was going to do at this point. I, I, I wasn't going to pay $150. There was no chance. So I was thinking about what do I do now? Obviously, I'm not going to continue with DirecTV service if this is what they're going to do to me. But beyond that, what do I do? Do I sue them? Would I have any case? Like, like what do I do? I'm, I'm just like scratching my head going, what do I do? So I just hung up on that supervisor. Called back, got another person, tried to plead my case with them. Same thing, same thing. We understand. We understand everything that happened. Sorry, there's just no way. It has to be $150. And they just give such stupid reasoning. A little different from each person, the reason they would give, but it would always come back to no. Not only can't we do it, but we don't understand why you want us to do it. We don't understand why you're expecting us to do it. It wasn't even like, yes, you deserve it. There's just no way to make the system do it. They actually were reasoning to me why I'm wrong. Reasoning to me that... That's just the way it works. Every service calls 150 bucks. They have to pay the company that. And this was a while back. This was three years ago. So uh, what's my problem? So I hung up on that person. And I cooled off the rest of the day, tried it the next day. And I said, this is the last call. After this, I'm just going to shut the whole thing down and decide if I want to sue them or something or make a complaint to the state about this. I, I don't know. But whatever this is, I'm, I'm not going to just let this go. So I called up. And I got someone, and I explained it again. And that person seemed kind of more willing to agree with me that I got screwed hard here and that there's got to be something that can be done. So, like, at first they gave me this whole line, they can't do anything about it, and then they said, you know what? Yeah, I kind of see your point, and yeah, this is uh, really messed up that you should have to pay anything more. Let me see what I can do for you. So this person ended up getting me their supervisor, and... uh I guess probably told them that I they, they agree that I have a point and uh, that supervisor came on and was much better than everybody else. So that person immediately agreed that they should not charge me for this. And they said, we really apologize that uh, the previous reps were refusing this. So I, I don't understand why they were refusing that. Obviously, we didn't do the job. And I said, I know I, I can prove it. The worst thing is I can prove I'm not just claiming that they put some bad equipment in or something that could have just broken down yesterday. This wire is just not there. So obviously, this was either huge negligence or intentional. And I don't see why they won't complete it. Basically, they didn't complete the job three years ago. I'm asking them to come down and now complete it. And for you to say no doesn't make any sense. And she said, I know, I, I don't understand why everybody was saying no to you, because this seems like the least we can do for you is complete this job. So, okay, thank goodness I've got that. Then I moved to the next discussion. I said, all right, now that we've gotten that out of the way, to be honest, I've been paying for DVR service all this time and was not able to use it fully because any, I, I wanted to be able to watch something and record something else, and there was no way for me to do it. So if there were two shows I like on at the same time, I had to just lose one because there was no other way to get them both. I couldn't watch one and record the other. I had to just record something or watch something, but not both. So she says, I know, yeah, I'm sorry about that. And I said, and I thought this was a limitation of DirecTV. It turned out it wasn't because of this uh, intentional half job that was done. So since I've paid for DVR service, a separate charge for the last three years, can you give me some of the money back? Well, I could tell here she was already starting to get irritated because here she thought she's doing me this gigantic favor by waiving this $150. And now uh, 
I have the nerve to be demanding even more. Fortunately, I don't have a Jewish last name, so I couldn't get stereotyped. If my name was like Finkelstein, I have a feeling this would have been even worse. But yeah, I, I mean, I was right. Just because I finally talked them into fixing the mistake they made three years ago to just finishing a job they didn't complete, that didn't mean I wasn't entitled to money back for a service that I only half got all this time. I wasn't asking for customer service credits. I wasn't just saying for my trouble, give me this. I was saying I did not get full DVR service because of this. So not only do I want you to fix it now, but I want something back for the last three months of not being able to watch the way I should have been able to watch. So she came back with, no, you did have full DVR service because anything you wanted to record, you could record. And I said, yes, but again, a lot of times people use the DVR so they can record something and they can watch something else. So something that has a conflict where there's two shows at the same time they like, they can watch them both. That's the whole point. It's not just to record shows when you're not there to watch them. So I didn't have the full use of the DVR. The full use is one that would allow me to watch something else at the same time. So finally, she backed down on that. She wasn't happy at this point. At the beginning, she was very apologetic and and kind of even felt bad for me because these other people weren't even letting me fix the problem for free. But then she kind of saw me as someone trying to extract extra things out of them. Once she gave me an inch, I was trying to take a mile, which I wasn't. I just wanted what was fair. So she gave me some kind of credit. I don't remember anymore because it's been so long. She gave me some kind of credit I felt was acceptable or at least the most I was going to get at that time. So I got the free, which should have been free, of course, uh, repair appointment. And then I was able to uh, get some kind of credit back on my bill for the DVR service that wasn't fully functional for all those years. It wasn't a huge credit. Like I... I really deserved more than they gave me, but it was something like, okay, I'll I'll take it because it had been three years and I guess they could say I I should have discovered this earlier or I should have asked about it earlier. So, okay. This was an ordeal to say the least. It's not like I just called up and they instantly offered this to me. I had to fight, 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 fight to even get this fixed for, for free. I had to go through like five reps. So I stayed around for a while and... You owned the equipment on DirecTV. Uh, It wasn't like the cable company where they were just uh, renting you a box and then take it back from you when you're done. Here you're actually buying the equipment. So what happened was my DVR, after uh, a few more years, or maybe not even a few more years, maybe like two more years or something, but it started to malfunction. Something started to go wrong with it. And, you know, that's a chance you take. I wasn't going to ask for any money back for that because... You know, I had it for several years, and it, it started to break down, and that, that could happen. That's the risk you take by owning the equipment. So I was looking into getting new equipment, and I called up the retentions department, and I said, can I at least have a break here? And I said, go look in the notes. You'll see this whole ordeal I went through, and I explained the, to the guy the entire thing, and it was all noted, and he was able to go back and take a look. So he did go back and look. And he fully acknowledged this all happened, and he fully acknowledged that I wasn't treated well here. He fully acknowledged that the fact that I had to go through like five different reps to get them to agree to fix this at all without charging me was insane. So like, he was not denying that I was correct in what I was asking for, 
and that it was an ordeal I shouldn't have had to go through, and that it was obnoxious that the installation in the first place that they threatened to cancel the whole thing if I wouldn't let them come three hours early, and then they did a half job either as a fuck you to me or because they just wanted to rush through it, or both. So he agreed that I didn't have the best experience with them, and I had the smoking gun proof of the whole thing. So I said, given all of this, and since you agree with me, this is all unacceptable, can you give me some kind of break on the new equipment? And I get back from him. Well, sir, again, uh, I'm sorry for everything you had to go through. And I have read all the notes and I do believe everything you say. And and this is not the standard we hold at DirecTV. And I'm really sorry that uh, this all happened. And you definitely went through some things that we don't want to see our customers go through. And we definitely made some mistakes. But we don't ever give discounts on equipment. I'm sorry. I said, okay. Next question. If I buy the equipment for the normal price, can you give me any discount on the service maybe for a year or so? Uh, yes, I'm sorry, sir. We can't give you any discounts. But like he, he wanted to do nothing. I said, well, you understand like my experience with DirecTV has sucked big time. Like first, the installation was a disaster. And then fixing the problem for the installation years later was a disaster. Yes, and I'm very sorry about that, sir, and I agree that this was not up to our standards, but uh, we'll do better in the future. I go, okay, you know what? So you're, you're just not going to give me anything? Nope. I said, okay. I will be canceling service, and I switched to the cable company. That was it. No more DirecTV for me then or now. Haven't had them since. All thanks to the Christmas Eve installation. I bet if I had the installation like on the 26th of December instead of the 24th, I bet none of this would have happened. I bet it would have been done right. I bet they wouldn't have demanded to come three hours early. I bet that I wouldn't have had to fight about this later. Like I, I bet none of this would have happened. Nor would I have ever even pictured it being possible it could happen. But I remember those phone calls when they were treating me like I was the crazy one for not wanting to pay $150 to fix this when I had the proof that they didn't install it right in the first place. And they were trying to reason with me why I was the one wrong. It would have been better if they just said, yeah, we fully agree with you. There's just no way to do it. The computer won't let us. I I wouldn't have accepted that, but at least that would have been less insulting. They actually were trying to explain to me why I was wrong. And you know, it's moments like that where I do take some satisfaction out of helping people when companies are screwing them. Because there's these nonsense things that happen. There's these things that happen to people where they just get screwed. They just get victimized. And where they're treated like they are the crazy ones for objecting to it. And a lot of people, in fact, most people are not as persistent as I am. So they just let it happen. I bet like 95 plus percent of customers there would have just paid the 150 and had it fixed. And grumbled about it, but they would have just paid it. So that was my uh, Druffy Time Christmas Theater. I hope you enjoyed it. Next, we're going to talk about Ethan Rampage Yao and the controversy involving bullet number two. And it's interesting because I went through something similar, though on a much smaller scale, both monetarily and as far as its potential public fallout. But I went through this four years ago, so I know exactly what he was going through. But let me explain what happened. 
He played in the WPT Win High Roller event, which had a 25K buy-in. And he ended up winning it. But he did not win on his first bullet. He bought in for 25K for his first bullet, but he didn't have all of himself in that event. He sold part of himself through a site called Stake Kings, which basically is a site that you can use to sell part of your action, or even all of your action, I guess. But you can sell action through Stake Kings. And he sold some of his action. He sold a 25% for a total of, uh, I guess, 62.50 plus markup. Because this is a quarter of 25K. So he was selling at, uh, I'm not even sure what markup, but it's not really important here. He was selling a a part of himself up to 25% on Stake Kings, and I, I guess it sold out. So he busted that bullet, and he had not originally thought he was going to enter a second time. But at the very last minute, he decided he is going to enter again, and this time it was going to be on his own dime, because the Stake King's sale was only for the first bullet. There's no way to transfer it over to the second bullet once he's already busted, because at that point, what everybody bought was worth zero. So you can't give anyone a piece from zero dollars worth of equity they have in you. They owned a quarter of him in that first bullet. He busted that was worth zero to him and to them. And then anything he plays beyond that is on his own dime. So that's what happened. He wrote on December 11th at 8.49 p.m. YOLO it is. 100% of bullet two incoming. Either tweeting that I'm out in three hands or chip leading with no in between. So he's saying he's going to try to run it up immediately because he's coming in fairly late and trying to run up that starting stack again to something big. Well, he did. And as I said, he won the event for $894,000. That was a nice hit. Rampage is a young guy. I think he's like 23 or 24 years old. And he is best known for his streaming of his poker play. So he was a Twitch streamer who got a pretty big following that way. But he is pretty new to the poker community. And a lot of his followers are not ones who are very experienced with poker. They don't really know how all the staking stuff works. So a lot of these people who bought pieces of him were not people who normally buy pieces of poker players. A lot of these are just fans of his from Twitch. There became this situation where there's an optics problem. He sold 25% of himself through Stake Kings for bullet number one, many of whom who bought it that were just people who were fans who don't really understand the way all this works, busted that, and then bought in a second time on his own dime and won. So it looks really strange when people owned a quarter of him, so they thought, that he wins it for 894k, and then because of this technicality in their eyes that it was the second bullet, they end up getting 0.0. Now, to anyone who can think logically about this or who understands the way poker staking works, it totally makes sense. Because, again, they are only buying bullet number one. 
And some people who didn't understand well said, hey, wait a minute. If he answers a second bullet, why can't we just have 50% of both bullets? Well, because that's not fair to him. Because if he wins the whole thing on the first bullet, would they be happy if he gives them only half of what they bought? Of course not. He can't just say, well, I'm giving you 50% of this bullet because I would have bought a second had I busted. I just didn't bust, so you only get 50%. He couldn't do that. He would be cheating them if he did that. So the same token, you cannot say, well, I busted the first one where you had a piece of me, so on this second one, uh, you get 50% because now it splits them. It doesn't work that way. Each bullet that you buy is separate from each other. So when you're buying a piece of him and he's entering the first time, that's all you have. And there's no way around that. There's no way to adjust it after the fact. And it's for the simple fact that when he busts the first bullet, then the value of what they bought is zero. And then you can't turn zero into anything but zero. So the only way that they could have a piece of the second bullet would be if they paid separately for it and there was not time to sell this or collect any money from anyone or even announce this because he decided at the very, very last minute before they were closing registration that he was going to enter a second time. So he did nothing wrong here. If he wanted to enter a second time and he had only sold one bullet's worth, then it had to be on his own dime. There's no other way to do it. So that's what he did, and he won. But the problem he had was the optics. Because again, remember, this is not all that easy to understand for someone who doesn't know poker staking that well and can't really reason this out themselves to understand it. So he was afraid that this was going to be a PR disaster, even if the poker community would totally understand what he did and why he did it. So he was trying to figure out what he should do about this. And he came up with kind of a middle ground solution. He said, catching a sun run right now, referring to a really, really good run at the table, from 200k starting stack to 1.3 million current stack, if I somehow win, everyone who bought will get a refund from the first bullet. So that's what he thought was the least he could do for these people. He said, hey, these people bought the first bullet. I busted it. If I win on the second bullet, these people won't make money, but at least they won't lose money. I'll give them back everything they paid for the first bullet, even though they're not technically entitled to it. That's basically what he's saying there. Well, at one point, it looked like this was going to be a non-issue because he chunked off most of what he had. And he wrote, I'm going to bubble this 25K and it's going to suck. Preparing for it now. 12 left, 11 pay, I'm last in chips. So he was 12th out of 12 in chips when only 11 spots paid. So he he was feeling like this is going to be it and he's going to bust. But somehow he turned it around and won the whole thing. So he was so happy that he did this, he decided to give them even more than he claimed. He said, giving everyone who bought action on State Kings the first bullet a full refund plus two times. LFG, standing for let's fucking go. So now they were going to make a profit. Now they were all going to triple their money. So they're going to get back what they paid, and then they're going to get two times that additionally. So let's say you bought $100 worth of him. Now you're going to get uh, $300 back. That's what he's saying. Now, obviously, this is generous. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to give him anything. However, he started taking heat from people 
that he shouldn't have done this. Now, most of the heat he was getting was from poker pros who fully understood that nobody was entitled to anything, and they were mad the opposite way. They said that he should not give anyone anything because it sets a bad precedent for poker staking, that now this is going to create an expectation that when a similar situation occurs with others, that they're going to have to give money because Rampage did. So he got a lot of heat from people over that, and he even got a little bit of heat from some people the other way who didn't understand, who thought that he should give these people even more, or maybe give them half his action because he played two bullets, not understanding how you can't do that once you've busted the first one. The only way you can account for multi-bullet entries is to account for it before you enter both bullets. So basically what you have to do is either sell both bullets separately and then let people buy either one or both, or sell both bullets together and have people understand they're going to have 50% of one and 50% of the other. So if they buy 1% of you, you're actually getting 0.5% of bullet number one and 0.5% of bullet number two. And of course, then you'll get a refund for whatever bullet he doesn't play. But unless you arrange this beforehand, there's no way to do this on the fly. You can't just do this after you've busted only selling one bullet. The second bullet, there's no way to administer this, especially when you've got minutes left to register. I was in this spot, before I get into the whole thing of the controversy he had, I'll tell you about the spot I was in. Four years ago, I played the $1,500 Mixed Omaha event, which I didn't realize you could enter multiple times. Because I was used to 1500 events like the 1500 Limit Hold'em, where you could not re-enter. But for whatever reason, they allow one re-entry for the 1500 Mixed Omaha, which is PLO, Big O, and Omaha 8, and they rotate between them. So you can do one re-entry on that, and also one re-entry on the $1,500 PLO 8 event, which is kind of similar. So I didn't realize this. And in 2018, I busted the 1500 Mixed Omaha on my first bullet, thinking it was my only bullet I could use. And then I learned from somebody that it was possible to re-enter. So what do I do? I had sold a package that people bought pieces of me, but this second bullet was not part of the package because I didn't know you even could enter a second bullet. Rampage, in this case, knew you could. He just thought he wasn't going to, probably because it was 25K. In my case, I would have had I known, but I didn't know, but I did learn it during the event. So I still had the opportunity to re-enter. And that's when I realized there was nothing I could do. I was trying to think of a solution, but I go, no, there's, there's no solution to this because there's no way I can get a hold of everybody and have them send me money in that short period of time. I, I want to get back in and play. I don't even want more time to pass. I, I want to get back in before the blinds get even higher and come back in and try to make something of this second bullet. So since there was no way to handle this other than to take 100% of myself for bullet number two, that's what I did. What I told everybody on Twitter at the time was that I will post the receipts for both bullets if I cash in order to prove that I didn't pull any shenanigans, just to prove that I really did cash on bullet number two. Otherwise, people could say, hey, what if you really cashed in bullet number one and pretended you entered the second time so you could have all of yourself? So I promised before 
we got anywhere, you know, right when I bought it the second time, I said, if I cash here, then I will post both receipts so you can understand that uh, I didn't pull anything here. Not that anyone would have suspected I did, but just for full transparency. Well, it looked like I was going to have to do that because I was on the way to cash. The second bullet went quite well. I made day two, and we hadn't cashed yet, but we were getting fairly close to the money. I got involved in a huge pot, and my opponent had only four outs on the river, and he hit his four-outer on the river. So I was out. Shortly before the money, I did not cash either bullet, so therefore there was nothing to prove because either way, whether it was one bullet or two, I had cashed zero point zero. However, let's say I went on to win that event. Let's say I didn't bust on that hand, didn't lose to that four-outer, and then I just kept running it up and won the event. If I did win it, I probably would have done something like what Rampage did. I probably would have at least refunded bullet number one just as a courtesy. I hadn't thought of exactly what yet, but I did think, oh my God, like what if I get really deep in this and then I'm just kind of sitting there thinking about how bad this looks that I win the event or come close to winning the event and cash big and these people who bought a piece of me in the event are going to get nothing. Like how bad is this going to look? Like I kept thinking that. I probably would have given them something just out of courtesy, but not out of obligation. So that's what Rampage did. And the people who bought pieces of me are much more knowledgeable than the average person buying a piece of Rampage because he had this kind of clueless Twitch following, and I had a following of people who've been at least around poker, following poker for quite some time, most of them. But still, I probably would have given something just as a courtesy had I cashed really big. Now, if I, like, min-cashed or cashed a little bit bigger than min-cashed, then no, I would not have given anyone anything. But if I cashed really big, yeah, just for optics, I would have given something. Anyway... I think we've established here, and I think you probably agree, that Rampage did not have to give anyone anything, and it was nice of him to do. But let's get back to the controversy he faced from some poker pros who thought that this set a bad precedent. Sean Deeb was one of them. He said, as markup police, that is, he refers to how he frequently mocks people who sell pieces of themselves at uh, higher markup than, he deser- than they deserve to do, I feel it's my right to say something about the Rampage situation. I think it's a very, very bad precedent for him to set for future action selling. Very simple explanation for people who don't sell action. If someone sells action to the 25K loses, then it goes on to win the 10K and give the 25K investors their money back. I think a lot of the 25K investors should and would refuse the refund. That's what a second bullet is like. Now, again, Sean Deeb is a very, very bad writer, and I'm sure you didn't understand that. But what he's trying to say is... Just because someone is entering two bullets of the same event, that shouldn't matter. It's like two separate events. And if you only had one of the two events, then you can't complain if they win the other. So he's saying it's a lot easier to understand if someone sells action to a 25K, loses that, and then the next thing they play is a 10K, and they win that one. Nobody would say, hey, give me a piece of your winnings from the 10K event because I had a piece of your 25K but that it's harder for them to understand when it's the same 25K event because then they kind of feel like they still have a piece. So he's trying to explain why this doesn't make any sense. And he's right, but that's still not going to convince some people who don't really get the whole thing. Doug Polk said essentially the same thing. He said, the reason Rampage is giving back is because a bunch of people thought they were somehow entitled to the second bullet, and they were not. This puts a lot of pressure on him to give money away that is rightfully his. He's essentially paying money to avoid a negative public response. 
If we allow angry people on the internet to decide what we owe based on their opinions, we open the door to go down a dangerous road where that becomes the expected norm. Now what happens to the next person that doesn't pay the angry mob? So I understand what they're saying here. I understand that they're trying to stop this from becoming standard and expected because if this becomes something common that people do in these situations where they sell one bullet, re-enter the second on their own dime, win, and then are expected to pay people, then those that don't will be seen as assholes. That's what Doug is saying. That's what Sean is saying. And, you know, I can't say that they're unreasonable for their concern, but first of all, this isn't going to happen all that often. How often does someone sell one bullet and then re-enter on a bullet they didn't sell and then win it? It's not going to happen that often. It could, but it doesn't happen that often. So it's it's not like this is going to be like an everyday thing that becomes super standard. Second, this is never going to gain traction because experienced people in the poker community know that this is not something that should be expected. So even if noobs and poker fans that buy small pieces of pros they like, even if they somehow expect it, too bad. They're never going to get any traction if they complain, and these people don't have any following because they're not big names in poker. So if some guy with five followers bitches on Twitter that they didn't get the money they were expecting because someone cashed a second bullet when they had the first, uh, no one's going to care. No one's going to respond. No one's going to even see it. So it's not going to ever really damage anyone's reputation. And, of course, the poker world as a whole will say that's ridiculous because everybody who is in the poker world that has even a little bit of experience knows why this is ridiculous and that nothing is wrong with not paying in that situation, that that's what you're supposed to do. And if you pay anything, it's just you being generous. So this is not a realistic scenario that this is going to become the norm. This is not like complaining about something like a new tipping standard that is costing players a lot of money that they're afraid if you don't start doing it, then then you're going to be looked at badly. This is something where anyone who's knowledgeable knows that you don't have to. And that's never going to change. It doesn't matter what a few low-follower idiots are thinking about the whole thing. So let a few people be angry. Big deal. So if Doug wants to sell pieces of himself and not pay in the spot, then don't. If Sean wants to sell pieces of himself and not pay in the spot, then don't. And I won't criticize them because that's perfectly within their rights to do. They haven't cheated anybody. So I don't agree this will become the standard just because one guy did it. Rampage did something generous. It's his money. He can give people whatever he wants. He could even have given them half his action. It would be stupid, but he could have. When it's his money, he can give whatever money he wants to these people. And notice he was not saying, well, you guys are entitled to something here. So he never said that. He was very clear that he's just doing this because he's in a good mood that he won. He's just trying to be nice. Like, he was very clear about that. He was never trying to set an expectation. He wasn't saying, well, unlike cheapskates like Doug Polk and Sean Deeb, I am giving this. He wasn't ever saying that. He wasn't ever comparing himself to others or trying to say this should be something people should expect. Now, he wasn't super clear that he doesn't owe anyone anything, but that's because he didn't want to come off as a jerk. He didn't want to say, well, I owe you guys nothing, but I'm going to be a nice guy and give you something. Like, Once you do that, you're killing the goodwill that you would be earning by giving the money. You can't say, you don't deserve this but, or you look like a dick. That's why he didn't phrase it that way. 
nothing will ever get traction in poker to make you look bad if the community believes you did nothing wrong. Things get traction when most people think you did something wrong. Let's look at the Nemo Fallow thing that happened that we talked about on the last show. That got traction because the community agreed that they did something wrong. That's why people paid attention. That's why people were remarking on it. That's why it harmed Thalo's reputation, at least for the time being. Because the voices in the community that people respect pretty much all agreed that it was a scummy move. But the voices in the community would not agree that paying people zero who bought the first bullet is a scummy move, because it's not. Will Jaffe, who doesn't seem to like Doug Polk very much, he's, he's pretty hard on Doug Polk when he does his trademark tough convos, and he did another one, even though he couldn't bring himself to even say Doug's name. Let's take a listen. There we go again. It's time. As I sit in traffic on my way to Ben Salem, someone who I don't even need to name because I've, you know, I've had to call them out before so many times, sits comfortably somewhere in a mega mansion, just tweeting casually about how it's really messed up that Rampage, you know, gave a bunch of people who supported him a free roll. Dude, come on. Like, what are you, this fucking poker police, dude? It's like two months ago you were relentlessly promoting CoinFlex on your YouTube channel with however many subscribers you have and on your live streams and on your fucking casino windows, dude. Like, and now now you're now you're gonna come and tell a YouTuber that he shouldn't give money away, dude. Did you watch YouTube? Do you fucking know who Mr. Beast is? All he does is give money away. Let the man give money away. In peace. I mean it's just like like I remember back when the Helmuth fucking thing happened on the live stream you were the first one to jump on it, make a big video, you know, is Helmuth angling an amateur, oh, he's short buying, oh, it's so bad for this game, dude. You think, you think these YouTubers wanted to play with Kevin Rabichow? Like, come on, dude. You can't be this dense. <laughs> you can tell Jaffe has a lot of animosity toward Doug Polk. He just doesn't seem to like him. But I understand his point. You know, like, just let Rampage do what he wants. He wants to be generous, let him be. If we start to see a problem where a lot of people are acting really, really entitled because Rampage gave it, then you deal with these people. Then you explain to them, you're wrong. That's not the way it works in poker. So you haven't been around. We have. Get with a program. Understand that you're not correct here. And if you don't like it, then don't buy pieces of people. But don't yell at the guy who just gave away some money because he was happy he won and he didn't want to have any kind of PR issue afterwards. That, that, that's basically what he did. Like, like Polk was right that he gave it because he was afraid of a negative public response, and he didn't want it to damper the high he was feeling from having won that event. He wanted to go back on his Twitch and celebrate having won and not worry about angry people going, I, I, I lost money. I lost money at that same event buying a piece of you, and you're sitting here with 894K, asshole. Like, he didn't want that. So he wanted to be overly generous so no one could say that. But that doesn't create any expectation. I don't agree with that. So he can do whatever he wants. He can give whatever he wants to whomever he wants. 
Well, a discussion took place where Doug continued and he actually quote tweeted what Rampage was saying about giving three times people's money. He said, this is messed up. You got free rolled if you pay people that money. If I buy a piece of you in a tournament with no reference to bullets, it's clearly just bullet number one. If you lose a second, there's no way I'm paying for the second bullet as a backer. This is just wrong. Congrats, by the way. So basically, Doug is saying that uh, Rampage couldn't have entered a second time and then charged people for a second bullet they never bought, which is true. That's exactly why they don't have a piece of the second bullet. He says, yes, it's a nice thing to do, but you're just giving away $75,000 that is not owed. Now, first of all, it's not 75000 because, remember, he didn't sell 100% of himself. He sold 25% of himself. So I'm guessing he didn't factor the markup into it. He probably just gave them their money back plus two times whatever piece they owned. So I guess it was roughly, if you're ignoring the markup, it was probably roughly about uh, 18750 because 25% of 25 k is 6250 and three times that is 18750 So he probably refunded somewhere around 18750 maybe a little more than that because of the markup. But something around... 19k he gave back but okay rampage then writes i don't disagree with this tweet at all i've been personally lucky with bricking every bullet that i've sold action on and binked when i had 100 percent of myself i only sold 25 percent, which totaled 7k that was by far the biggest score of my life happy to free roll myself into the small to the small percentage of people who believed in me so then doug said back what you did is really nice for your investors, but I really think they have to bite the bullet and realize that their piece was only for the first bullet. Did the public pressure influence you? I even got several messages about people being angry you won on the second bullet. So I guess some people went to Doug going, hey, Doug, you got to do a video about this. Look what Ramage did to me. And Doug is like, no, he didn't do anything to you. Phil Galfond said, I had similar thoughts to Doug. I didn't tweet because I wasn't sure if my stance was rampant, should not have paid them, or wow, he's being extremely generous. I hope the people who had a percentage understand just how kind this is. Still not sure, but either way, congrats on the win. So Phil is basically saying he almost said something along with Doug said, but then he kind of thought maybe rampant just being generous and he shouldn't say anything, so he didn't say anything until Doug did. I'm surprised Phil even thought he might want to say something. Like, how can you criticize this? Let him give what he wants. I've always been of the belief that anyone can give any money away they want to for any reason. You don't have to justify to others why are you giving your money away. And in fact, I've always been very respectful of money that is given away to this site for our contests and free rolls. So much that I will give some power to the people who gave the money. I'll let them exclude certain people from winning if they don't like them. I'll let them give other guidelines that they'd like to see adhered to. And as long as it's not too extreme or stupid, then I will respect it. So I always want people to feel like their money is appreciated because I know it's their money and I'm not entitled to it, nor is the site entitled to it. I don't look at it like, hey, I do free entertainment here with this show. So you owe me something. You don't owe me anything. Nobody's forcing me to do this show. I'm voluntarily doing this show, and if you listen to it, then that's all you have to do. You're not expected to give me anything because you listen to the show, even if you get hours of entertainment. If you get a lot of hours of entertainment, you don't owe me anything because I'm putting it out there for that purpose for free. If you choose to give something, then I think it's very generous, and then I will 
make sure that you're happy with the way it's being used. And it's for the same reason. It's because I want anyone who gives away their money to feel like basically they're in control of what they're giving, that it's uh, nobody else's business but theirs. So same thing here. He wants to give money away to people who bought the first piece of him. Great. He can do it. He wants to walk out on the street and hand it all to homeless people. He can do it. He wants to donate it to a charity. He can do it. He wants to give it to a hooker. He can do it. Like, really, he can do all these things. It's his money. The only problem would be if he did something illegal with it. So if he used some of the money to pay someone to beat up a person who made him angry on Twitter, that wouldn't be good. But that still wouldn't directly be related to the win. That would just be him hiring someone to commit a crime for him. That would be the only thing I would object to, that sort of way of using the money. But giving it away, just a giveaway, he can do whatever the hell he wants. This is not a non-issue, a total non-issue. Anyway, what I do now is I sell two bullets to the events where it's possible I may enter twice. And then if I don't play both bullets, like let's say the first one I get deep enough and I can't enter a second time, let's say there just really isn't time to enter a second bullet to have it really be worth doing, there could be a number of reasons I don't enter the second bullet and I just refund it. I had an issue come up with the seniors event uh, where I would have had an issue with the seniors event had I sold pieces this year because, again, I didn't realize there were as many bullets as you could enter. I thought there were only two bullets to that event. It turned out there were four. It turned out you could enter twice each day. I thought it was once each day and there were two starting days. So I did not sell pieces to the 2022 World Series. So... I didn't have to deal with it, but I cashed on my third bullet. So I would have had that same problem as Rampage had, but fortunately I hadn't sold any pieces. So that wasn't a problem. Moving on, we're going to talk about D-Lucky. I've had requests to talk about D-Lucky. D-Lucky has come up in the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum where there was first discussion of other slot YouTubers and eventually got to discussing him. And I had people texting me asking, when can you do a D-Lucky segment? So that's going to be right now, the D-Lucky segment. I will introduce you to who D-Lucky is, and I will give you my opinion on him. So there's a lot of slot YouTubers out there who go to casinos and play slot machines and film it and comment on it, and people like watching this. And I don't understand it so much. I guess maybe people enjoy living vicariously through other gamblers when they can't gamble themselves, either because they don't have the money or they live too far from casinos or whatever it might be. Somehow these channels will often do well. I find them quite boring. And most of these slot channels are not selling anything. Most of them are just doing these videos And then sometimes they'll ask for donations or whatever, but they don't really sell anything. They're not trying to teach you anything. And sometimes they will make money on the back end from various promotions. Like they'll get a deal with a casino they frequently play at where they get some kind of loss rebate or some kind of payment for doing these videos with the belief that 
they will be enticing viewers to come down there and play as well. Some of the slot videos will mislead people as to how well they're doing. The truth is that unless you're doing advantage play slots, which is not easy to do, people will sometimes think advantage play slots is just going and having fun on slot machines and just magically being a great slot player and making a lot of money. It's not like that. It's very tedious. It's very difficult. It requires a lot of diffi- uh, a lot of discipline. You have to only play the machines when they're in a positive state and then quit no matter what. And you have to force yourself to get up even if the play didn't work out and you're losing. And a lot of times you have to stalk one or more casinos for hours and hours and hours looking for these machines in the correct state. It's not something that a casual gambler would want to do. It's something you have to be very dedicated to doing. Now, there is some semi-casual version of slot advantage play where there are certain simple slot plays you can do where if you walk by a machine that can sometimes be in a positive state and you can glance at it or press a few buttons to see if it is and then play it if it is. But aside from that, it's something that does require a lot of time and dedication and it's really not that fun. And the average gambler is not going to want to do it. But these slot YouTubers are not advantage players. They just go and, and sit and spin. So obviously they lose. Slots have a big hold for the casino. They're much more lucrative for the casino than something like video poker. So slot players do lose a lot of money over time. There's a very small percentage that end up winning because they win some really big jackpot. And I mean a very small percentage where the jackpot's so big that they're just not going to lose it back. But aside from that, just about everybody loses. And, and you should know that. It's important to know that because that's a fact. And if you don't know that and you play slots, you're going to lose a fortune. So these slot YouTubers are no, di- no different. So it doesn't matter if you're seeing these edited videos where every time they're hitting something, and it, it just seems like everything always goes well. That's not the reality with slot machines. And I'm sure you've probably played slot machines before. If you've played slot machines before and you've lost your ass and it just seems like, wow, I, I sat down and I spun and I didn't get anything and I'm down hundreds or thousands of dollars very fast. Like that is most people's experiences on slots. That is usually what people get from slots. And if you didn't, you're going to get it very soon. It's not even like very long before you start getting your butt kicked on slots unless you hit some big jackpot off the bat where it takes a while to lose it back. So these slot YouTubers don't usually show the downsides of slots. They usually show themselves somewhere between winning all the time and winning most of the time. Why? Well, because one, they have an ego. Two, it's kind of depressing to lose on video and have people watch you lose. And three, you know, it's more fun and more enticing for people to want to come back and watch you win than watch you lose. The people living vicariously through you are not looking to live vicariously through a loser. They're looking to win look they're looking to live vicariously through a winner. So they become fans of these channels the same way that you might become the fan of a good athlete. You don't become a fan of an athlete who sucks, who's always uh, failing on the court or on the field. You're you're a fan of the person who's always coming through, always winning. Anyway, D-Lucky is one of many slot YouTubers, but there are some differences with him. And a lot of people are comparing him to Christopher Mitchell, and I kind of see the comparison, but not quite so much. He's very different. 
And of course, Christopher Mitchell isn't much of a slot guy anyway. D. Lucky, first of all, is very secretive. You can go through his videos. You can search D. Lucky, and you'll see a channel called D. Lucky Experience in Las Vegas. And it has 77,000 subscribers. And the average video gets in the five figures of views, usually low five figures, 14K, 22K, 27K, 20K. Once in a while, higher than that. Like I, I see one here that's 43K. But most of the time, it's kind of around 20K views. I don't see any videos with more than 100,000 from what I'm scrolling here. Maybe in the past there was, but it's not worth scrolling back to find it. So he's not a gigantic YouTuber. He's not getting like 500,000 views every video, but he's not a nobody. It's not like he's getting 1,000 views. He's, he's still getting five figures of views. And that's pretty good for a slots channel, which is kind of a niche market. It's not like everybody wants to watch slots being played. But he's not just stopping at YouTube revenue. He's not just stopping at YouTube donations or YouTube ad revenue that you get if you have a popular enough channel, because that's not very big money. He is looking for a lot more. So the reason it's called D-Lucky Experience in Las Vegas is because that's the main thing he's selling. He's selling something he's calling the D-Lucky Experience. This involves basically a meet and greet with him. But remember, he's very, very secretive. Like, I have no idea what he looks like. I believe he's Asian, but beyond that, I don't know what he looks like. He never shows his face on camera. He never says his real name. And he's very, very careful to not let you find out where he is until after he's already been there. And we'll get to that in a little bit as to why he's so secretive. He has a website where you can buy this experience or buy other coaching materials from him. And this website is dluckyexperience.com. Exactly as it sounds. D, letter D, luckyexperience.com. I will read you from the website and we will discuss it. It says on the about page, D Lucky is regarded as one of the most elite slot machine players in the world after setting numerous records for consistent payouts in casino slot play since 2006. Now D-Lucky brings his knowledge and ex expertise to the public so anyone who's interested in playing slot machines could do so with the inside tips and strategies from the most successful slot machine player in the world. Let's stop right there. Is he really one of the most elite slot machine players in the world? Obviously not. And is he one of the most successful slot machine players in the world? Obviously not. Who would be? Well, these would be the advantage slot players and I already explained that's not a fun thing to do. It's, it's a lot of effort, a lot of time, and it's not something that's fun. It's, it's tedious. It can be lucrative, but uh, it's tedious. But notice he doesn't directly claim to be a winning slots gambler. He said he has consistent payouts since 2006, and he said that... Uh, He's an elite slot player, but that doesn't really mean anything. And he says he's the most successful slot machine player in the world. Well, that's, I guess, the closest he comes to saying he wins. But again, what does most successful mean? He could claim it means he's just a successful guy and also plays slots. 
or he successfully plays them for a long time. That doesn't mean he wins. So he doesn't directly say that he is a positive expectation or winning or overall ahead slots player, which is important. Now, his talk about consistent payouts, what does that mean? Because if you played every day in the casino at slot machines, and let's say you put in $100 cash, and let's say every session you cashed $50, you, it wouldn't be that consistent. But let, let's say you cashed uh, $50 out of the 100 So you'd be losing $50 a day, right? But you would still be getting consistent payouts because you're getting payouts every day. In fact, he's not talking about cash outs. He's talking about payouts. A cash out is where you actually hit the cash out button and it generates a ticket that you exchange for real money. He's talking about payouts, which means at some point he gets more than zero from the slot machine. So if you press the button and if you get anything beyond zero, even like one-tenth of what you bet, that's a payout. So consistent payouts means absolutely nothing. A $100 slot pull returning $1 would be a payout. So that claim implies to novices that he's a winner, but in reality, it means nothing and he can easily prove that he gets consistent payouts just simply by playing a lot. But what do you get for the D-Lucky experience? Well, this is what it says. D-Lucky experience in Las Vegas, $1,795 per person, non-refundable. This is our most popular experience in Las Vegas. The D-Lucky experience is a great way to learn about Las Vegas. The experience is a meet and greet with D-Lucky in a Las Vegas high-limit slot room, Every day will be a different high-limit slot room. D-Lucky will take the time to show you around a high-limit slot room and what slot machines he really likes. Learn and have fun with D-Lucky. This is a 10-minute experience. Example of casinos we will meet at. Wynn, Bellagio, MGM Grand, Circa, The D, which is downtown, Downtown Casinos, Mandalay Bay, Aria, Cosmopolitan, Venetian, and Encore. Every day will be a different casino and different experience. What is included in the D-Lucky experience? Okay, you ready for it? Remember, this is 10 minutes, and it has a $1,795 price tag. Okay, you ready for the three things you get? You get a thumbs-up photo op. (laughs) Not only that, there's a restriction to the thumbs-up photo op. This is a, a photo op with him where you have your thumbs up and he has his thumbs up. This is only one photo per person. (laughs) So if you say, hey, D-Lucky, I paid $1,795 to spend 10 minutes with you. Can I take two pictures with my phone? The answer will be no. Then number two, swag bag. (laughs) And by the way, he actually puts in parentheses, quantity one. (laughs) Very careful to let you know you're only going to get one swag bag. You can't get a swag bag for your wife or your kid. Just for you. Just one. And then three, meet and greet with D-Lucky. And he again repeats 10 minutes. So what is this? This is only a promise of a meet and greet. All you get for this seventeen ninety five is the ability to meet him for 10 minutes and then get a swag bag and one picture with his thumbs up. Seriously, that's all he's promising. He's not promising he's going to teach you to win. He's not promising that he's going to show you amazing secrets. 
He's not promising you're going to make money. No. It is only a promise of a meet and greet. Now, he's not the only person to do meet and greets. He's not very famous. He's just a slot guy on YouTube. But there are famous people who do meet and greets, such as celebrities, musicians. Sometimes it's ones who are kind of has-beens, but other times it's just ones who want extra money who aren't has-beens. And these can be expensive. They're usually not $1,795 or sometimes like $500. But let's say you had a meet and greet with baseball superstar Aaron Judge. As far as I know, Aaron Judge doesn't do these, but let's say he did. You know, the guy who just hit uh, 62 home runs this past season. Let's say you had a meet and greet with Aaron Judge. Would you expect that Aaron Judge would teach you how to become a better baseball player? Would you think that you'd be ready to join Major League Baseball and that a team would accept you because you spent 10 minutes with Aaron Judge? And if you had this meet and greet, would you ever approach it with the belief that it's going to do anything for your baseball game? Obviously not. Obviously, the entire reason for paying for a meet and greet with Aaron Judge would be because you're a fan of baseball or maybe a fan of his or a fan of the Yankees, and you just want to meet him and you're willing to pay whatever it costs to meet him for 10 minutes. That, that's all you'd be expecting out of it. Maybe an autograph, maybe a photograph, but like you're not expecting he's going to improve anything in your life. That, that's pretty obvious. So that's what D. Lucky's presenting here. He's basically putting himself on the level of celebrities who are doing meet and greets where you're paying... $1,800 to spend 10 minutes with him and get a swag bag and a picture. But why would anyone do that, of course? Why would they spend more than what you'd usually pay for a celebrity meet and greet for just some YouTube slot guy? Who would ever do that and why? Well, because there's an optional add-on. And the optional add-on is kind of a funny add-on because it costs... Zero point zero. And this is where he's very slick. This is all for legal reasons, why it's an optional add-on. So it says, optional add-on during the meet and greet. Free. Read below. The D-Lucky Jackpot Experience free optional add-on service. Keep 100% of the jackpots you hit. Wait a minute. You're telling me that if you play slots with your own money in the presence of the great D-Lucky that you get to keep all the money? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> What a generous guy. He, he's not going to take a commission, folks. He's going he's to say, keep the whole thing. Keep the whole thing. You, you just hit a jackpot in my presence. I'm not going to take it from you. You can keep all your money. Wow, keep 100% of the jackpots you hit. No guarantees, no guarantees, no guarantees, he writes. This is just for fun. Slots is not a way to earn money if you're in need of it. Odds are against you. Most people that come to Las Vegas never get a chance to hit a jackpot on a slot machine. In Las Vegas, there are thousands of jackpots hit every single day. D-Lucky by far hits more jackpots than anyone else in Las Vegas on a yearly basis. He's now giving everyone a chance to play slots the way he plays slots. Now, let's stop here. First of all, what is a jackpot? You may think you know what a jackpot is, but do you? Tell me, what's a jackpot? Is a jackpot like a very, very large hit on slots? Would you say a jackpot is a slot hit that is at least... One million dollars. Or might it be something that's as high as... One hundred billion dollars. Or is it just something fairly big, like... Fifteen thousand dollars. Is that a jackpot? 
What about $1,000? Is that a jackpot? Where do we draw the line between jackpot and non-jackpot? Well, there's a legal line that we can draw, and that's because if it is 1200 or more, by federal law, the machine has to lock up and they have to do what's called a hand pay. We've discussed this before, that they actually have to give you a tax form and pay you by hand. This is 1200 or more on a single spin or a single hand of video poker, same thing. So that's what a jackpot actually is. Currently, that is how a jackpot is really defined, is hitting anything that's 1,200 or more, which at high limit slots is not necessarily very big because you can be, be, you can be playing at such high limits that even a moderate hit will be over 1,200. But legally, that's a jackpot. So is that what he means? Who knows? He doesn't dis- define what a jackpot is. But let's go back to what he's saying with this whole free optional add-on service. Why is it an optional add-on service? Why not just include this in the D-Lucky experience? If it's free, then why wouldn't everybody add it on? Well, that's because he's trying to separate what people are paying for and what they're not paying for. He is very careful not to be selling anyone an opportunity to gamble with him for money because then they could claim that their belief is that they are paying for coaching and that his coaching failed or that he didn't teach them anything, that they didn't get their money's worth. So this way, all he's selling you is a meet and greet, which he delivers on. And then if you want for free, he's doing you the favor of playing slots with you during the meet and greet with your money. You get to keep what you win, but he'll give you slot tips basically for free. And he's very careful to say it's just for fun. Slots isn't a way to earn money. Odds are against you. No guarantees, he types three times. So he's simply providing a free optional add-on where he suggests slots for you to play. This way you can't ask for a refund if it doesn't go well because you're not paying for this. You're paying for the meet and greet part. That's why it's separate. Very, very, very clever. Kind of shady too, but also clever then he goes on to write why play slots with d lucky fun exciting create memories friendships and experience the thrill of possibly hitting jackpots and lighting up machines just like that how does the d lucky jackpot playing experience work jackpots hit very quickly just like the live videos d lucky shows on instagram tiktok and youtube That means these sessions will be very quick between 5 and 10 minutes. If the jackpot doesn't hit within 5 to 10 minutes, it's not worth chasing after. You'll learn this and many other things in the D-Lucky slot playing experience. Bring a $1,000 minimum up front, uh, up to $5,000 in slot play to hit a jackpot with D-Lucky. You will bring $1,000 minimum up to $5,000. The optional free jackpot experience will consist of D-Lucky picking out the best slot machines for you and explaining why he thinks these machines are the best ones to hit a jackpot on. You will then play your $1,000 minimum up to 5000 max to hit jackpots. You keep 100% of any jackpot you hit. No guarantees. However, if you like slots, this is your best opportunity to learn and play with the best. Possibly get a jackpot. This is a free service. In the event that there are no good machines to play, D-Lucky can reschedule the D-Lucky jackpot experience or cancel the event at his own discretion. 
<laughs> he could just say, no, there's no good slots here. We're not doing this and leave. But that isn't the problem. I haven't heard that he's done that. But again, remember, this is a free service after you've paid for the seventeen ninety five to meet with him. This is something you can add on for free. And he's only promising to explain to you why he thinks certain machines are best. And again, that's carefully phrased. Why? Because he's not purporting to teach you which machines are best, but rather just what he thinks are best. It's kind of like if somebody asked me for a football pick for the upcoming Sunday, and I say to them, you know, I think the Bengals are the best bet this week. Well, if they bet and then the Bengals don't cover and they lose their money, they couldn't sue me for that because all I've done is give them a free opinion on what I think is the best pick. I'm not providing any guarantees that it's going to win the money. They're just asking for my opinion, and I'm giving it. So same here with D. Lucky's description of his slot advice. He's just giving advice on what he thinks are the best machines. Maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. He also sells slot tips packages, which presumably come in some kind of written or video form, I would say. The most expensive one is the ultimate bundle package of slot tips for $995. And it's described this way. Slot Tips, Ultimate Bundle Package, Retail Price, $2,541. What? What? Where does he get that number? What do you mean retail price? He's the one who sets the price. So if he's selling it for $9.95 on his site, how is it a retail price of $2,541? Where else does it sell or has ever sold for $2,541? Retail price. Come on. Now it's available for $9.95 for a limited time only. Package includes brand new, over 12 casinos, over 10 different slot machines, and high limit Dragon Cash, high limit Dragon Link, and high dollar Storm slot machines. Where including the Dragon Link high limit slot tips, this is normally a standalone package for $3.99. After this special, the package will not be included in any bundle. These slot tips can possible, he means possibly, I think English isn't his first language, by the way. I've seen some other grammatical mistakes like this. These slot tips can possible give you insights to how D-Lucky plays the high-limit Dragon Link machines and what he looks for. So aside from this silly retail price of $2,541, I, I like how it's $2,541. It's not $2,500. Like, he just picks this random number, this random non-round number. But let's get past that. He says he's selling you tips on 10 different slot machines and 12 casinos. Presumably, these are 10 machines that you can find in 12 different casinos in Vegas. Now, these may actually be real tips. These may not just be random machines he's pointing you to. These, these may be real tips, though probably not all that valuable. So he's probably providing you at least very basic info of when to play and when not to play certain progressive-type slots where something is building up, and at some point, sometimes the machine becomes positive expectation or close to it, and other times when it's in horrendous state and then you're, uh, you have the lowest EV of any slot machine in the joint. So it's probably things like must-hits, slot machines that keep uh, adding to a jackpot, which is guaranteed to hit by a certain point. And as it gets close to that point, obviously, then you know uh, it's going to hit soon. That's how that girl Mandy won on Ignition. We had her on for all that money that they didn't want to pay her at first. And, and also... There's some machines that have what are known as big, middle, and small jackpots, where you see three jackpots on the screen. 
and these are jackpots. I'm just using that term. These are not always more than 1,200. In fact, usually the small and medium aren't, but they go up. And if as you become experienced with them, you know when it's in a positive expectation state or not, but you have to know what those numbers usually are to understand it. So it's possible that he gives this basic info on these 10 machines of here's when it's good to play them, here's when it's okay to play them, here's when it's bad to play them. The problem is that even if he's giving you info on these machines being positive expectation and what to look for, it's a lot easier to understand that information than to actually find one in that state. So these machines have to be painstakingly stalked all over these casinos. Remember, he said they're in 12 different casinos. To find them in a positive expectation state, and then often when they are, there's already someone playing them, either someone who ran it up to that point or just someone who's been stalking them before you and and grabbed it. So it's very hard to just find one of these machines just sitting there in a positive expectation state and nobody playing. You can, but again, it's tedious and boring and requires a lot of walking around and casino hopping. So he may be selling you a package for $1,000 that teaches you some of these basic numbers for 10 machines, but it's going to be hard to find them. So this is not like it's going to open up the holy grail of plus EV slot play. And also you can find this out for much cheaper from others. So he could be providing useful info here, which is worth some money, but I don't think it's worth nine ninety five. And the customer base he's going to have that's going to buy this they would not be understanding what they're getting into. It's not like he's marketing this to advantage players and saying, hey, attention slots advantage players. I know some machines that a lot of you may not know of that go into pos- to positive EV states and I'm going to teach you how to spot them. Okay, then that's worth something. That may be worth $1,000. But not if he's providing it to amateur slot players who aren't going to want to go through all this hassle to find the machines in the state. Because the typical slot player doesn't want to do all this crap. They just want to sit down and have fun gambling. They don't want to walk and walk and walk. Okay, what does this jackpot say? Oh, no, not high enough. I can't play. Walk, 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 walk. Oh, here's a guy. Oh, there's a guy on it already. Okay, should I sit and wait for him? Or no, no, he's probably going to play it all the way through till it hits. Okay, never mind. I'll walk, walk, walk up. You know what? Nothing good in this casino. Let me go down the strip, see this other casino. Like It's very, very tedious. And the people who watch slot channels, the people who want to gamble, the people who want to win on slots, who watch channels like this, they do not want to put this type of work in. They don't. None of them do. So he is marketing this to the wrong crowd. But that's on purpose because... He wants you to buy it saying, oh, he's an expert, and buy it from him. And then it's not his problem if you don't feel like putting in the work to do it or don't want to put in the time or don't have the time or will just get frustrated if you try it and can't find a single open machine in a positive state. That's not his problem. He's provided you the information he promised, and tough luck on you if you can't really utilize it or if it's very boring and you don't like it. So he's selling this to amateur slot players who don't understand what they're getting into. If he were ethical he would make all of this clear up front. He would make it clear that it's not just about knowing this info, it's about having the patience to utilize it properly. And if this is not you, if this isn't the way you like gambling, then it's not going to help you. But he doesn't say that. He makes it sound like he's just unlocking the secrets of 10 different slot machines. So obviously this guy is not very ethical. But is he doing anything scammy or illegal? Let's look at all this. Is he promising that you're going to win 
when you have this experience with him for $1,800 for 10 minutes? No. Is he even selling the opportunity to gamble with him? No, that's a free add-on. This slots package, while I don't know what's in it, is he promising it's going to win for you? No. Is it very possible he is giving you real tips that are useful? Yes. But is it something that most people who buy this are going to want to use properly because it's hard? No. So he's not doing anything which is illegal. You couldn't sue him and win here because he's not making any promises. He's implying some things, but you can't win a lawsuit based upon what you think someone means unless they're really, really blatantly putting it out there in a misleading fashion. He's only doing it in a semi-misleading fashion. He's posturing as this great gambler who always wins at slots, but he doesn't directly say that, and he's very clear that there's no guarantees, that uh, slots are a losing proposition, that you're going to probably lose money, the odds are against you. So he writes all these disclaimers in, and he even separates out the meetup with the gambling part and the meetup where the gambling part is free. Now, what about this $1,000 minimum for you to play in his presence? Why does he care what you bring? Why is he making you bring 1000 up to 5000 Why doesn't he want you to bring more than 5000 Why does he care what you bring? Well, I can't say for sure because he doesn't give his actual reasoning. I can't read his mind, but I have a good idea as to why. So you're paying $1,800, and who pays this? Is it people who are such big fans they've just got to meet the legendary D-Lucky? No. These are people who think they're going to learn something from him. These are people who think that this guy is winning all the time, And while, of course, he can't guarantee you a win because you can't guarantee a win in gambling, but he's going to give you a pretty damn good chance. Much like if I sit down in a good 61-20 game at Commerce, I will sit down pretty confident that I am a favorite to win in the game, but can I guarantee I'm going to win? No. Sometimes it'll be a great game and I'll just lose because I have bad luck. So these people may approach it the same way. They may think, okay, well, yeah, of course there's no guarantees. No guarantees in slots, but this guy knows what he's doing. This guy wins a lot of money. This guy's the best slot player in the world. So, yeah, yeah, I'll pay the $1,800 and gamble with him for 10 minutes and have him point me the right direction. Yeah, it's totally worth it. But again, why 1000 to 5000 is what you have to bring? You're not giving this part to him. You're putting this in the machines. But he's actually making you bring the money and actually get tickets ready and your instructions that you receive from him, which we'll get into the whole thing about the way the D-Lucky experience goes because we're just scratching the surface here. But he actually makes you get tickets ready. He doesn't just let you bring cash in. He actually tells you to go to the cage or put it in a machine and then cash right out and, and get tickets that you could just easily insert into the machine. So he wants you to bring tickets that you just drop in there so you're not wasting time inserting 100 after 100 after 100. Because think about 5,000. You had to insert fifty hundred dollars bills. It takes a while. So he wants you to turn these into big tickets, I think, in $1,000 denominations before you even see him. But why this range? Well, because he's filming the whole thing. So what he's looking to do is have these people play high-limit slots. And when I say high-limit, I mean like $100 slots where it's minimum 100 to spin, sometimes more than that because it can be multi-credits for the spin. But they're playing these very high-limit slots where if they hit anything, it's going to be a nice payout. Because think of how much it's costing to spin. Hundred or hundreds of dollars per spin. Of course, when you hit something, 
it's going to be thousands of dollars probably. If it's anything more than like the very minimum hit. So that's what he wants to show. The more you're spinning for, the more impressive the jackpots look. He also doesn't want to sit there for a long time with you. He wants it to be quick and done. He wants to play for five to 10 minutes. He said it right there. That's all you're going to get with him. So he doesn't want you grinding out at uh, $5 a spin. He wants you betting big and either winning big or losing big. So what he has you do is bring a minimum of 1000 He doesn't want you to just spin once at $100 because you're probably not going to hit anything. He wants you to have some chance of hitting a jackpot so he can have it on camera. But he doesn't want you to lose a fortune. So that's why he doesn't want you bringing 100000 or 20000 Now, you probably couldn't spin that in the time you're spending with him anyway, even at very high limits, but he doesn't want it. He doesn't want people going around the internet saying, I met with D-Lucky and I lost 20 grand because it looks really bad. So this way, the most you can lose while with him is 5K. That's why there's a maximum. So the 1,000 minimum is so you have enough time to spin at least a few times to have a shot at hitting something. Remember, you don't need a grand jackpot to get a decent hit when it's $100 slots. He wants to get something good on camera, but he doesn't want you losing more than 5000 because of optics. So it's all very, very carefully constructed. You're doing this all voluntarily. This is like a free service on the side. This isn't too different than hookers who will say that you're paying for their time and any sex is just something that happens to occur. That's their attempted legal out, which, which doesn't work, by the way. But what hookers attempt to do, that's why they call themselves escorts, because they're really just escorting you. Because it's legal to pay for someone's time. You can pay someone 500 bucks to hang out with you. What you can't do is pay them 500 bucks to have sex with you. So the trick that they think they're pulling off these hookers is that you're paying them $500 to hang out with them and then uh, they happen to like you and have sex with you. So something similar here. You're paying $1,800 to meet him, but in reality, what everyone's really paying for is to play slots with him. But what value are they getting? And is he really directing people to positive EV slots that might be sitting in the high limit room? Might you at least be getting some kind of value? Maybe not $1,800 worth, but is he at least directing you to play a good slot machine that you otherwise could not tell is a good slot machine? Well, here's a video that was just posted. I'm going to play you. You can hear his voice, and for purposes of radio, that's fine because you can't see him here. You can only see the woman that paid for this stupid D-Lucky experience. And she actually got a hat that says, just like that, which I guess is his catchphrase. So this is in the swag bag. And she's holding this in this picture he took of her. But of course, you are you know what's going to happen. If he's posting a video of her, this is a $200 a spin slot machine she's going to do. You know if there's a video. It's only a two-minute video. But you know in this video she's going to hit something. He's not going to show her just spinning and losing all her money and, and leaving. So we know how it's going to end. We just don't know the amount she's going to hit. But let's listen to this, and I'll describe what's going on. Your name? Cheyenne. And where are you from? I'm from Kauai. How long are you here in Vegas for? I'm here for five days. Okay, have a seat right here. Is this your first day or your last day? This is my second day. Second, okay. <laughs> Let me stop this right here. First of all, this guy sounds really gay. It doesn't really matter. Like, if he's gay, no big deal. But this guy sounds really gay. I just want to point that out. Uh, second, 
even though he writes like someone who does not speak English as a first language, he doesn't seem to have an accent here. So that's interesting. And I feel so bad for this woman. She came all the way from Hawaii, and this is her second day, and she's paying 1800 bucks to sit here and spin slots with D-Lucky. But what machine is he directing her to? Is he bringing her to one of these must-hits or something that has a big, middle, small jackpot that's in positive EV state? No, because he would play those himself if he found these. No, he is sitting her at a standard Wheel of Fortune slot. (laughs) So let's hear how this goes. Let's give this a shot. Where are you staying at? Uh, We're staying at the Bellagio. Bellagio? Okay, go ahead and give me your card. I'll help you with that. And go ahead and put in a ticket for... What's your budget? 1500 Okay, uh, $500 tickets. Go ahead and put in your first one. So I guess here he's uh, requiring her to show up with three $500 tickets that she gets beforehand. I, I guess you can either get them from the cage or just by inserting into other machines and cashing out, as I said. But he doesn't want to waste time with you inserting cash. You have to have these $500 tickets to insert, almost like $500 bills, which are not circulating anymore. Here we go, okay? All right. Okay, go ahead, and uh, we're going to start off Hello, by two credits. Push two credits. Yeah, push two credits. There we go. Spin. Okay, go ahead. Now, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert on this uh, Wheel of Fortune machine. However, I can see it in this video, and there is no progressive jackpot here, it looks like. It looks like that uh, it's just a million-dollar jackpot if you get the jackpot. It's like a stationary $1 million jackpot. And this can trigger by the wheel spinning if you get certain uh, things to make the wheel spin, then I think the wheel can land on the million dollars or something along those lines. So this is not something you can play with positive expectation from what I can see. This is not a machine that's in a better state sometimes than others. It just looks like he plopped her down at just any machine that's just sitting there in the high limit section. Spin button. Okay, put in another ticket. How are you you feeling right now? I'm a little nervous, but I'm excited. Okay, let's give this a shot, okay? Yes. We're so glad you stopped by. Let's have some fun. Hit again. So here she's like, every time she's hitting it, $200 is going down the drain. Spin. There we go. Of course she's going to hit something because it's on video. This video would not be posted if she bricked everything here which she was coming near the end of bricking it she only brought 1500 she's spinning at 200 each so now the wheel comes up she hit whatever makes the wheel come up here and then it spins around and i think uh i think this can only hit 100k maximum i think you have to hit something else to get the million so let's hear what happens when the thumb goes up just like that just like that there we go the catchphrase just like that and he puts his thumb up fifteen hundred dollar budget Okay, here we go. Go ahead and click the spin. Press the spin right there, yeah. Let's see, look up. This is what you're gonna win right now, okay? Let's go, $100,000. Let's go, babe. So that's rooting for the 100,000. And the wheel has different values on it. It's uh, kind of like in the show, Wheel of Fortune. It's at 1,200, 2,300. Uh, there's one line that's 100,000. Most of it is substantially less than that. Most of it is four figures. So it's one of these things you have to get really lucky to hit the 100,000 there. 
out of a lot of different slots. So it's pretty unlikely she's getting the hundred thousand. Oh my god! <laughs> Here we go. You're gonna hit it for ten thousand. Five thousand. Oh, so it was near ten thousand, but it stopped on five thousand. You'll take it? Can you believe this? I cannot believe it. When the thumb goes up? Just like that. Just like that. 5,000. Yes. Wow, congratulations. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. Can you believe this? What I is your reaction? Believe. Oh my gosh, I don't know. <laughs> no words, no words. Where are you staying at? I'm staying at the Bellagio. And you're winning here at Resorts Perfect. World. Perfect. Okay, so this is at Resorts World. And let's look at what happened here. She was doing $200 a spin. She was almost busto from that 1500 she brought. I don't know if this is like her fifth or sixth spin. And then she got a $5,000 hit. But then she paid $1,800 to him to, to have this whole experience. So she didn't come away with that much money anyway. Because I think she lost like a grand before this. She paid 1800 to him. What, she cleared like 2000 something? And this is at $100 slots that was two credits for spin. So... I mean, two hundred dollars a spin. When you're hitting five thousand, that's not very wonderful. That's like playing dollar slots and hitting a twenty-five dollar jackpot, if you want to call it that. So this is not all that exciting. She said, "I'll take it," but I guess it's better than nothing. But it's not like she hit something massive there. When you when you bet big, of course you're going to win big and lose big. This guy doesn't seem slick at all. Like in person, I'm talking about. Like in his little scheme he's got going here, it's very slick. But he just does not seem like a charismatic person. He has this effeminate-sounding voice, and even when he brings out his catchphrases, it just sounds lame. So when it hits, what does it sound like? Just like that. Just like that. Like it, it, It's not even something like... It doesn't th- sound enthusiastic. He's not even like a good performer. And of course, he doesn't put his face on camera. Now, why is he going all over the place. Why is it sometimes at Resorts World, at Encore, at Wynn, sometimes downtown? Like He lists a ton of different casinos it could be at. Why is it that it moves so much? Is it that he's not allowed at these places? No. It might be because he doesn't want to be constantly seen bringing people in and doing this because the casinos might complain, but it also has to do with this whole secrecy act, this whole thing where he constantly hides who he is. So to further explain this, I'm going to play a video which is called The D-Lucky Experience is a Scam Exposed. And this is a person calling the whole thing a scam. And they're going to explain the way all this goes. And then they're going to play some testimonials that some people did on YouTube of the D-Lucky Experience who weren't officially endorsed by D-Lucky, ones that just did it themselves. So let's listen to this. In this video, I'm going to be diving back into D. Lucky Slots and his new experience. Previously, he was selling slot tips, but now he has elevated things and he is selling something called an experience. So in this experience, which is $1,795, the price has gone up. Uh, what's included, you get a thumbs up photo, a swag bag, and a meet and greet with D. Lucky. Um, but what's really happening here is that he's essentially promising you that you're going to win on a slot machine. But in addition to the $17.95 that you have to pay to meet him, you must bring a minimum of $1,000 up to $5,000 
that you're going to put it into a slot machine that he tells you to, and you're either going to win or you're going to lose. You know, everyone here that is an educated person knows that you could win on a slot machine or you could lose in a slot machine. Most likely, he has a lot more losers that do this experience than he does winners. And obviously, only the winning videos make it up onto his social media platforms because he's not going to post the losing videos because why would people want to buy the experience if he's selling a dream here? He's selling a dream that you're going to win big with him because he's lucky or he knows the machines. And we all know this is just ridiculous. And I, I'm not here to explain to you that it's a gamble because it is called gambling. I, I'm here to dive into some other things. So you're going to pay him $17.95 and then you're going to bring between one and $5,000 and you're going to do this experience with him where you get 10 or 15 minutes and hope that you win. But he has been running some specials because just, you know, around the holidays, companies run specials and he, I guess, is a company. So he was running a Thanksgiving special and today he is actually running a Cyber Monday special. His Cyber Monday special is $12.95, so it's $500 off and you get an extra 10 minutes. This is good for two years. It expires 11 25 of 2024. You can give it as a gift and he will only sell a thousand of those. Once it's sold out, there won't be any more. What I do find fascinating is in my previous video, I told you that D Lucky was buying Instagram followers. Looking at his most recent history on social, it appears that he has uh, not bought in subscribers in, in a while now. And because obviously when you buy fake subscribers, they're bots and they eventually just you know, the accounts get closed or whatnot. It seems like his account is losing more followers than it actually is gaining followers. Except with the, it looks like in June, he bought a hundred thousand subscribers on one day. And then the following day, he lost 4,200. Um, so we really don't even know what type of following D Lucky really has because he's buying quote unquote success. Interesting. Yeah. Notice I said that he has 77,000 subscribers and he is getting about uh, around 20,000 views per video, sometimes more, sometimes less, but it seems to be kind of around 20,000. So it's very possible that he's not getting anywhere near that viewership and what he's actually doing is buying a lot of those views to always bring them up to around 20,000. I don't know if that's the case, but it, it seems like it's possible, especially given that he has 77,000 subscribers and he's getting uh, 20,000 views that pretty consistently that's a little bit suspicious so we don't know how many followers he has on instagram tiktok or youtube we don't know what's real we don't know what's not real because once someone buys their success or they, they attempt to buy their success we don't really know the truth anymore but i will say that when he goes live he only gets a couple of hundred people watching him and for an account that has 5.3 million followers, you would think that he would have more than a couple hundred people watching him, but I'm not sure. So I have searched high and low for people that have done the D-Lucky experience that wanted to talk to me about it. And D-Lucky is not stupid. He makes people sign an agreement, essentially a, a, an NDA of sorts, 
And even when you go to his website, his terms of service is just insane. I don't know what type of attorney would have drafted something like that because it is not legal. He's saying that uh, you waive criminal activity. You can't waive criminal activity. If you committed a crime, you committed a crime. It's it's just insanity. So his terms of service is rubbish, which I'm sure his NDA is. But I did find two users on TikTok that have um, posted about their experience. And, um, you know, there's not... Let me stop right here. By the way, this guy who you're hearing right now, he has a channel called EZ letters E and Z, EZ Life Slot Jackpots. It's a good channel. He exposes a lot of uh, slot scammers out there. And he posts on Poker Fraud Alert occasionally. I don't really know him, but uh, we've had a little interaction. And I like the guy. So if you want to check that channel out, uh, definitely go do that. And as far as the NDA he has you sign, and as far as the waiver of any kind of criminal activity which is funny yeah you can't do that you can't you can't sign away your rights to report someone for criminal behavior against you there's no such thing as that but the reason i think he has these out there for people to sign is to intimidate them to where they are very afraid to put out anything that could expose who he is or to ever try to sue him or anything like that he's trying to just scare people from believing they have any kind of case against him, either criminally or legally or civilly. Even if these are not going to hold up in court, he wants people to be afraid to do it. And that is something that scammers like to do. Scammers like to use legal threats to silence you, to make you afraid to say anything. Even if their threats would not hold water, people start to hesitate and they're afraid to say it. It's a very common move for scammers to do. So I haven't seen these legal documents, but it doesn't surprise me that he is having people sign this to at least make the typical person afraid to come forward with any information they have. Because remember, he really wants everything to be a secret. So the last thing he wants is to have someone post a friend in the corner to take pictures of D-Lucky and then show who he really is. Like He doesn't want any of that. So he really, really wants to scare you that you cannot expose anything going on there or you'd be violating an NDA. Not that many views on the video. So I think that we need to watch these together and, and then talk about it. So let's dive into the first person. I think it's time for a story time. So the way you book D-Lucky is you go online and you book him for a fee. I paid 1500 This was a couple months ago or right now it's 1800 What that includes is a 15-minute experience. Now this is a guy he's showing from TikTok that is explaining that he actually did pay D-Lucky, and this guy is describing his experience with it. So I booked him for 11-11, you know, angel numbers, good luck numbers. So what happens is the day before, somebody will text you and say, hey, meet me over here, you got to sign papers. So you go over there, you sign the papers, and they tell you, okay, tomorrow morning, you're going to get a text message about the location. So in the morning, I got a text, it's going to... Doesn't that seem like, why, why can't I know the location now? It, it's, it already like seems super shady because it is. It's essentially illegal what's being done. But I wouldn't say it's illegal, but this is very shady. So he is so worried that you are going to have others there to catch glimpses or pictures of him that 
you're being sent to a different location first, and at that point, you're going to be told where you're going. You're going to sign papers, and then they're going to take you over to D-Lucky. So you're not even meeting with D-Lucky first. You're meeting with some friend of his or business associate who's going to make you sign papers, and then they're going to bring you to where the action actually is. So this way, you can't send someone over there. So it's not even just short notice. It's not even like they say, hey, be at Aria in 15 minutes. They actually say, be at such and such place in 15 minutes, and then we will go to the real place. Let's continue. Resorts. And it says to wait in order to report until you're called. Wait in the so I go to food court, I look around, and you can definitely tell who are the people waiting to see the lucky. They're all like, ready. Mind you, out of eight of them, six of them were local people. Then I'm instructed to go to the cashier and get three to five $1,000 tickets. So in this case, the guy had to get $1,000 tickets, not $500. But did you hear that? Eight people waiting? Eight? At 1500 a pop, this is before the price went up. So just from that hour plus he was going to spend, I mean, remember, it was 10 minutes per person. For, for 80 minutes of his time, he was making $12,000 to do nothing but take a picture with them and direct them to a slot machine where they just spin slots. And again, unless I have something wrong with this Wheel of Fortune machine, I do not believe this Wheel of Fortune machine ever changes state. I think this is a machine that always has the same odds at all times. So he's not even directing them to a slot that has any value. He's really just directing them to any random machine, it looks like. Three to five, one thousand. But his website says you could do a minimum of a thousand, but now he's telling people between three and five. Okay. Thousand dollar tickets. So finally, I'm called. This guy brings me over to the high limits. Then he passes me off to another guy who brings me into the high limits. Then he passes me off to another guy who shows me what machine I'm going to play on. Then he tells me, D Lucky's going to be with you in a minute. So I look around and I see him. D Lucky is like chilling, feet up on the slot machine, on his phone, not a care in the world, chilling. So I meet him, he does the whole thing. Hello, tell me your name, where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. So I do all of that and we sit at a top dollar machine. $1,000 ticket, nothing. Second $1,000 ticket, nothing. Third $1,000 ticket, nothing. And he's like, can you come back tonight at 6 o'clock? And I said, I can. I'm going to the Post Malone concert. And he looks at me, he's like, oh, okay. And walks away. Just walks away. So my heart is broken. So I'm walking out and I see the family in front of me. I talk to them. They want nothing. They talk to the people in front of them. Nothing. The people in front of them. Nothing. While we're talking, we're waiting. Another group comes out. Nothing. Another group comes out. Nothing. But here's my question to this guy. Why did you need to pay D-Lucky $1,500 to do this? You could have walked into the high limit room with your $1,000 tickets and done the same thing. So if, if you listen, if you consider him that much of a celebrity that you feel that $1,500 was worth it to take a photo with him, then okay, there's your there's your explanation. But I really don't think that that's what you were expecting. You were expecting to win with this guy, which you were proven and, and all these other people prove that it doesn't happen like just like that. So this was an interesting video that this guy posted on TikTok. And then I have another video kind of similar from someone else on TikTok that I also want to show you. Okay, we're at the L. Okay, before we play that video, you see how this is kind of scummy, but the problem is it's probably not outright illegal. And this is where 
he differs from people like Christopher Mitchell who say, I'm going to change your life. I'm going to show you how to quit your job and become a professional gambler and make more money than you ever thought possible. D-Lucky doesn't promise any of that. D-Lucky very carefully structures this to where he is not promising anything, but everybody is showing up believing that this is the way to win at slots and at big money. So they get the thrill of playing big money, which, of course, they could do on their own, but guided by an expert who isn't guaranteeing to win for them, but is going to really point them in the right direction. That's why they're doing it. They're they're doing this believing he's going to get it done for them. And it's really dishonest because it doesn't look like he is doing anything for them. Like this Wheel of Fortune slot machine, even though that had a happy ending with a 5,000, that doesn't look like he did anything for that woman. It looks like he just sat her down at a random machine. And he's seeing eight people back to back to back to back to back to back. Obviously, he's not sitting them all at great machines. And all this subterfuge and handing off from person to person to person before you meet the real him, it's crazy. And I think he's doing this uh, for various reasons, all the secrecy. Uh, One, he doesn't want to be pointed out by people who are unhappy. Uh, he, He wants to make sure people aren't showing up there to serve him with papers. He probably wants to not be publicly identified so anyone could find him anywhere. He doesn't want people to know where to find him to sue him. There could be one of so many reasons that he's hiding here. Because for someone who is presenting himself as a slot celebrity, he's going through tremendous pains to not be identified anywhere and not be accessible, except for the few minutes you pay for. We just uh, met up with D-Lucky. We got our experience tonight at 8.15 p.m. at the win. So uh, this is uh, to see if it's real or our fake. We're about to see. What do you think? Is it the real deal? We'll come back tonight, but it's time to expose and see what's going on. Man, so we got the confirmation was at the win to be there 30 minutes early just waking up to get ready and we get a text saying change the plans it got switched to el cortez if anybody knows vegas they know el cortez on fremont is trash and nobody wins there so why are you going to move us from a billion dollar hotel to that guess we're going to see we're ready. Headed to El Cortez. See if it's really just like that. You think it's going to be just like guy's that? He's got the hat on and everything. There's his $2,000 vouchers. <laughs> hey, how was your D-Lucky experience? Hey, win, man. Not guaranteed. So, can't be mad. It's part of fucking gambling. Hey, basically, what he's trying to say is, hey, we didn't hit nothing. Not a damn dollar. Hey, I will say, he hooked it up with drinks. It was open bar, but he hooked it up with drinks. You get drinks when you're gambling. <laughs> he probably just had his buddy bring the cocktail waitress over there quickly while they're gambling. Hey, any drinks would you like? And got drinks for them or ordered drinks for them in advance. He hooked them up with drinks. These guys don't even get that you you always get hooked up with drinks if you're playing slots, even low limits. Fuck, man. Yeah, D-Lucky experience got us $0. In fact, 
we lost fucking everything. So to all the people that wondered if it was real or not real, at least for us, it wasn't real. You know, it's just an, it's just another delusional person. What do you mean if it's real or if it's not real? It's it, he he's nobody when it comes to winning on a slot machine. He's no different than me or or a random person off the street that you give a thousand dollars to and say put it in this machine. Uh, I don't know what these people are expecting from D. Lucky. It's just sad. And then he lost another two thousand dollars thinking that he was going to win. It's crazy. It is absolutely crazy. Okay, so you get the point here. I won't play the rest of this. You can watch the video if you want on Easy Slots' channel. It's called Easy Slot Life Jackpots. But you basically get the picture here. But I don't think anything can be done because he's careful not to promise anything. That's what's sad. He found a way to first establish himself as a great slot player and then having people pay 1800 bucks a pop to meet with him for 10 minutes for him to just sit them down at any slot machine believing he's giving them some edge. And he realized he can do this because he doesn't have to make any promises. The promises are implied, which doesn't help these people legally. So that's some thing he's got going there. But I find it very unethical. Even if you put the disclaimer as, oh, no guarantees, no guarantees, the, the odds are against you, blah, 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 blah. Okay, how about adding to what's really going on? How about I'm not helping you do anything that you couldn't do yourself? How about I'm not directing you to play on any machine that's better than the others in here? I'm not sitting you down on a positive expectation machine. I'm not giving you any valuable advice. You're just going to play in my presence. That would be honest, right? Or if he does feel he's doing something for people, why doesn't he explain it? Say optional add-on. I know of some slots that are in a state that is positive expectation or at least higher than typical slots, and I will direct you to them in the casino where we meet. Why not at least that? But that doesn't look like what he's doing. And forget the results. You know, sometimes you can do something positive expectation and lose. So I'm not that concerned that these two videos had people playing and losing or watching other people's play and play and lose. I'm talking about that the video I saw of someone winning, they're sitting down at a Wheel of Fortune machine, which doesn't seem to have any kind of progressive or positive EV element to it. It looks like it's just a machine you sit and spin an old school type machine. It's not an older machine, but it's, it's just an old type machine where you just spin, spin, spin until something hits. So what does he think he's doing for these people? Now, maybe if he sees a machine in there that's in a better state than others, even if it's not positive EV, he'll sit them there. But remember, he's also recording. So he wants something to hit. So he's not necessarily going to want to sit you, I'm guessing, at a machine that is in a good state. If there even is one, which there probably isn't. But even if he could sit you at one of those, the chance of you hitting that in a small number of spins is pretty small, and then the rest of the time you're going to lose. So I think he'd rather sit people where they're going to hit something like five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 and then get that on video and make you think that you can hit that too. And, then, and notice he's not showing any of these videos of the guys who go there and get nothing. He's also not being honest and upfront about that. Like, this is not typical... This is one of the rare people who won $5,000 where most people walk away with zero. He just 
tells you the minimum he feels he has to. He knows why you're showing up, is the bottom line. He knows why these people are showing up. I bet if you asked every single one of them, they were not showing up and paying $1,800 because they felt that they were meeting a celebrity. They felt like they were showing up because they thought they were going to get information or direction that was going to help them make money, even if it's not guaranteed. Pretty scummy. Now, is he worse than the direct scammers? No, because there are some things he's not doing. He is not promising to change your life. He's not promising you can quit your job. He's not promising he can turn you into a million-dollar winner slot player. He's not claiming that he's going to make gambling different for you forever. He's just saying, hey, meet up with me. I'll direct you to some good machines. And then letting people's dreams take over. But it's unethical. It's unethical. You, you always want people to fully understand what you're doing for them, what they're getting into, how much you're really helping them. These are very important if you're going to charge them money, especially. Even if you're not charging them money. Like, let's say someone came up to me and said, hey, Druff, you probably know something about these slots. And I'm not an expert on these things. I'm not an expert on these slots. I know more than the average person, but I'm not an expert. There's others who listen to this show who do this and who know a lot more about it than I do. But I do know more than the average gambler about slots. And if someone came up to me and said, hey, I want to play some high limit slots. Can you show me the good ones in the high limit area and resorts world? Well, I could walk in and give some basic analysis and say, well, this is why this machine is never in a better state than any other time. This one is, but it's in a bad state right now. This one's in a good state right now, but none of these are positive expectation. Like That's what I'd say. But if they were to go sit down on whatever I thought was the best one and say, okay, great, thanks for telling me I'm going to play the best one now, I'd say, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't say it's positive. I, I don't think you should do this. You're going to lose a lot of money probably. That's what I'd say, and that's even if they were paying me nothing because I wouldn't want to direct someone to do something which is going to cost them thousands of dollars because they believe I've given them a good tip. Now, let's say there was a machine in positive expectation state and for whatever reason I didn't want to do it and I pointed someone else to it. I still would want to make sure they understood that there's a decent chance they're going to lose their ass on the machine, even if it's in positive expectation. I'd, I'd want them to know everything even if I was just giving free advice. Because I would feel bad otherwise directing someone there or implying that they're going to win. So to sell this for $1,800 and to not really give the full story to people when you know they're all showing up because they think you're going to direct them to win, even without a guarantee, is crappy. So it's not as bad as some of these outright scammers, but it's not good. And it's unethical. So that's... All I can tell you about D-Lucky for the moment. And I wonder how these people feel after this. And I wonder how many customers he's had by now. He had eight that one day. It's crazy. Like, how much has he made? This can add up really fast. If a little more than an hour of this, he makes 12K. Like, how much is he making per year? Could be a lot. Could be a whole lot. Let me tell you what you should do if you're victimized by something like this, don't blame yourself. Don't say, well, he said no guarantees. You know why? Because even if you can't sue him, you can go to the casino and complain. You can say that guy who was just here, he paid 
he charged me eighteen hundred dollars to come play with him and buried everything in legal language where he's claiming that's not what he's really charging for, but that's what he's been doing and that's what he does and here's his website and look what he's doing and he's using your casino as a place to get people down here to have him show them what to play and in reality he's just sitting them down at a slot machine and they're losing. So some casinos won't take kindly to this. Some will say, oh great, he's bringing us more business, but a lot of the other ones won't want this because... They don't want this hassle. They don't want hustlers like this hustling $1,800 out of people to be brought into their casino. They, they want all the money in the casinos. They want you to lose all of it to them. They don't want you to give $1,800 to some chump who's pretending to be some expert. So a lot of casinos will ban him for this. They don't need any kind of legal precedent to ban him. They can just say, we don't want you here and ban him. So I'm guessing none of my listeners have ever done the D-Lucky experience, but if you know anyone who has, tell them to complain. Tell them to report it to the casino, especially if it's been recent. If it was a long time ago, it probably won't matter, but anytime recent or semi-recent, I guess they will keep tape sometimes up to six months. But have them report the exact date and time and explain this to the casino manager and direct them to the sites and videos talking about this and his site and say, hey, can you stop others from being hit like this and educate the casino managers on the issue and then they will sometimes ban him. And I wonder if it's already happened because he lists the casinos that he might meet you at, but he doesn't list all of them. So I wonder if the ones that are missing are ones that he can't play at. For example, he doesn't mention any Caesars properties, which is interesting. Notice a lot of MGM properties. Bellagio, MGM Grand, Mandalay Bay, Aria, Cosmo, and then the Wynn Encore, which of course is a different group, but there's no Caesars in here. Venetian, but no Caesars. All those Caesars properties in Vegas, none of them are Caesars. And then he mentions that it could be one of downtown casinos also. So I wonder if he's already been chased out of some of them. It's also possible he just doesn't want to lose those casinos for whatever reason and doesn't want to risk it. Maybe these are the ones he cares less about. Who knows? Speaking of win, he actually had a slot tournament through the win. There was going to be a D-Lucky slot tournament that was going to be held there. <laughs> Seriously. I'm not talking about informally. This was actually on the WINS webpage. Shows you how little research they do when people approach them with this sort of thing. So he probably just approached them and said, hey, I'm a big slot YouTuber. I'm going to hold a tournament here. Can we have it? And, and they agreed. That's crazy. However, that didn't happen. But let me read you the flyer. This was uh, on WINS site. I have a screenshot of it right here. $250,000 slot tournament hosted by D-Lucky, December 16th to 17th. The official $250,000 slot tournament hosted by D-Lucky will be held at Win Las Vegas on December 16th to 17th, 2022. Join the fun and you could D-Lucky enough to take home the grand prize of 100000 in cash. Why didn't this happen? 
because a Poker Fraud Alert radio listener reported this and the wind decided that they didn't want it and they canceled it. Good for that guy. This, of course, was before I ever discussed D-Lucky on this show. So this is someone who was aware of D-Lucky separately from my discussion of him, which is just occurring now. And this person was so outraged to see that he was going to have this tournament at the win that this person called up a contact they had at the win and explained what D-Lucky really is, and they canceled it. So good for the win. Not so good they let this happen in the first place, but good that they at least listened and shut it down. So D-Lucky, if you're listening, this had nothing to do with me, but one of my show listeners didn't like you very much and kind of knows what you're about and had that shut down. So that at least was good. If you see any of this anywhere else, please let me know. Please let me know. Because every casino needs to be aware when they are having one of these slot YouTubers whose name is being stamped on something they're doing, what they're really getting into. Now, some of these slot YouTubers aren't that bad. Some of them just play. At worst, they imply like they're winning when they're really losing, but... But D-Lucky, obviously, it's much worse than that. So while you probably can't sue him if you have a D-Lucky experience and don't win, there's other things you can do. Report him. Report any slot tournaments he's going to have and make sure the casino manager fully understands what the guy's been doing. Hopefully one day he'll just be banned from everywhere and can't do this crap anymore. Because it victimizes innocent people. That's really what it does. If it didn't involve the slot play and it was really just meet and greet, then fine. If people want to be dumb and spend 1800 or whatever on just meeting the guy and spending 10 minutes and taking a dumb picture with him, okay, that's just them being dumb with their money. But as Easy Slots said, that's not why these people are showing up. They're showing up because they think they can win. Just like those guys on TikTok. Okay, we're going to see if this is real. Let's see if this is real. Oh, we lost three grand. I guess it's not real. (laughs) That was real. It's just not the real thing you thought it was. It was real something else. All right, moving on. Let's talk about Andy Stacks. Back to a Hustler Casino Live topic. And this one, this one's a little bit hard to figure out, but I'll let you guys... Decide for yourself. I'll play you the commentary during it, but first I'll explain what happened. Andy Stacks was in a high-stakes game on Hustler Casino Live. There is another regular on the stream. Andy Stacks is on all the time, but there's another guy, an older guy, probably like 60 years old, named uh, Mike. He goes by Mike X. And he's the oldest one in the game by a pretty wide margin. Everybody else is... uh, young or fairly young. Mike X had two $5,000 chips to the side of his stacks. His stacks were of uh, mostly $100 chips with some $25 chips, but he did not have uh, big stacks of 5000 or anything or anything higher. This was a 100 200 500 game with a $500 big blind ante, so pretty damn big game. The controversy came from Andy Stacks taking those two stray $500 chips 
from right next to Mike X's stack. They were Mike's chips for sure. And Andy took them. And there's no question about that because that's right there on video. And then Mike realizes it and raises the issue. And you get to hear Andy's reaction. Now, ultimately, Mike X got the chips back. But of course, because Andy's right there on camera taking them. The only question is whether this was an accident or on purpose. So I'm going to play this video. You can find it yourself on YouTube. It is called Andy Gets Caught Stealing $10,000 Chips from Mike X. Let's play this video, and I will comment on it. Hey, at least he backs it up with the straddle. Okay, so what you're hearing about at least he backs it up with a straddle, forget that. That's not important to what's happening here. But Andy Stacks is shuffling chips. And the way this works is uh, in this video, Andy's chips are to the right of him. So his right hand has the chips to the right of his right hand. And then there's nothing in between his left and right hand. And then he's shuffling chips in his left hand. And then... To his left, of course, is the next stack over, which is Mike X's stack. And Andy's stack is pretty big. Andy has a bunch of these 5,000s. But Mike does not have many of these. He just has two that are sitting uh, right next to his other chips, which are these hundreds and 500s. I said 25 earlier, but it's actually hundreds and 500s. But he's got two $5,000 chips. And Andy, while shuffling chips his hand seems to move over and he grabs these two five thousand dollar chips next to mike stack and they're showing in slow motion here so you watch him shuffling shuffling and he kind of moves his hand over and grabs he doesn't move far but it does kind of look like he's grabbing them now it is possible that andy thinks these are his, but isn't sure and doesn't want to ask. And that's always a little bit awkward in the casino. I've had that before, where there is some chip kind of between my stack and the other person's stack next to me, and I really don't know whose is whose. And I try to remember, okay, did I just win a pot and not grab this? Did they just win a pot and not grab this? I try to first determine in my mind, is it pretty clear if it's mine or theirs? And if it's theirs, then I'll just push it to them and say, hey, your chip's right here. If it's mine, I'll just grab it. And I won't say anything. And if it's something that's unclear, I'll say, whose chip is this? And then I hope the person will be honest and we can figure it out. It doesn't happen that often, but I have had it before. However, this is not sitting in the middle. This is right next to Mike X's stack. And Andy does seem to move his hand over and just kind of grab it. And that's what this person is, is showing in the slow motion here. So then Mike starts looking. I don't know if, how soon after this was, but uh, the video jumps to this where Mike is looking concerned and he's kind of looking all around his other chips. Like, where do my two $5,000 purple chips go? He's moving his head, moving his head. Looking to his left and right, looking under. I definitely didn't take care of one here. Yeah, that's for me right now. I don't think so. Mike right away is saying, what happened? What happened? And he's talking about the chips. And then Andy says, 
I didn't take him. I, I, I don't. I don't think I took him. We can check the camera. Now, why would he want that? If let's say Andy did steal it, why would he say we can check the camera? Well, because the camera was already on it. So even if he was caught by Mike here, he's not going to say, "Oh no, there's no way I took your chips," because the camera will show it. So if you say, "Let's check the camera right now," it makes you look more innocent. I'm not saying he's guilty. I'm just saying that him saying, "Let's check the camera and see who they are," that that doesn't mean he's innocent. Let's check the camera. You should have one twenty-eight five. We'll go from there, okay? If you don't have that, your chips, Mike. Okay. Okay. It looks like he's short, about twenty. That's Nick Airball saying it looks like he's short. Or 10. What is that? Sorry. Playing huge games next Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Did they check that pot? That, that, uh, to see like what happened, yeah. I bet you that what you said is what happened. So now it sounds like Andy is saying that he scooped a pot and that Mike's chips were on the side and it went he made the noise like he accidentally pulled them along with the chips he won in a pot which isn't how it happened we can see in the slow motion here that he was just shuffling chips he had not won a pot and he just grabbed him so whether it was on purpose or completely by accident it was not from winning a pot and getting it mixed up with mike's chips pretty slick yeah that'd be a pretty thick one you're missing five or ten. Count with me. Got a cooler alert here. Don't worry about the commentary. That's just about the hand going on with the aces against jacks. And actually, Mike has the aces, and someone else at the table has jacks. But that's not what's really important here. And he's asking, are you missing five or ten? So, again, if he stole them intentionally, he could be hoping to maybe at least get away with keeping half of it if Mike doesn't know what he had. Here at the Red Jacks, Mike X with the aces. Louis about to come up here and be like, Andy, you owe uh, Mike 50K? <laughs> That's Nick Airball joking about it. This is a little bit, little bit later. <laughs> what? Mike's that? Mike Mike's stack. Mike's stack. Mike. So Mike's stack. Uh, Mike's stack or his, his stack? They don't know your stack. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, can, can you have them check to see uh, the hand? So what happens, the floor comes over. Because they're keeping track of what everybody has there, I guess the floor noticed anyway that Mike's stack did not represent what he should have according to what he's won and lost. I had ace-queen and king-queen on the flop queen river. See when they push the pot if I scooped in Mike's chips. Uh, it was like 15 minutes ago, yeah. and um, and they should have the graphic of how much I should have. I'll count my chips. I I, I started. Yeah, and then have them. Um, what's what's tell, tell me So now this all sounds reasonable. I'll check the the last pot I won if I accidentally scooped his chips. Check my chip count if I've got 10k too much. Then don't worry. You know that I'll they'll fix it here. So he's saying all the right things, but the question is, what was he really intending when he took those chips? Tell me what I should have. Just have them count my stack. Well, I, should have, I should have 500k. I started with five. I bought them for 500k. Stack your chips in 20s, Andy. Yeah. So are we assuming Mike's 10k behind for now? Um, I don't. I don't care. Whatever. Oh. 
<laughs> now they're deciding what to do about Mike's stack because Mike, he has a shorter stack than most other people at the table, and they're saying, well, okay, should we assume he has 10K more? Is he, quote, 10K behind here? Should we all assume he has 10K more than what's in his stack? And that's what you said you were missing, right? Two, two, yeah, uh, I'll put it down here. I think, here I think that's what it is, but like, go ahead, just double check. Yeah, but it's, it's easy to mix up. Yeah. I'm sure Andy was I trying to I think I did it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Three, 380, 400, just 400. Hold on, I'll play the same. 100, 100, 450, 470, 520. So what you're hearing is Andy counting his chips here. So they already figured out without checking the camera that Andy has 10K more than what the graphics show he should have. So Andy's like, oh, sorry, man. Okay, you know, whatever. I, I guess I took it. Well, he smoked your screen. <laughs> smoke screen. I, I, I know. I know what happened. Last, yeah. Yeah. It, it happened like 15 minutes ago. It happened like 15 minutes ago. You're not okay with it. You can. No, no, no. I'm, I'm just curious to see how it happened. Because like that's so weird. Like. So they're checking the cameras. Apparently. I'll talk about this after the promo. It's time for a giveaway at WPT Global. Apparently, they got interrupted by some kind of promo that came in right there as. You're about to explain what was happening. But the one thing I will say in Andy's favor is that he seems pretty insistent that they check the camera for how it happened, even when Mike is pretty willing to let it go. He's getting back the 10K. And he's like, oh, sorry, man. I didn't know how that happened, but I've got it. Okay. Yeah, check it. Check it. Though. I want to see how it happened. I want to see. I want to see. That does point a little bit more to the direction that he was innocent because why would he be that obsessed with them checking it if he was really grabbing the 10K surreptitiously? Because this wasn't when he pulled in a pot. So this would reveal if they checked the camera that something otherwise happened. But maybe he knew that the whole thing was on camera anyway, because, of course, this is a live stream, and he wanted it to look like that he wanted them to check and find out how it occurred. So, again, that doesn't mean that much. He's up $90,000. It's like, I'm 10K short to, to a cool million. So. I think Andy just blacked out when he was going to <laughs> So the other players are believing that no way would Andy would do this. He's up so much money anyway. Why would he do this? It's, you know, it's just 10K. 
and everybody's joking about it. Yeah, it's just raging double whammy that like, beats me like in a 70k pot. He just grabs my chips. I'm just paying from the back. Okay, so all good now. Apparently they're gonna check the cameras, but I mean they check the cameras and yeah, and unintentional that happens. Just normally you unintentionally take somebody's like five dollar chips in a game of this size. They're larger chips. Nonetheless, we continue on. If you are new to our show, by the way, the white chips are hundred. The gray chips, we don't see them too often. Those are five hundred dollars each. I can't wait to watch back this first thirty minutes and try to see what happens. Yeah, no, I'm really curious. Like, I think it's what you said that hand I paid you because I gave you all green, and so then like it was kind of like a headache pulling it in. I'm the big blind, right? But I'm just curious. I want to see it. No, no, yeah, me too. Imagine how many investigations we're gonna have on this case. First Brian's palming oh. chips, now Andy's palming chips. Oh. Hey, at least he backs it up with the straddle. So then they show it again at the very end of this video. Uh, that's a tough one. It's a tough one. Of course, there's the question, why would a very high-limit player like Andy Stacks, number one, risk his ability to keep playing on these streams, and number two, risk his reputation to just grab 10K. I mean, 10K is not chump change, but 10K is flying back and forth so quickly, and much more than that at a game like this. Why steal 10K? But as Jeff Dime pointed out in the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum on Poker Fraud Alert, Andy Stax had a huge thing with that girl who owed him 16K, so much that he didn't want her in the game, he didn't want her around, and a big thing started back and forth, which I was understanding about that because I'd be pissed too. Just because you can afford to have had the money stolen from you or uh, borrowed from you and not paid back, it doesn't mean it's okay for someone to do it. So I was fine with him calling it out. But we see he was very willing to make a lot of drama over 16K. So therefore, stealing 10K... You can't just say, oh, he's too rich to do that because if money didn't matter, then he wouldn't have made a big deal about that 16K. So Jeff brings up a good point. But that doesn't mean he stole. Jeff Dime also pointed out rich people can be kleptos too. Look at Winona Ryder. And that's the other thing in that sometimes someone will steal not for financial reasons, but just for the thrill of getting away with it. They get some kind of charge out of doing it so maybe for whatever reason he thought hmm i wonder if i can shuffle chips and while i'm doing it just quickly palm that 10k for mike and see if he never realizes it and if he does you know i'll just plead ignorance and say hey i bet it happened when i got a pot earlier and even if they figure out what i did i can make an excuse i was just shuffling chips i do see it weird that he could be shuffling like this and then grab at two lone chips sitting by someone else's stack because he did move his hand and it wasn't like the chips he grabbed were really right in front of his hand. He moved it over. So I think the only way he could be innocent here would be if he thought these were his, if he thought it was from a pot that he had won a short time ago and it just didn't make it over to his stack and he didn't want to ask Mike and have Mike say it was his. So he may have thought, okay, this is probably mine, and I don't want to give Mike the chance to claim it was his, so I'm just going to grab him. I think that's the most innocent he could be here. I don't see it to where this was an accidental grab. I think 
at minimum, this was a grab on purpose. But he believed they were his. At worst, he knew they were Mike's and took them anyway. Positive Variance, who's a forum poster, I mentioned him earlier, he said, as soon as Mike realized he may be missing two 5K chips, he's looking around for a bit. At that point, Andy should have spoken up and said, I was shuffling my 5Ks right here. It's possible I may have grabbed yours by mistake. Andy basically let Mike keep looking for the missing chips. He should have told him right there what happened and told the floor to go to the camera to sort it out. Andy has always come across as a solid person to me, but these guys are on camera. It's hard to say what is real with their personality and character and what is not. With taking so much chips, it's basically a free roll. There's basically no consequences if caught. If caught, you say, oh, I'm sorry, it was an accident. This situation is a perfect example. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Someone in the comments claimed that he was also caught on camera in the past stealing, quote, three chips from Art on a stream as well. I'm not sure which Art he's referring to, but he said that someone uh, that he's been caught stealing before. I don't know if that really happened, but... Hmm. Who knows? Remember, these streamed games, uh, they, attacked, they, they attract a certain personality type. These aren't just people who play poker. These are people who like to play poker and have it streamed. And sometimes this can attract a strange sort of person. So I wouldn't, pass, I wouldn't put past anything from anyone who's on these streams unless they've been around for a very long time and already have a very solid reputation. But anyone you mainly know from streams, anyone who wasn't a well-known player until they played on the streams, I don't know what you can say about them. Jeff Dime also pointed out that he felt that Andy Stacks had very nervous mannerisms in the whole thing and that the chips were not in a common area. He had no business touching them, let alone taking them. So yeah, if I had to guess... I would say I have fairly high certainty that he knew he was taking them. I just don't really know the intentions. It could have been he just thought they were his and somehow ended up in front of Mike's stack and didn't want an argument and figured if Mike's missing him, he's going to say something. Or maybe he really was stealing. Mm. If you ask me who I trust that plays on these streams, I don't even know who I could say. Like, seriously, that it's very hard to say I can trust any of these people. Some of them seem trustworthy, but as Positive Variant said, this could be a face for the camera. Speaking of live stream players, I have some bad news to report regarding someone who used to be on these streamed poker shows a lot, but hasn't been seen uh, too much in the last year or so. I don't know if at all in the last year or so. Ramsey Dumani was a stream player. He was both on Live at the Bike and Hustler Casino Live. I believe more on uh, Live at the Bike because uh, Hustler Casino Live only started in August of 2021. Ramsey Dumani, 34 years old, passed away. And I think it's a pretty sad story because I think this didn't have to happen. I don't believe this was just like a heart attack of a previously unknown condition or anything like that. I I think this was something that was preventable. Ramsey was a pretty wild player. He liked to make moves. For example, 
in one of the videos that is up of Live of the Bike, it was him versus Garrett Edelstein where they got into a battle on the river with a straight on the board with 8, 9, 10, Jack, Queen, where normally players just check it down at this point. They assume if they don't have the king that if they try to bet, they're going to get called anyway. But sometimes players will try to get cute here and represent they have the king and hope that a good player will think they're not betting unless they have it, and then the player will fold. So what's funny is in this particular hand, they were both going at each other. Neither had the king, so both of them were playing the board. And Ramsey bet. Garrett didn't believe it and raised. And then Ramsey re-raised. This is both playing the board. So that's the type of player he was. Now, this can be very exciting on the stream for people to watch, and that's why they kept inviting Ramsey back. But the problem is there's a fine line between creative plays and recklessness. And when you play this way, you will then run into people who really have it or learn not to believe you and start calling you a lot more often. And even if you get some bluffs through, if you spend too much money bluffing, you're going to find yourself in the poorhouse. So a lot of time these players who put on these amazing moves will end up broke anyway because they become too reckless and what's good about them ends up being what's bad about them. This is most effective when you have an image of someone who won't pull something like this. And then people assume, okay, this guy's not going to raise here unless he's got something very strong. He's not going to raise with a straight on the board if he doesn't at least have that beat. That's who you can fold against. But a guy who's doing this type of thing a lot, then you're going to look him up a lot. And if you have him beat, at least here with Garrett, they were tied. But if you have that person beat, then that person's going to lose a lot of money when they keep pulling these moves. Yeah, sometimes they'll get paid off a lot more because people don't give them credit, but eventually it catches up with them. Trader Ruski, I don't think you would do that. You wouldn't uh, raise if sub- someone bet into you with a straight on the board if you couldn't do more than play the board, right? You know, it's it's all situation, but probably not. Yeah. Now, it's hard to do that because you really have to know that person is capable of folding there. Otherwise, uh, and the other problem is they could call believing that you know, they can beat the board, but that they don't have the nuts. Like on this board with the eighth through jack straight, well, you could worry that someone has ace-king, so even a king's going to lose. You don't want to run this move on someone you think is incapable of folding there. And uh, Garrett, at least at first, wasn't believing it because he raised him when he got bit into there. So once you've got that reputation of a wild player, it is, gets harder and harder to successfully pull off these moves, and players kind of learn to wait for you to hang yourself. But we're not really here to discuss Ramsey's poker play. He was an entertaining person to watch. He's a lot more interesting to watch on the stream than a nit who's just always betting when he has it. But sometimes with these players who have a wild play style on the table, they don't leave it just on the table. They sometimes have it translate into the rest of their life because they need this rush. They need this constant excitement. 
So it isn't all that common to have these type of players finish their poker session and then leave a lead a uh, conservative and cautious lifestyle. So a lot of times these players who are action players for thrills will then seek other forms of thrills when they are off the table. And that may have been what was happening here. His passing was first reported by a frequent stream player who goes by Israeli Ron. And then it was confirmed by others. Originally, Israeli Ron just posted a picture of Ramsey with his thumbs up. Hopefully he hadn't just played with D-Lucky. And then just wrote R.I.P. with the emoji of hands in a prayer motion. Andy Stacks, who we just talked about in the previous segment, apparently was friendly with Ramsey. He wrote, Ramsey Dumani, he did things out of kindness, asking for nothing. I could tell him anything, and he gave me tough love, not just what I wanted to hear. When he fell on hard times, he was still selfless and always made time to talk or see me. He was a rare soul and a true friend. Now, I will say that people who knew Ramsey had good things to say about him. He was said to be generous. He was said to be nice and jovial. And that is often common with those type of players as well. They show up. They're there to gamble. They're there to have fun. They don't freak out when they're losing money. They don't get in bad moods from losing as easily as other players do. And, of course, after someone passes away, you're going to mostly see nice things written about them and few bad things. But Andy Stacks was claiming that Ramsey was still generous even when he was, quote, on hard times. I don't know if he means generous with his time or with his money or both, but uh, he said that he did a lot of things out of kindness. So people liked him, but obviously the guy had some issues because it is not being reported that he died of some sort of natural cause. So while some people do die at a young age of uh, undiagnosed heart conditions or brain aneurysms or accidents, it doesn't look like it was one of these things. It doesn't look like this was something that he couldn't help. Because this would have been said. It would have been said something like uh, he died of a heart condition he didn't know about, or he did know about it, he just never told us. Like That would have been part of the story, because it's tragic. Like You, you know someone who's a very nice guy, and then it turns out that uh, they had a health problem that kills them at a young age. And I've known people like that before. But that's not what's being said here. Someone on the forum found the report from the L.A. County Coroner's Office is an incomplete report. That Ramsey Dumani, December 25th, 1987 through December 12th, 2022, 34 years old, case number blah, 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 case status incomplete, body status here, gender male, ethnicity Armenian, place of death residence. So he died at his home. My thought when I heard about this, and I didn't know Ramsey, I've never met him, and I don't watch much stream poker, so I didn't have much of an opinion of him other than what others were saying. I don't like to see that a poker player dies young. Yeah, that's sad in itself, but I wasn't emotionally connected to him, so you know, I was kind of just guessing on the forum what the cause of death could be, and I thought that the 
when he fell on hard times thing that Andy Stacks wrote, and the fact that he had been missing from the streams for a while, that made me think that maybe it was a suicide. Maybe he ran out of money and he was he got depressed and maybe all the action seeking was kind of masking for issues he had with depression. So I thought it might have been a suicide, especially at his home. So I said that unless it was something like an undiagnosed heart condition, given his age and this hard times post by Andy Stacks, I have to guess it was either suicide or drugs, which usually is the cause of death of someone of that age in poker. The rumor that has been going around since was that it was an overdose. In fact, uh, according to someone on the forum, I haven't seen the post, but uh, someone on the forum said that Andy Stacks replied to somebody who was asking about it on Instagram and said he died of an overdose. So that kind of makes sense to me. I, I think I believe that. And I don't know if it's just because he enjoyed doing drugs as part of his kind of wild and thrill-seeking lifestyle or if he was depressed over his condition at the moment, you know, financially, and did this to kind of self-medicate and overdid it one night and was found dead. So, you know, it's a sad story either way. But a lot of times these maniac and degenerate players that you see at the table, they live their lives the same way off the table, and the risk-taking you see at the table translates to other areas. I knew someone like this who died at around a similar age. I've talked about him before, Thy Prez. And Thy Prez was someone who got into poker because I played poker. And he decided he wanted to play. And he would do crazy things. Like he would announce one of his cards and be telling the truth. He'd be playing a hand and say, I might have a 10. And every time he'd say that, he really had it. <laughs> people learned that pretty quickly. So, of course, he, he, would, he would lose money because people knew one of his cards a lot of the time. So Thy Prez... Not only was he a crazy gambler, and not just in poker, he, he gambled a lot in Vegas, and he played a lot of pit games. He, he was a, a big-time gambler, and he loved taking risks in general. And uh, at the time I knew him and spent time with him, he wasn't into drugs. But eventually he got into drugs. He was a few years younger than me. He moved to San Diego. He had a regular job. He wasn't a professional gambler, but he had a regular job. And he eventually lost that. And he lost the house he had bought. He moved to San Diego. And I guess that's where things really went downhill. And he he got another job there, but he, was, uh, he started getting DUIs. And he started uh, doing a lot of drugs there. And he's having a lot of issues there. And then... One day I heard that he died of a drug overdose. This is about like 10 years ago. So in one way, it was shocking to hear this. And in another way, it wasn't shocking all that much. As recently as about uh, three months ago, I was asked about him at Commerce because people still remember him being associated with me. People remembered we'd come there together. People would ask what happened to thy prez or the president. That's what they refer to him as. And I, I've had to say over and over to people from Commerce that remembered me that hadn't seen me in a while or just saw me and just didn't ask. They would ask me, hey, what happened to thy press? What happened to the president? Where, where is he? And then I have to explain to them that he died and it was drugs. And 
you know, I don't go into it too much, but you know, I, I've gotten a lot of questions over time about him. So kind of a similar story, I think. And, and similar to what's being described of Ramsey, that, that Prez would, uh, you'd go out to dinner with him, he'd always insist he's going to pay. So I see a lot of the same patterns from what's being described of Ramsey of what I saw of Diprez, and both of them died at a similar age, looking like it was an overdose in both cases. Unfortunately, poker doesn't always attract the most stable people. Gambling in general doesn't. So you have a lot more of this in poker than you do in the general population. So I never like hearing these stories or reading about it, but it's inevitable with a community as large as poker, you're, you're going to have some of these. And it's too bad because they're preventable. But some people, it, it almost seems like they're destined to end up like that. And some, it just brings out the worst in them. Yeah, that too. Like, like, like Franklin. Remember Franklin, the Twilight Zone? Remember when the, the, the older couple went, went to Vegas for the first time and then, you know, the husband was all against... Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that classic Franklin, episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it can. That's another thing is that sometimes the gambling can make whatever issue they have worse. And they can make their impulsiveness worse and their risk-taking worse. And something that Prez told me was that when he would gamble and lose, it would set something off in him to engage in other reckless behavior. He told me that. He felt like just he's already done something reckless and lost a lot of money, so now he might as well do other reckless things. I thought that was uh, interesting when he told me that. This is before he was doing drugs, at least to my knowledge. All right, well, let's let's move on to something, again, less depressing, hopefully something you'll find amusing, and that is another Prahlad Friedman update. I had this by request. A lot of people want Perlod Freeman updates and feel I don't do it enough. So for those that have been saying this, this is for you. Sorry it had to be this deep into the show. But I'm going to give you the update you've been craving. And I, I think it's appropriate because it's a topic that we've been talking about. And that is about live stream cheating. He has a lot to say about that. Now, remember, Perlod Friedman was supposedly a very high-minded person who saw himself as a modern-day hippie, and he saw corporations as evil. And when he was winning a lot of money in the 2000s, he was refusing to sign with any sites, even big respected ones like PokerStars. And he had offers. He was a well-known player, a well-respected player. And he could have easily gotten sponsorships, but he turned them down. He said, yo, I don't want to sign with corporations. Corporations are evil. They're all evil. I ain't going to sign with any of them. I ain't going to promote any of them. And at the time, to his credit, he stuck to that and turned down money. But it's easier to turn down money when you're winning a lot of money. But he went on a pretty brutal downswing. And then he signed with UB, post-cheating scandal. Now, he was one of the biggest victims of UB. I think they reported that he had been cheated out of like $435,000, but he probably lost more than that. That's what they gave him back. But you heard that 
recording I played of the meeting with Daniel Friedberg and Russ Hamilton and Greg Pearson, where they were all discussing how to underpay people. So I bet Perlotta got underpaid. But if he wasn't underpaid, he got ripped off for more than 400-something thousand by their own admission. So what did he do? He signed with them. Yo, but this is the new UB. It ain't the old UB. It's the new UB. It got new, new ownership. And they're they, they donating to charity now, so they're good. They're good. Well, no, it was the same ownership, and everyone was trying to tell him that. And he wouldn't listen. He was willfully ignorant. He didn't even want to hear them out. So after years and years of speaking out against corporations, refusing to sign with any of them, he signed with the most evil poker corporation there was. Knowingly. It's not like he did it thinking they were good. He knew what they were, and people were trying to tell him, including friendly people trying to tell him, and he didn't want to listen. Didn't want to listen to any of them. Didn't want to do his own research. He wouldn't address it for a long time. Remember, of course, uh, UB ended up stealing everyone's money, and when they were busted on Black Friday, they had nothing, and everyone got cheated. He refused to talk about it until fairly recently, and then finally he kind of admitted that he did it because he was in a bad financial position, which I was surprised he admitted. He was doing it not in a apologetic way. He was basically scolding someone for criticizing him, saying, hey, let's see you in my position where they're offering you all this money and you're broke, you need the money. I want to see you turn that down. Something along those lines. It wasn't his exact quote, but it was, it was him kind of saying, hey, you'd have taken it too. Stop getting on your high horse with me. That was the first time I ever saw him admit that. So needless to say, since we know from Pallad's own words that he took that UB position and promoted them, knowing it was the same dirty owners as before that had cheated him and everybody else, that he is not in a position to comment on cheating. He just isn't. He should just sit this out. He should not make commentary about the morality of other players in the game when it comes to cheating because he promoted a site that cheated, that had the same ownership, and that, again, cheated everybody. That time, second time around, they just did it by stealing. But that doesn't stop him. So he's been popping off on Twitter pretty aggressively about cheating in poker. So let's start here on December 12th. Cheating in poker is just so easy in 2022. Use RTA online or signal to your buddy to play with the same money. Use one, two, three, four fingers or scratch your face or whatever you want to do. Even if it's a huge stream, nobody cares. You can sit with 500K and your buddy can sit with 500K and just signal. Okay, so he's referring to Hustler Casino Live or maybe Live at the Bike. That it's so easy, he's saying, that in 2022, if you're playing online, you can just use real-time assistance to tell you what to do. And if you're playing on a live stream for big money, just sit there with your buddy, deep-stacked, and signal each other of how to play and collude and knock people off hands. And he says, even if it's a huge stream, nobody cares. And he goes on to say, you can signal when you fold the trips, no problem, nobody cares. You can signal when you fold the top pair, a flush blocker, no problem. You can also play crazy versus your buddy so everyone thinks you're wild, no problem. Cheating's easy, even if 10 million people see it. You could be a notorious signaler and be up huge, no problem. Even if you get caught like Russ Hamilton, you're still good. No problem. Okay, hang, hang on a second. <laughs> you're bringing Russ Hamilton into this now? Um, Prahlad, let's think about this. What site did Russ Hamilton cheat on? 
Oh, that's right, you be. <laughs> Which site did you promote after Russ Hamilton cheated? Oh, that's right, you be. <laughs> How can you bring up Russ Hamilton? He's saying, oh, nobody cares about Russ Hamilton. First of all, that's not true. Russ Hamilton kind of just hides and doesn't even play anywhere that's uh, not some small out-of-the-way room in Florida or whatever. Like, he doesn't really publicly show up anywhere except for these small rooms now. So that's not even true with Russ. But even if it was, like, you were promoting the site where he did the cheating with the same owners in place. Like, how, how can you even write that? How can you write any of this? Like, what about all the stuff that happened on UB after you were a spokesman that you were warned about. How, how can you even write this stuff? Let's go to another tweet. Maybe one day AI will spot cheetahs in poker. And the reason he mentioned that is he, he keeps talking about chat GPT. He's one of these people who's like always talking with that chat GPT bot and trying to see how it converses and what it says. And it, it is an interesting bot, but he's obsessed with this and keeps tweeting about it. And so let, let's move to the next tweet. Unless you have a super proven high percentage winning trades, never use margin. The fees are absolutely crazy unless you have crazy high volume. Oh, I see. So we have uh, Prahlad the trader now. That's, that's a new one. I didn't know he was a stock trader. Hmm. But he's complaining. He's saying the fees are too high. I represent the rent is too damn high party. Unless you have really high volume. So don't ever use margin unless you are really, really a great trader. The fees are going to get you. This one, a little bit late, but this one about Robbie Jade Lou and her lie detector test. I, I assume it's about her because she really took the only high-profile lie detector test in poker in recent times. When someone offers to take a lie detector test and bet it, how often is this a bluff? And then he had a poll for more than 50% bluff or less than 50% bluff. So this isn't quite what she did because she wasn't betting the results of the lie detector test, but I, I have to imagine it's inspired by that since he's talking all about the live stream cheating. He's asking if somebody is saying they'll take a lie detector test and offering to bet on the results, is this them showing false confidence so you'll back down and, and believe that they have to be telling the truth if they're offering this? Or is it because they're really telling the truth? That's actually a good question. Should it not a bluff be one of the answers? Well, or yeah, he's. Possible I guess he's he's saying like uh, the chances of it's a bluff. Do you think that more than fifty percent of the time they're bluffing, or less than fifty percent of the time they're bluffing? I, I'm fine with that. And the results were sixty-four point nine to thirty-five point one in favor of more than fifty percent bluff. I actually don't agree with that. I actually think it's the other way. I'm sure the other way happens sometimes, too. I think that sometimes people will use the, hey, I'll take a lie detector test, who wants to bet me, as a way to convince everyone. Because the person who you think might be lying, only they know if they're telling the truth, unless there's some kind of independent info you have. So if you think they're confident enough to bet you on a lie detector result, then you start getting worried because you know that they wouldn't bet you unless they know that it's going to fall in their favor. So then they know you're not going to accept the bet and they know that's going to trick you into believing they're telling the truth. So I, I see his point. But I think usually when someone's saying that is because they know they're telling the truth and they don't know how to communicate that to you 
that they are so confident and being so honest with you. So it immediately goes to, well, I'll take a lie detector. Oh, and I'll bet on it too. So I think that's more of what happens than someone trying to use this as a trick. That's just my guess, though. But okay, it's actually a good tweet by Perlite. Actually, it's an interesting tweet. I, I still don't know if, if this has to do with Robbie Jade Lou, but whatever. I, I actually think this is an interesting question. So I'll give you that one, Perlite. Next one, he's commenting again on poker cheating. This is about Andy Stacks and the alleged stealing. Watch the video of Andy Stacks stealing 10K from Mike X. Couldn't be more obvious. People don't steal 10K by accident. We all know Andy Stacks will never take 10 lie detector tests for anything. I've seen this bluff so many times in poker. Everyone says it's never takes one. Everyone who says that never takes one test. Okay, so it looks like probably he was talking about Andy Stacks. I didn't see Andy Stacks say that he'll take lie detector tests, but maybe it's on social media. Anyway, then apparently Andy was not very happy about that tweet and told Perlot privately. <laughs> Prelod said, Andy just told me I'm dead to him. We were never friends. Like, I care. <laughs> so he's claiming Andy must have messaged him and said, hey, you're dead to me. I'm never going to talk to you again. And Prelod's like, hey, I don't care. We were never buddies, man. That is funny. He wrote more about Andy Stacks. He said, so Andy Stacks told me he'll take 10 lie detector tests to say he didn't cheat. Now he says he'll take five lie detector tests to say he didn't steal 10K. So, Andy, let's arrange for Joey Ingram to do 10 tests, and you're going to pay for them. I'll call you bluff. Lie detector with eyes and have to be barefoot. I'm not sure what that means. But apparently, Andy Stacks doesn't want to talk to him anymore. Then he comments, connecting the Andy Stacks 10K chip grab and the Brian Sagbixall 15K theft by saying, so Brian stole 15K for sure, and we didn't see the tape. But Andy Stacks stole by accident on tape. People sure are surreal. <laughs> I understand his point here. But when a person who's not in the game walks up and just grabs money off of a stack, there's no other way to explain it other than stealing. Unless they were given permission to grab it. Whereas Andy was sitting next to Chips. So his story is that he didn't even realize he grabbed them. I agree the whole thing looks suspicious, but you can't compare the two. That's kind of a dumb tweet to say, well, we didn't see this tape of Brian stealing them. What's the other possible explanation? He was caught on tape doing it. The police saw it and have a warrant out for his arrest. And he admitted it. So what? Like, why else would he be taking chips from Robbie Stack? Other than her giving permission, which he's never claimed she did. Nor do I think Perlod's trying to make that case. So now we have some politics, but it kind of spawned from this other discussion. So Aaron Queskin responded to Perlod regarding the whole thing with the five detector, five lie detectors, ten lie detectors that Andy Stacks was supposedly offering to do. And Aaron Queskin said, you actually think he stole 10K from a friend on camera intentionally? Come on, dude, you're turning into one of those whacks. This is sad. Poker ain't that hard for all your opponents. So then out of nowhere, Perlod responds with, do you have the same energy for innocent people shot by the cops on camera? So 
what? Like, I, I don't understand what he's trying to say here. Those are his people. <laughs> yeah, like, what does that have to do with this? Just because they're both on camera, it's the same thing? What? So Aaron is asking a reasonable question. I didn't know Mike X is a friend of Andy's. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. But Aaron is saying he is. Aaron's saying, you actually think that right on camera that Andy Stacks would steal 10K from a friend sitting next to him. Come on, you know, you're, you're being wacko. Now, I think Aaron is dismissing too much the possibility that it really was stealing. I saw the video as we talked about in a segment about this, and it is very suspicious. So Aaron's being too hard and Perlod being suspicious here. However, you don't come back with, yeah, but what about the innocent people shot by the cops on camera? How come, are, are you going to be complaining about that? Like, what? First of all, how do you know he doesn't say something about that? Maybe, maybe Aaron Questkin has talked about the people that were shot by cops on camera that shouldn't have been shot. I, I, like, what do you mean do you have the same energy? I, I don't think this Aaron Questkin guy is for cops shooting innocent people on camera. Well, where's he even getting this? So then... A person named Patrick E. O. I don't know who this is, but he's Herd of Pigs, but it's H-E-A-R-D of Pigs on Twitter. He wrote back, innocent people shot by cops. Hilarious. Show me all the innocent people shot the last 10 years. And this got Perlot very angry. And he quoted that tweet and said, a quick example of how clueless someone can be. Then Perlot decided, same day, December 16th, he's going to do a poll. Another poll, this one not about the lie detector test, whether it's a bluff or not when someone says they'll take one, but this one about signaling again. He's very into the signaling thing. With signaling happening nonstop on many different streams, what exactly is going on? Then the three options are reality TV, cheating, real but trolling. So real patrolling presumably means the person's not really signaling. They're pretending like they're signaling to get everyone to talk about it. Reality TV, I, I don't know what he means other than like maybe it's innocent and then cheating is obvious. So 61% said cheating, but he really believes he's seeing signaling. And I've seen these pictures of, of people with, with their fingers pointed a certain way and, you know... If you look at someone who's playing poker for hours and hours and hours, you're going to see a lot of weird gestures and things that if you just grab a screenshot of it by itself could look bad, but if you just watch them playing, they just kind of fidget over time. So I don't think that really means very much. Now here's one that has nothing to do with any of this. Nothing to do with cops shooting anyone on camera. Nothing to do with lie detectors. Nothing to do with signaling. Nothing to do with cheating. No. This one is just really out of left field. You can tell me if you agree. Mosquito bites are almost good. The satisfaction from a nice scratch can really be something. (laughs) (laughs) What? He likes mosquito bites because then he gets to have a nice scratch. The problem is the scratch doesn't end it. You scratch it, and then like a very short time later, it itches again. Sometimes like seconds later. 
And if you scratch too much, then you, you create a, a wound there and it starts bleeding. Like, you, you don't want to be scratching them. You can't help it a lot of times. I'll, I'll scratch mosquito bites, but I'm not happy I have them. I'm not like, ah, this is so relaxing. Oh, I'm so glad I have these itches so I can scratch there. It's a weird thing to write. Yeah, it looks like he's still with this Brazilian woman, Fernanda Basilio. Last I heard, he was actually living in Rio de Janeiro with her. And he has uh, a kid with this woman. I don't know what he's doing about his first kid. Because I believe that woman, who also is from Brazil, is living in L.A. still. So I, I don't know where that second kid is. Or I guess the first kid. But I think he's living in Brazil with this uh, woman that he's with now. Fernanda Basilio. I will say that this woman he's with now seems a lot nicer than the first one. The first one seemed uh, very much like a hustler. I don't think she was ever really into Perlot. I think she was just using him. This woman seems like legitimately into Perlot. The other one seems kind of more street than this one. This kind of just seems like a regular Brazilian girl. The the other one was... uh, Kind of uh, much more wild, much more uh, into herself. As I said, it didn't seem like Perlod was her type. She even wrote bad stuff about white people, <laughs> like about white guys and white people. This is while she was with him. Thinking, That's kind of strange. Like, you're with a white guy. If you don't like white guys, fine, but why are you with him and having a kid with him? So it kind of seemed like he went for another girl in the image of the one that didn't work out. And the funny thing was, before this, he didn't date Brazilians, to my knowledge. But all of a sudden, he's got this, like, young Brazilian girl thing going on, but I guess this one's working so far. He's got a weird picture of himself as his profile picture. It's like this black and white picture, and he's got this, like, super serious face, and he's got this bleach blonde hair. It's very weird. It kind of looks like a midlife crisis is going on here. Anyway, Prahlad, please, no more of this cheating commentary. Remember your history. Remember you promoted a cheating site after they cheated. Not before they cheated, but after. After, with the same ownership. And you kept promoting them. So that's it. You can't talk about cheating anymore. But I guess he does. All righty, let's move on. I have an FTX update for you. Of course, a lot has happened since we were on two weeks ago. I mentioned on the show two weeks ago that Caroline Ellison was spotted in New York City. And I presumed at the time that the only reason she could be there would be that she was there to make a deal. Because why else would she make it easy for the feds? Why would she just come back to the U.S. and wait to get arrested? You never want to make it easy for them. You have more leverage if you're somewhere else. So why would you just like stroll right into New York and appear in public? So I thought the only likely answer to that was that she had decided to give herself up and make a deal. And it turned out that is exactly what happened. So SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, was arrested in the Bahamas at the request of the U.S., The U.S. asked Bahamian authorities to arrest him 
with the intention to ship him back to the U.S. to face charges for the theft of the funds at FTX. The Bahamas is not the best place to be if you are looking to avoid extradition. That is because the Bahamas depends on the U.S. for its own economy. It is very physically close to the U.S., and a lot of their economy comes from tourism. And the last thing they want to do is really get the U.S. mad and ruin the good relationship they have with the U.S. So they generally do extradite criminals that are hiding there. And some people have tried to fight it. And then fighting it is a double-edged sword because while you can delay being shipped back for a while, you sometimes don't want the delay because their prisons are notoriously bad. In fact, some are so bad that they don't even have toilets. You actually have to crap in a bucket. And the place is full of rats and maggots. And there's some awful stories that come from Bahamian prisons. In fact, it's said that their prisons are among the worst in the world, which is saying a lot. So it's not where you want to hang out for a year while you're fighting your extradition that you're probably going to lose anyway. Really, the best choice at that point is just to say, okay, you know, just ship me back now. I don't want to be in this Bahamian prison. Because you're usually not going to win these fights. The Bahamas are not going to defy the U.S. and their desire to extradite people. The Bahamas will sometimes look at it and see if it seems like the charges are valid and if the person's being persecuted in some way, but it, it rarely is that case. So usually it's just someone who really has committed the crime and is trying to hide in the Bahamas, and the Bahamas will not have that. They will arrest you and they will hold you in these terrible prisons until you eventually get shipped back anyway. So SBF knew that. And for that reason, um, I, I, he ended up not fighting the extradition. There was some talk he was going to fight the extradition, but he ended up not fighting the extradition and he was shipped to the United States to face the charges. However, there's more to the story, of course, because there is the Caroline Ellison situation. Caroline Ellison, I'm sure you remember, was the CEO of Alameda Research, which received the stolen money. There were rumors that she had told people independently that she knew the money was stolen that she knew the money and assets that were transferred over from FTX to Alameda were stolen funds. And that she was aware and that Gary Wang, who is an accomplice in the whole thing, was aware that, of course, SBF was not only aware, but he facilitated it. Like, she told people this, people who could testify to this. So it looked like that she fully knew what was going on. The others there fully knew what was going on. And then, of course, SBF fully knew what was going on, and this wasn't an accidental thing like he's been trying to portray on social media. So with her testimony, it would be pretty strong against SBF, especially if she turned over everything she had and just sang like a bird. Now, she is not the number one target in this whole thing. She might be the number two target, but the overwhelming number one, of course, is SBF, who was the head of FTX and the one who actually stole the money. 
there are some people who believe that she may have manipulated him and that uh, she may not have been as innocent in this thing as she likes to, as some people would believe. That maybe this was a joint idea between them, maybe it was actually her idea and she got him to do it, but I actually don't think that. I think this was more him and she was just aware of it and had no problem. Caroline Ellison and another accomplice of the whole thing, Gary Wang, both came voluntarily to the U.S. and both pled guilty with the agreement to cooperate in the investigation. So that is very, very bad news for SBF with these two major figures cooperating against him. And this document was made available, so I have it right in front of me right now. It's fairly long. It's seven pages of a lot of writing, so I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. But the document says that she has pled guilty to various counts. Count one is engaging in a conspiracy to commit wire fraud against customers of FTX. Count two with wire fraud against customers of FTX and aiding and abetting the same. Count three is engaging in a conspiracy to commit wire fraud on lenders of Alameda Research. Count four, wire fraud on lenders of Alameda Research and aiding and abetting the same. Count five, conspiracy to commit commodities fraud. Count six, conspiracy to commit securities fraud. Count seven, conspiracy to commit money laundering. The total of these seven counts would mean a maximum of 110 years in prison. Now, Caroline Ellison is pretty young. I think she's like 28 or something along those lines, but I don't think anyone is going to survive 110 years in prison. And a lot of people were scratching their heads going, wait a minute, why would she come to the U.S. voluntarily and plead guilty to all these facing 110 years in prison? How could she do any worse? Well, it's because that is the maximum sentence she could get, but that is not the actual sentence she will get. In fact, it won't be anywhere close because she is pleading guilty and making a deal with the government. It also says the defendant agrees to waive any defenses related to the venue. So she can't complain where they're going to be holding the cases. It's understood the defendant shall make restitution in an amount to be specified by the court. (laughs) She has to reimburse any kind of substantial portion of that 10 billion. Good luck. Like, where is she going to come up with that money? Even though her parents have some money, I mean, even she inherited all that one day. Like, there's, she couldn't make a dent in that figure. No, nobody, none of them ever will. So I don't know where that restitution is going to come from. She is agreeing to forfeiture regarding any proceeds traceable to the commission of these offenses. Now, that's not her agreeing to forfeit anything she has. That's her agreeing to forfeit any money she made for, while committing these crimes. Then here's the important part. The defendant shall truthfully and completely disclose all information concerning all matters about which this office inquires. 
meaning the government, which can be used for any purpose, shall cooperate fully with this office, which I think they're referring to the SEC specifically, the FBI, and any other law enforcement agency designated by this office, shall attend all meetings requested by this office, shall provide to this office upon request any document, record, or other tangible evidence relating to matters about which this office or any designated law enforcement agency inquires, shall truthfully testify before the grand jury and any trial and other court proceeding when requested to do so by this office, shall bring this office's attention to all crimes that she's committed and all administrative, civil, or criminal proceedings, investigations, or prosecutions in which the defendant has been or is a subject, target, party, or witness, shall commit no further crimes whatsoever and shall provide notice to this office before discussing the conduct covered in this information with anyone other than this office. So basically, she's agreeing to spill her guts and also not to tell anyone what she's telling them. And also to keep her nose clean in the meantime and to let them know everything she's done, give them any documents, just basically give them the world. It also says this office cannot and does not agree not to prosecute the defendant for criminal tax violations. However, if the defendant fully complies with the understanding specified in the agreement, no testimony or other information given by the defendant will be used against the defendant in any criminal tax prosecution. So what they're trying to say here is that if she's evaded taxes, they're not going to protect her from this. And they meaning either the uh, DOJ or the uh, SEC. I guess in this case it is the DOJ. I thought it was the SEC, but it's actually the DOJ. So the DOJ is not going to tell the IRS, whoa, 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 we've agreed we're not going to prosecute her over tax matters related to this, so back off. They're saying they're not going to do this, that if the IRS wants to come after her for any kind of tax evasion, that they can, but that anything she tells the DOJ as part of this uh, cooperation, that they're not going to then hand that over to the IRS to use against her. So that part will be kept from the IRS, but anything the IRS has discovered on their own, uh, she's not going to be protected. It's not known if the IRS is really going to come after her, but that's in there. Then there's some redacted portions. This has to do with things that uh, she is admitting that she's done. So it's interesting that some of this is not in here. It's referring to conspiracy to commit money laundering between in or about 2020 and in or about November 2022 as charged in count seven of the information colon and then there's a big blacked out session. I'm not sure what that is, but they didn't want the public seeing that. It also mentions regarding uh, citizenship and that basically if uh, it's found that she is not a citizen of the United States, that she won't have any uh, further right to stay in the United States. I have to imagine that they would uh, make her serve any sentence she has first, but that they can deport her after the whole thing's over. (laughs) Now, you may wonder... How would she not be a citizen? What it specifically says is the defendant affirms that the defendant wants to plead guilty regardless of any immigration or denaturalization consequences that may result from the guilty plea, even if those consequences include denaturalization and removal from the United States. So why would she ever have to even agree to that? 
Like, if I were charged with any kind of crime, no matter how bad, they could not take away my U.S. citizenship. The reason that might be mentioned here, and it's on page six, is because she may have renounced her U.S. citizenship for tax purposes. There's a there's an incorrect belief that if you don't live in the U.S. that you don't owe U.S. taxes on your income. But that's not true. If you make any money abroad while still a U.S. citizen, you are expected to pay U.S. taxes. You won't owe any state taxes, but you will owe federal taxes. So the only way to get out of owing federal taxes to the U.S. on income made abroad is if you are not a U.S. citizen. So what some people have done, especially people in crypto who are expecting to make a lot of money, they renounce their U.S. citizenship, become a citizen of a place with zero or very low taxes, and this way they are avoiding taxes. The only problem is you no longer have U.S. citizenship, and now you no, hong- no, no longer have the right to come and stay in the U.S. You can visit, but uh, they can boot you at any time. So it's possible that that's what she did, and that's what they're talking about here. So they're saying that at any point, if she's not a citizen, that they may end up throwing her out of the U.S., which would be kind of uh, funny is first he serves her sentence, whatever it is, and then they say goodbye, and they kick her out of the U.S. back to wherever she's a citizen of now, and she's going to be stuck living there and maybe not allowed back in the U.S. ever. Anyway, she signed this agreement, as did her attorneys. This is dated 12-19-22. So there's no question. She's pleading guilty, and she's agreeing to give up everything. Gary Wang, who is another figure in this whole thing, he has pled guilty to four charges. There's a maximum sentence of up to 50 years, which, of course, he won't be getting. The way this usually works is that these sentences get massively reduced once the government has affirmed that the defendant has kept to the terms of what they promised. So they're not going to give her this incredibly reduced sentence and then have her screw them over afterwards. They're going to to make sure that they get out of her what she is promising. And then if she's cooperated the way they like, then they will recommend a very reduced sentence, and then she'll typically get that. There's been some debate, of course, about what she will get. Forget the 110 years, that's not realistic. But what will she get? My guess was 10 years, but some people are saying that I'm guessing too high and that she may get something like five, as as would uh, Gary Wang. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's true. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if they get even less than that and then get some probation following that and have to pay some fine. But it would not surprise me that much if because Caroline and Gary came to the U.S. so quickly, voluntarily, they didn't have to be arrested and shipped here like SBF did and that they agreed just right away to plead guilty to all this stuff, and they don't have criminal histories, that they may get some pretty light sentences compared to what you'd expect. They're not going to get zero, but they may not be in prison for all that long, and the goal here may be to give a very long sentence to SBF, and they're being used as pawns in this scheme to do so.
even if they know that Ellison and Wang were very, very much involved in this themselves. They may be seen as the smaller fish here in that it's worth giving them a light sentence if they're going to really give up the goods. But of course, they have to really give up the goods first. The government has to be satisfied that they fully cooperated, and then they'll sign off on it. So at this point, the government's in control because they've got them in custody. They have Caroline Ellison in custody. They have Gary Wang in custody. They're facing all these years in prison if they don't cooperate. And they can get it to a much, much, much lower number if they do cooperate like they've promised. So now they've got to deliver. Now they've got to cooperate. So this is very bad news for SBF. His only hope was that everybody would stay defiant here and not give up anything and really try to collectively stick to the story that they kind of did this on accident, that they didn't know what they were doing, that they thought they had it under control, that they didn't really steal anything. It was just bad accounting, and it just kind of happened, and there wasn't criminal intent. That, that was their best chance to get out of this. But it looks like Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang are like, nope, we're going to admit we stole, and... We're going to tell everything that SBF did and we'll be happy to testify in court about this and please give us a life sentence and fuck SBF. It kind of looks like that's what's happened here. And I'm sure SBF's attorneys can say, well, yeah, of course they're doing this because they want to get a life sentence, but if they give a lot of corroborating evidence, it's going to be very, very tough for SBF to get out of this one, no matter how good attorneys he hires. So he could get a very, very long sentence. And unlike Bernie Madoff, who was old when he got sentenced, SBF is like 31. So Bernie Madoff, who died uh, in April 2021, he was 82 when he died. He didn't get arrested until 2008. So he was already 70 years old when he was arrested. So he, no matter how long his sentence was, he wasn't going to serve all that much of it because... Uh, he just didn't have enough years left on this earth. And indeed, he lived 12 more years and died. He was sentenced, though, made off to 150 years in prison. <laughs> Even a young person would have died in prison. And in federal prison, you're not getting out that early. So I think they're hoping for something similar with SBF. And for SBF, it would be a lot more significant because he's not at the end of his life. This, is, this would be a young guy who would be serving many decades in prison, which you don't see that often for a nonviolent crime. But of course, it was a $10 billion crime. Now, if the estimate of Madoff's scheme is correct, it was actually bigger than what SBF did, but not by as much as you might think. Uh, the Actual losses to investors for Madoff was $18 billion, and SBF's was $10 billion. So, you know, they were in the same ballpark. You know, $8 billion is not nothing, but Madoff's was not even double of SBF's. So you could see a similar sentence. Now, Madoff's, you could say, was more intentional. It was more clear it was intentional because of it being a, a Ponzi scheme. But then again, SBF just seems to have outright stolen from FTX and, in fact, wrote a backdoor, allegedly, in the software 
to allow the funds to be transferred out of FTX without other employees there knowing what was going on, which shows that he knew he was doing something wrong and he was stealing. And especially if uh, the others plead guilty and admit they were stealing and all have the same story and can provide some proof of this, then I can't see how SBF gets out of this. So what's really huge about Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang just coming back to New York very quickly to face the music is that this takes away a lot of legal angles that SBF could possibly use to get himself out of this one. However, remember I said SBF was sent back to the U.S. Well, he was. But is he sitting in jail right now? No, he is not. SBF somehow got out on bail even though they set his bail at $100 billion. Not that far from it. A $250 million bail that this guy who claimed he was broke was able to post. So how is that possible? People are scratching their heads going, what? I thought this guy had nothing left. So how is he posting $250 million bail? (laughs) Has anyone ever posted $250 million bail? I've never heard of this before. $250 million. If I were arrested, I I could not come up with $250 million bail. I'll tell you that. So how did he do it? Well, someone on Twitter posted the bail disposition form for SBF. And it looks like that the bail was secured by his parents' home in Palo Alto. And that he was released to their custody. He's actually at his parents' house right now in Palo Alto, California. Maybe Phil Helmuth can say hi to him. That's where he lives too. But that's where he got released. And I guess his parents' property, which of course isn't worth anywhere near $250 million, but the way they probably did this was that uh, with bail bondsmen, what you usually have to do is put up 10% and then the bail bondsman put up the rest, assuming that they believe that you are uh, not a flight risk. And then this is 10% you don't get back. If the bail bondsmen are, are putting up the rest, then uh, this is their fee and they keep it. But you have to put up 10% yourself. Now, he didn't go to bail bondsmen for $250 million. There no bail bondsman that could afford this. But what apparently happened was his parents put up the deed to their house and that was just like collateral here kind of like they didn't have to give any cash they just basically are agreeing that they're signing this over to the government if he skips bail and maybe what they're doing is they're accepting that as like the 10 percent, which is strange but that's kind of what appears to be happening here because the bail disposition form doesn't mention anything else backing this bail other than the parents' home in Palo Alto is what it says. It says secured by cash slash property colon parents' home in Palo Alto. He is not allowed to travel anywhere other than for court appearances. He's allowed to go to the Southern District of New York, the Eastern District of New York, only for court appearances, and the Northern District of California. 
he had to surrender travel documents and he has to have a mental health evaluation but he gets home detention he is subject to location monitoring technology but it's not clear what that is i don't know if he has to wear an ankle bracelet or if it's something else that they're going to be using to monitor where he is i'm surprised they're allowing this at all because he knows he could be facing a major sentence here it would make sense to give bail to caroline ellison and gary wang because they came back voluntarily and pled guilty and they would not have done this if they were planning to run away if they're planning to run away they would have run already they wouldn't come back first and then run away so it's pretty clear that caroline ellison and gary wang decided that their best course of action is just to cooperate and that's why they came sbf did not sbf had to be grabbed and sent over by the Bahamian authorities. So, so why are they giving him bail when they don't even know what he might have stored away somewhere? He could have kept some of this money and crypto assets that he stole and could have this hidden in some account somewhere. And all he has to do is now get out of the country. And if he does have these assets hidden somewhere, he could bribe someone to help him. He wouldn't have to get on a commercial flight. He could bribe someone to help sneak him out of the country, even for a lot of money. And he could go somewhere where they could not extradite him. And that would be that. So if there's ever a case to not grant bail to someone, I would say this is one of them. This is someone who you would think is a big flight risk. You don't know what assets he actually has. He knows he could be facing a sentence similar to Bernie Madoff of 150 years. He knows the government wants to make an example of him. So why are you releasing him to his parents' house? It's not like his parents are going to report him if he gets up and leaves. So as long as he can evade whatever location monitoring there is, if he finds a way out of that, then he could get away. This is someone potentially with the resources to get his way out of the country. I don't know why they allowed this. There should have been no bail. Should have been, we're afraid you're going to run off. We don't know what assets you have. $10 billion is missing. It doesn't mean all of it was lost. You might still have some of it. So we're, we're afraid you're going to use that to get out of the country. So no, you can't have bail. Bail is not there to punish people. Bail is there to make sure that they're going to appear in court. And if you're afraid they're going to run away, then you don't give them bail. In fact, this is why I'm against these no-cash bail policies. Because the problem is, like I was discussing with Brian Sagbixall, who wasn't a bail situation, but it's kind of the same concept. If someone doesn't have much to stay around for, then they're just going to leave. They're just going to skip town. So if you have somebody who has very little and has a crappy job that they don't really mind losing and they don't have a family to take care of or assets to leave behind and they're charged with a felony, they're just going to leave the state. So that's why you have bail to make sure people don't leave, to make it harder for them to leave. And yes, this does 
harm poor people who are just stuck in jail awaiting trial because they can't afford bail. But there's no way to have a perfect system. If you do away with bail, then you have a lot of these same people who are just going to leave because they're not leaving anything behind. And it's not even a bad decision if you think about it. If you have nothing to stay around for except a felony charge, why would you wait around for it? Why not just bounce and provided the felony is not serious enough, they're not going to extradite you. So same thing with SBF. If he's facing a potential life in prison over this, if he still has assets to bribe people to sneak him out, why wouldn't he? I'm not saying he's going to get out, but I'm just saying that why give him the chance? So they, they should not have granted bail here. So SBF is currently at his parents' house. I don't know if Caroline and Gary, I don't know if they are in jail somewhere or if they are, uh, they've been released, but it doesn't really matter at this point. They're clearly cooperating. But what about Daniel Friedberg? Remember the compliance officer, the former UB scumbag who we have on tape talking about ways to cover up the whole thing and lie to the public and underpay everybody. We have him right on tape saying that. And he was the compliance officer for FTX and obviously didn't help them comply very well since they stole all the money. Is he going to be charged? Well, we don't know. So far, it doesn't appear he has. And we don't even know where he is. Maybe maybe he left the country. I don't know. I do wonder if they're going to go after him. It's not exactly known what role he had in the SBF actions. Like, I guess he could try to claim that he was simply the compliance officer and he had no idea that SBF was stealing money behind the scenes. But at the same time, this was his job to know. And believe it or not, these UB tapes could probably be used against him later in court to establish his character. Now, he's an attorney. He will have a lot more knowledge and experience and wisdom regarding avoiding the criminal charges and what to do and what not to do, but there's only so much he can do if the government decides they want to come after him. So I guess it depends. And he should be held to a higher standard, too, you would think. Yeah, that that could be right. a factor as well, him. yes. That could be a factor as well, is that he would be expected to know more about uh, what's legal, what's not legal, and the way he should be behaving compared to a, a citizen who is not an attorney. So yes, that, uh, that could harm him as well. So I'm sure he's sweating about this. Maybe he's been in contact with the feds anyway. Maybe he's cooperating. Maybe they've just been in contact with him but haven't charged him. Maybe nothing's happening. Maybe they're looking to see what they can get out of uh, Caroline and Gary and see if they're going to say anything that can help them charge Daniel Friedberg, who is not the main figure in this whole thing, of course, but he's a figure in this. He's not a minor figure. He's not as big as SBF or Caroline, of course, but uh, he's still a figure in this. So maybe he'll be charged, maybe he won't. I really hope he is. I, I would love to see him finally face the music for something. If he's not going to be charged for the UB stuff, which he's not, at least let's see him be charged for this. At least let's see him, see him end up in prison for something, because he deserves it. But I'm sure he's sweating this out. I'm sure he's very nervous.
took that took that LinkedIn page down right away. Yes, that went down very fast. And I think he tried to tell NBC News that uh, it was an illegal recording and that uh, he's making them aware of it and he's going to note that they're aware of this and this is off the record. And they're like, nope, it's not off the record. We're going to print everything. F you. And then he just double on the record. Yeah, he just he just stopped answering. So he he's probably not very happy right now. And not only that, this has brought all the UB stuff like back into public conscience. In fact, into public conscience where people didn't see it before. Before it was like only people yeah. interested in poker who knew. And and it's really unreal that after that, Benwick West hires him to be their head of their crypto practice or something. Yeah, it, I mean, that is a very well respected law firm. You know, and it's just, I had a talk with my friend that's like an international attorney yesterday, and he did some business with Fenwick and West, and maybe they're just too big. They can't vet everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but that just, I mean, but it's just like unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. Because yeah. that just gives him extra credibility. Oh, Fenwick and West hired him, blah, blah, blah. You know? Yeah, it's crazy. You'd think these places would Google the person and see these articles and go, well, you know what? Maybe you should steer clear of this person. But they don't. I, I don't understand it. Like, at least SBF, maybe he was looking for someone like this. Maybe he wanted a shady guy to be his uh, compliance officer. But as you said, these other firms, it doesn't make any sense. So I'm, I'm glad at least this is now getting some publicity that even if he never gets I mean, charged. SBF, too, probably, sorry, Jeff, he could have just probably pointed the whole finger at Friedberg. You know? Well, he he can try, but uh, they're not going to believe that. But uh, well, but 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 it's possible that that Caroline Ellison and uh, Gary Wang are just going to spill everything, and they've probably just been told, okay, plead guilty to these. We're not going to make the charges harsher on you for you admitting to things. We just want to know everything. Just just spill it all, and we'll, they may even know already what deal they're going to get, provided they stick to it. It's not in that actual agreement, but they may may have told him informally, if you do everything we've asked and we're happy with it, then you're only going to get this many years. And don't worry about incriminating yourself. We're way past that. So they may just dump everything. And some of this may be stuff that Friedberg did, and then they may go after him too. So that's what I'm hoping. That's, that's increasing the chance that Friedberg gets charged, I would think. So I hope it happens. I don't know. I don't know if it really will, but I know SBF is going to be charged and they're going to really try to throw the book at him. And I've seen people saying on social media, oh, they're not going to do it. He's barely going to get any time because he donated to Democrats and he was planning to donate a billion. And then there's other conspiracy theories that he was laundering money for them. And I don't really believe all that. I, I think that he was donating to Democrats uh, mostly at a convenience so he could influence who regulates crypto. And then secondarily, he was a Democrat anyway. He did donate to a few Republicans as well, but it was mo mostly the Democrats. He was proposing a billion dollars worth of donations for the 2024 cycle. So this was all for influence. I don't think there's anything that much beyond that. But I do think that they're going to want to make an example of someone here so they can show that they have the whole crypto matter under control. That someone who abuses everything like he did so blatantly will pay the price here. It shows, oh, the government 
they can bring harsh consequences down upon those that abuse cryptocurrency. That it's not just the wild, wild west where you can do what you want. So I think that's the message they want to send. It'll calm people down about all this panic about everything with crypto. So I do think they probably want to make an example out of him. And even though he donated to Democrats before, that, that time is over. They, they don't have use for him anymore. He can't donate ever again. That was then, this is now. I don't think that's going to have much of a factor at this point. The, the loyalty to him that some of them may have had before is probably gone. So whereas the donations probably helped that questions were not asked about FTX and its activities and that weird bank that they bought, like I think that's what the donations bought. But at this point, now that the shit's hit the fan, the donations are not going to matter. So I, I don't really think that the Democrats are going easy on him. If they do, I'll say so. But at this point, this kind of looks pretty standard that they want to get him and they're cutting a deal with the lesser figures in this to spill the beans. So, of course, I'll have updates for you as we go forward with this and see what happens next in this crazy story. Let's move on to discuss... Another incident with a Rolex in Las Vegas. There seems to be an epidemic involving Rolex thefts from hotel rooms in Las Vegas. We talked about one earlier this year. But this one has a lot of similarity to the one we talked about back then. But the perpetrators are different. And apparently they have nothing to do with one another. Two completely separate crimes. One at the beginning of the year, one at the end. So in January 2022, and we talked about it before on this show, there were two hookers who identified themselves as hookers. They weren't hiding that they were hookers. In this particular story, what they did was uh, they went to a guy's hotel room. These were two uh, unattractive hookers, uh, one white, one black. The white one was uh, Nikki Grandel and the black one was Stacy Johnson. And this is on January 2nd, 2022. They went to this guy's room at Caesar's Palace, and then they stole $6,500 cash and a Rolex watch. They got this guy to go take a bath, which uh, he didn't just decide it was bath time. This was clearly where the hookers said to him, well, you know, go take a bath first and then we'll have sex with you. We'll have a threesome with you. And uh, that's sometimes a requirement when you see hookers, they make you take a shower or a bath. So the, the dummy went into the bath and closed the door and of course they stole all his stuff sitting out. And what happened was Nikki Grandel stuffed the Rolex in her vagina. <laughs> Gross. That's what she did. And I, I told the story before back in January. She stuffed the Rolex in her vagina. And Stacy Johnson, the black one, she had stuffed the cash in her pants. Actually, in her vagina, but it fell into her pants. I guess the $6,500 fell out of her vagina. This is the other one now, the black one. It fell out of her vagina, and they, the officers saw the bulge in her pants and knew it wasn't a penis. And it was the money that had fallen out of her vagina. But the, the watch stayed in 
Nikki Grandel's vagina, and then they found it during an x-ray that they took of her at the Clark County Detention Center because they were suspicious that uh, maybe the Rolex could be in there <laughs> because uh, the money had been in the other girl's vagina. That was a lovely story from January. But the reason we're talking about this again in December is that a very similar thing happened with a different woman, also on the Las Vegas Strip. So Sarah Richards, who is a white woman in her early 30s, and she's better looking than the other two I talked about, but she also has a methy look to her. The other two definitely had a big-time methy look to them, but this one kind of looks like she's on drugs, too. Sarah Richards has a big thing for stealing watches as well. In June, she stole a watch from a dude at a strip hotel. I'm not sure which one. And now she has done it again. And just like Nikki Grandel, she put the Rolex in her vagina. (laughs) Gross. Yeah. So I don't know if this is something very common in Vegas for these girls to do, except the difference is... This more recent one, this Sarah Richards, she wasn't an outright prostitute like the other two were. So she would hang around strip casinos and she would see a dude she wants to target, probably someone with a nice watch, and would uh, start flirting with him. And... These guys, they, they just don't know. They don't realize that this doesn't just happen in Vegas. You don't just have girls come up to you and flirt with you out of nowhere and just want to go up to your room and have sex out of nowhere. It, it usually has some sinister element to it, especially if you can't figure out why you're being singled out. If you're like a really, really good-looking guy and the girl notices you for that reason, okay. But if you're just like some regular middle-aged dude and a girl just picks you out out of nowhere and she's younger than you, and she seems very, very happy and willing to go up to your hotel room. Especially if she doesn't seem drunk. <laughs> she seems like totally about her senses and just is into you and wants to go to your room. Usually something's wrong. So that's what she would do. She wouldn't say she was a hooker. But then once you'd get to the room with her, then she'd start complaining that she's broke, that she really needs money. So she's not directly asking you to pay her, but... She's kind of implying that she really needs some help, that she's really struggling, and she's hoping that either out of sympathy or out of the belief that if you say yes, that she'll have sex with you, that you'll give her money. I don't know if this guy agreed to give her money or not, but the victim here told the police that they were cuddling on the bed. Remember, again, this isn't supposed to be a prostitution thing. She's pretending to be into him, so they're cuddling there. And as they're cuddling, she expressed concern about his watch. She said, uh, can you take off your Rolex watch? I'm afraid that while we're cuddling, that it's going to cut me. (laughs) My answer to that would be, okay, one second while I put it in the room safe. But instead, he just, not wanting to ruin the moment, whipped off the watch and placed it under his pillow. She also kept pressing him to drink wine. 
That's always a bad sign when you bring a strange girl to your room and she keeps saying, come on, drink. Come on, drink some more. Come on, drink up. Drink up. More wine. More wine. Well, that's what she did because she put something into his drink to knock him out. So he kept drinking more wine as she kept pressing. And, of course, then uh, she stole the watch. Now, I guess the whatever was in the wine didn't completely knock him out. She left the room. I don't know how she got out of the room without him noticing. Maybe he's kind of half out of it, but she left the room. <laughs> he put his hand under the pillow, and the pillow uh, had nothing under it. So he said he went into a panic, and he ran out of the room, and she was still in the hallway. So uh, she got in the elevator before he could get into that same elevator, but he quickly got into an elevator as well down to the lobby and saw her in the lobby and yelled for security. So the police, uh, so the security uh, held her, called police, and the police searched her and they said, well, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, I know you said she stole your watch, but uh, she hasn't left the property and we don't see any watch on her. And then they realized something. They realized that there was a very similar incident back in January of those two other women where they had the watch in their vagina. So rather than search her through the x-ray like they did it uh, in January, I guess they actually searched her genitals. And I assume they probably had a female officer do this. That's usually the protocol. But they, they searched her genitals. And yes, the watch that disappeared from under the pillow indeed was in her vagina. <laughs> Gross. Not sure if he wore it after that. Like, what do you do with a watch at that point? Do you sell it? Do you ever wear it again? But yes, it was in her vagina. And this is the second watch she's stolen since June. They also found that she had an opened purple pill capsule that had some powdered white substance inside of it. So it's assumed that she dumped this into his drink to try to knock him out. It just didn't completely do the job. The funny thing is there's a booking photo of her from June. And in that photo, she looks a lot worse. She looks a lot more methy in the June photo. She, she really looks like she cleaned up somewhat. So it's interesting. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say, but she looks substantially worse in June than in the much more recent photo that was taken in uh, December. She doesn't look great in either one. She doesn't look terrible in the December photo. The June photo, she looks like a mess. She also looks older in the June photo than the December photo. In the June incident, it doesn't say which hotel this guy was at, but it was a strip hotel. It was on June 4th. And she successfully drugged him, just knocked the guy out with dumping the powder into the wine, and she stole his Patek Philippe wristwatch, and that watch was worth $100,000. She said that, or he said that she approached him at a bar in the hotel, and that uh, they both went up to his room. At that point, she dropped on him that she needed help with money, and he then opened the safe in his room and gave her a thousand dollars 
So I guess she did give get a thousand dollars out of that first guy. But then he woke up hours later with his watch missing from his wrist. So she drugged the guy and just stole it right off his wrist. However, to show you that she really is a hooker and just pretend she's not one, in that June case, it happened to be the next day that she was talking with an undercover police officer at a different strip hotel and offered to have sex with him for money and was arrested for prostitution. And then they connected her to what happened uh, with the watch. However, she isn't a Vegas local. Apparently she lives in Baltimore. So I don't know if she just comes out to Vegas every so often to steal watches and to turn tricks. So she posted bond in that one and her court date was scheduled for January and then here she is in December stealing more watches and shoving them in her vagina. What I'm wondering about this is when women who look very methy are uh, approaching you in the casino, like wh- why would you ever even want to go to your room with them? For- forgetting about the danger and the thefts that could occur, why would you even be attracted to them? Even if you're older or whatever. Like wh- why don't you look at these women and say they're, they're just kind of gross and dirty looking? <laughs> why would you even want them? So I'm wondering how they even get these guys interested but I, I get i guess some of these guys are just wanting to have sex and they're not that particular i'm still wondering how she cleaned up between june and december she looks a lot better i'm really astounded by this usually it just goes gets worse it's actually gotten better her hair color is better too it's not just the hair but her hair in june was this weird multicolored uh blonde and brown thing which just didn't look good on her and it was kind of stringy looking and it looks much better in uh december it's it's dark brown it's looking a lot better in general she has these same weird giant fake eyelashes on but her face doesn't have the meth look as much as it did in june so maybe she cleaned up with the drugs in that time i don't know but she's still stealing and how does she think she's going to get away with this Again. Like she's already about to go to trial for this next month. She's still stealing Rolexes. See, I just watch out. Use your head. If you're in Vegas and girls are just showing interest in you out of nowhere, at best they're hookers. At worst, you're going to get scammed in some way, stolen from. All right. Well, final story is about Atlantic City. It's about an old woman and a jackpot. A woman who was uh, quite old won a $1.6 million jackpot at Harris Atlantic City. She was 74 years old, and she tipped the dealers $77,000 from that $1.6 million hit, which is a whole lot. That's almost a 5% tip, which doesn't sound like much until you think about the fact that it is $1.6 million. So how do you tip 77000 Now, this gets split between about 250 employees. So it's not as good for each employee as you might think, but they're still getting a lot of money for as far as a tip goes. From this one tip, they're all getting about 300 bucks. However, this was not a slot machine jackpot. This was a let-it-ride progressive jackpot. 
So it's a table game. And she had people at the table with her. So she decided she's going to share some of this with her table mates. She was going to give the you know, some of this money to the people at the table who didn't hit this. And remember, she had just given 77000 to the dealers collectively. So what did she give to each of the people at the table with her? So I don't know if she started to have remorse about the tip. It's very weird that when you're at the table and you've got all the camaraderie with the other people there and they cheer for you when you hit this big jackpot and let it ride, why would you not share more than $100 with the other people with you if you're going to give 77000 to the dealers, like what do the dealers do for you? One dealer there dealt it to you, but the other 249 dealers didn't do anything for you. And not that the other people at the table did anything for her, but if you're going to give this away, why would you give so little to the table mates who are playing at negative expectation and give so much to the dealers? It's really strange. Harris Atlantic City's director, Michael Zippel, said that's the highest amount that Caesars Entertainment has awarded in New Jersey. That is the biggest jackpot ever in New Jersey for Caesars Entertainment. The tip she put on the table was all in cash after she uh, went to the cashier to collect her winnings. I don't know if she got the entire winnings in cash, but she walked over to the table where she had been playing and dropped $77,000 cash right on the table. She said, thank you for dealing. That's your money. And then the dealer said, thank you so much. You are a nice person. (laughs) But yeah, she only gave $100 to each of the other people at the table. It just doesn't make any sense to me. She couldn't like break off a thousand for each of them if she's going to give seventy seven thousand to the freaking dealers. I had a whole long debate about casino tipping with Vital Vegas. You remember on his girlfriend's podcast in one of the early episodes they had, they had me on as a guest to debate Vital Vegas on the subject of uh, Vegas tipping. And it's not that I'm against tipping. I, I just think this it should be sensible. And you don't owe big tips when you hit a jackpot, just like the dealers don't owe you money when you lose. So if you want to be nice and give a tip, that's fine, but you don't have to give 77000 just because it happens to be 5% of $1.6 million. You You can give much less than that. And if you think your tip's going to be scoffed at, then just give nothing. You're not expected to give anything. A lot of people do. But you don't have to. And I wish the whole concept of tipping dealers just went away completely. And I wish they just paid them the wage that is appropriate to pay them, whatever that might be. And just no tipping was done, period. I would think that's much better. Because all this has done is it's transferred the responsibility to pay the dealers a fair wage to the patrons. And what you end up having happen is that at some casinos, the dealers are way overpaid, and at other casinos, they're underpaid because there's few tips at certain casinos, and other casinos have lots of high rollers who are leaving huge tips. 
So some casinos you have dealers that are making more than a hundred grand a year, and other ones they're not making very much at all. And yet there is such a thing as overpaid. It is not a super skilled job. It's not completely unskilled, but yeah, dealers should be paid according to what you would expect that type of job to be earning. And it'd be great if everybody was paid a very high salary, but obviously society can't work that way. So I just like to see them paid a fair wage and eliminate the tipping because it's, it's hard enough to win without all the tipping. But the problem I always have with the tipping on large hits is that your choices kind of come down to living, leaving something outrageously high. It doesn't have to be this high, but anything is outrageously high. Or being seen as a cheapskate and feeling like you wasted your money. So like, exam- for example, if you win a $1.6 million jackpot and leave $1,000, like you may think that's generous, and I would think it's generous, but you're going to be resented by a lot of dealers for leaving that. Or even if it's a slot machine, you're leaving it for the slot attendant. They're going to go, what, $1,000 after he just hit $1.6 million? What an asshole. Well, if that's the attitude, you should leave nothing. So it's very hard to find this amount that is not too high and not going to be scoffed at. You never know what it's going to be. And many times that amount is too high anyway, even if you knew. So I, I just don't think tipping has any place in gambling. And the only reason it exists is because the casinos like the fact that they don't have to pay as much in salary. And then you have things like this. I mean, 77000 And again, it's going to all the dealers combined. They were getting 300 bucks, So it's not even like this one dealer gets this because she just wanted to share it with him. Because like, okay, you dealt it to me. Here it is. Well, she probably didn't understand. She said, thank you for dealing. That's your money. Well, it isn't. $300 of it is his money. 249 strangers she never met are going to be getting the rest of the money. I think that she didn't get that. By the way, the bets that can win something like that, those have the worst odds at table games, all those bonus bets. So while the very rare person will hit something like this, usually you're wasting your money. You're pretty much guaranteeing yourself a loss in the session by paying it these bets that rarely pay out, the odds in them are, are pretty bad. And this is true for all these table games with side bets. So they, they may be fun for you. I'm just saying that they're a very bad bet. They're much worse than just playing normally at the normal game of whatever you're playing. Did she get Delta drop or how did it come out? Did you see? Um. No, I didn't watch the video. I only read the article. There's a video on this article at uh, NBCPhiladelphia.com. But she got. And is it a bad bet if you could win 1.6? I mean, that must that must influence the odds. I mean, it, it does. So yeah. So so maybe in this particular case, if the progressive was really high, maybe it wasn't that bad of a bet. But usually it is. Usually it's a terrible bet. But yeah, that's a good point. That maybe. All the way up at 1.6 million, maybe the bet was not terrible, albeit very unlikely to hit. Now, you could say that maybe this woman doesn't have many people to share it with. I don't know what her situation is. Maybe she's doesn't have any husband. Maybe she doesn't have any kids. You know, maybe it's just her and her cats at home. I don't know. 
Maybe she has kids and she's estranged from them. I mean, there could be a lot of things going on here where she's thinking, what am I going to do with this much money? I'm 74 years old. But it's not like it's so much money she'd nev- never have anything to do with it. I mean, $1.6 million, it's a lot of money, but it's not huge money. So you could say, okay, well, she could go buy a, a nice house to live in for the rest of her life. Just pay for it outright. She still can, but I, I don't see the need to waste $77,000 on a tip into a dealer pool. If you really want to do something good with that, give it to a good charity or something. I understand much more what you can share it with the dealer who gave you the cards if you have that superstition that the person who dealt it to you did something for you and you want to reward them. Okay, but like, why tip 77000 that's almost all of it is going to strangers for 99 point something percent is going to strangers that didn't deal to you? Well, that's it. I got through it. Hopefully I don't have COVID. I guess I'll be finding out soon. I don't think I have it. But ever since last time when I had a a very, very mild version of it, I can't ever be sure until I take the test. But I don't think I had it. But I was wrong in June, so maybe I'm wrong here. I guess I'll find out soon. Other than that, it was probably uh, a cold. Weird cold. I I don't understand the stomach problems. That's just kind of confusing me. That's why I'm thinking COVID's possible. That plus that weird, super faint pink line. Anyway, I'm not going to go out and play any live poker or anything like that. I'm really not seeing anybody until I can see from this PCR test whether I'm uh, positive or not. Even Even if I'm feeling better for the moment. So thank you, Trader Ruski, for coming on. I would wish you a Merry Christmas, but uh, you're a Jew, so I won't do that. Happy Hanukkah. Yeah, the end of Hanukkah here. The Hanukkah's winding down, and Christmas is about to start. Final show of 2022. We will have our next show in 2023. And Poker Fraud Alert Radio will continue on for however many years that I feel like doing it, which I don't think it'll be ending anytime soon. And we'll try to get some more frequent shows out there. We could do a year in review segment in the next show. Yeah, we can review what has happened in 2023 for like the first three days of it. It'd be a good segment. No, 2022 highlights. <laughs> Or or low lights, as the case might be. Yeah, there were there were definitely some low lights, like uh, money being stolen from my bank account by BetMGM. That was definitely one for sure. But maybe we'll have a highlight when some arrests happen in 2023. All right, thank you everybody for still listening to this show in 2022 and hopefully beyond. And rest in peace. I am Greek, presumably, if it really was. Uh, the wife of that couple and not the husband like we thought all this time. So rest in peace, Angie, whoever you were, whether you were I am Greek or not, but I I think you were I am Greek. I think that's why we won't be hearing from I am Greek ever again. And that's sad. So that is it. I expected this to be a long show and it was. But I was afraid it'd be like 10 hours or something. 
At least it wasn't that out of control. After I take out the break, which I always do, I only took one break. That was pretty good considering how I'm feeling, but after I take out the break, we're probably looking at something like eight hours, maybe seven point something. So, I mean, we've had those lengths of shows recently, so that's not that much of a departure. Thank you to Traderuski for coming on here at the end. Give us some good commentary. And I'm sure we'll have plenty of more scandals in 2023 to talk about. It's just endless material. I had someone ask me during a live poker session recently, how do you talk about all this stuff for hours every week? How do you find stuff to talk about? And I go, you know what? The poker community is never short on drama. There's always stuff to talk about, and especially when you add in the gambling stuff beyond just poker. You've always got material. Well, for those of you that are Christians, Merry Christmas. And if you're bored on Christmas Day after everybody opens the presents, hopefully I'll have this up in the archives in time for you to spend the day listening to me. And I guess that's it. I've run out of energy and I've run out of anything to say. I will close this off with good night, good morning, and shalom.